Good evening. Good morning, I guess. Good evening, everybody. Hey, man. How are you? Welcome, Gavin. Glad you could come, man. Thank you for having me on, Mark. A pleasure, man. I didn't know you have a you have an ape. Or, or it's sure. not a, it's a doodle ape. It's a cross. It's a hybrid between a little bit of a doodles and a board ape. Respect, man. Absolutely, the hexagon's the coolest profile picture on this website for sure. <laughs> I'm just inviting uh, absolutely your 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 crypto punk. It's so cool. Yeah, I got it by accident. I wanted a different one. I wanted the hooded one, but they got me this one, a bold one with like a little thing on the head. At least so he smiles. Gavin, At least he smiles. Yeah. It's like Tim right. Pool. <laughs> yeah. So, so Gavin has the distinction of being at somewhere around 2,000 followers yesterday and 17,000 today. <laughs> how does it feel, Gavin? How's the, how's the uh, craziness since the video came out? The engagement has been unreal. Twitter is an amazing platform, and Twitter 2.0 is going to be even better. It feels so good to be able to be a part of this organization and release information that the public is waiting to hear and not be banned like on YouTube. Yeah, your video was removed from YouTube, wasn't it? Yes, it was. What reason did they give? You know, I'm not... Um, community guidelines. Uh, community what, else? what else? Always community guidelines. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's a, um, it's an interesting conundrum that we're in today, whether, or not whether, but what's, what platform people are willing to post stuff on. Is it going to be Twitter, YouTube? Are they going to start creating something like spaces? You know, I think this, especially your platform, Mario, has been huge. I mean, you've hosted some of the biggest spaces on this platform. And I just want to commend you for getting the information to the people you know, just like us at Project Veritas, it's important that Twitter 2.0 allows us to share and to get that, you know, information to everybody easily and easily shareable because that's how an informed public does the right thing in America or in any country. You know, information is the key to knowledge. I would imagine that if there is this constant risk of videos being taken down and not knowing when or why, people are going to start turning away from these platforms that, that engage in this, right? You know, I don't know if it's, it's, it's a, it's a risk to take. So oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jim. Sorry, no, go, Jim. I was just going to say, I was just going to say, so many people on the left, even. I mean, it's not just people on the right, but people on the left that are, for example, going to Rumble as an alternative to youtube so i i think people are getting this message it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out completely but it's i think it's pretty huge i'm particularly interested to see how facebook is going to handle it and i don't know if bringing back trump had something to do with their hand being forced a little bit by you know people flocking to twitter i mean they were already losing market share which is kind of amazing but we'll get their we'll get their, their share prices done over the past yeah year. so i want to i want to just introduce the uh i'll say hi to the to the audience hey everyone um we've got the panel ready it's going to be a really interesting discussion today and it's gonna we're gonna have different segments you know how this uh how this space goes so we've got the project veritas team uh, team here um that will be discussing the re recent video and 
I think there's, I don't know if there's breaking news today. Uh, Jim, I'm not sure if that's what you told me, but there are any developments that happened since and their plans moving forward. Then we've got doctors coming on stage to discuss gain of function research and what that means. And then we're also going to have a few ex-FBI um, people that worked at the FBI to tell us, to give us their thoughts on the way the investigation was um, was handled. So that's the structure we're going to have. Uh, Nick and Catherine, you guys did a, a space as well after the Project Veritas space, like a late night one, discussing um, a kind of a recap of the space. What was the outcome of that one? What would you say? The oh, oh, boy. Of that one was, oh boy! Oh <laughs> boy! What's the oh boy? One that ended three thirty, right? Three thirty Eastern. Yeah. Kept going actually. Well, that's when I dropped off. I, I, had a, I had enough of a guy who was saying that he chooses his vaccines based on the uh, the race of who develops them. So that I mean that that was that was. What's that? Well. Hashtag Moderna. What, what did you say, Nick? His bio said hashtag Moderna gang. Yeah. He did say that he, he chose Moderna because it was developed by, by a black woman. So that, that is true. Um, however, <laughs> the parent of the science of that in terms of, you know, science. <laughs> So that, I'll be honest, I started that space because I was like, well, I'm a little bit skeptical of this, but let's discuss it. Let's kind of have a conversation about it. And the space kind of changed throughout the night as different people came in and had different perspectives. And, uh, and you know, uh, I think it's good to have these conversations and, and, and have different perspectives and different opinions. And now we're, we're going to have another one, a much bigger one. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I want to ask, so while waiting for the panelists to join, just for the audience, we're going to wait for, for more people to join. I haven't looked at the numbers yet, um, but we'll kick it off in a bit. Uh, but I want to ask uh, Gavin, man, what was the experience like on that day? It'd be good to, to warm up the room because you, were, you yeah. were the person holding the camera that day, yeah? Uh, he, <laughs> Absolutely. You were also the defender I hold the of the people too, so. <laughs> the defender. I hold the camera pretty much for... James all the time. I mean, I, I travel with him across, you know, speeches and all different, you know, I, I film a lot of the on the on the scene stuff. When we talk to people, I also do a lot of the in studio things, our interviews and stuff like that. So it's it, I've learned a lot from when I started originally for, to now. I feel like when I started, it was, a, you know, I was kind of in a daze. Oh, my God, James is doing this and this and then you know you learn how to you really learn how to get in the in the mindset of what you're trying to capture and what happened on that day specifically i i was you know it's such an important story i wanted to make sure everything was perfectly captured the audio our audio wasn't working 20 minutes before it was happening it was there was like things that going on but you know it's always important to stay calm and to react, not to were be. You, were you, Gavin? Were you guys? Were movement. you guys worried that because you had your camera that wasn't streaming? You guys weren't streaming, so that means if you got a hold of the camera, um, you would lose the footage, or the police confiscated the camera. Is that? Is that? Am I right there? You are right. It would have been the the main angle and probably the better angle of everything that you saw in the video would have been gone. What we had was backup footage from iPhones, and 
not necessarily all the angles. So you might have only gotten half of the half of the interaction or not even been able to hear James because, you know, I was recording his audio. So it's important, you know, in these situations to be aware of all surroundings in physical your physical surroundings, but also the audio, the camera, the position. You know, I also didn't drop the camera and it was in my left hand the whole time. So, I mean, I I like to pat myself on the back a little for that, but I didn't necessarily I missed some of the the interaction, you know, because it's there's so much going on all the time. It's it's quick, fast paced. And, you know, you have to make split split hair decisions in order to what's the most important content to capture, you know? Yeah, man, we did well. Oh, you did well. By the way, for all the uh, speakers that are requesting to come up and speak, um, we've got uh, we'll be bringing you up gradually. Feel free to DM me. The team will respond to the DM because um, obviously the panel's almost full. We've got one more spot left. I think Project Veritas will be joining uh, on that last spot, so we're going to keep that for them. And uh, the space right now, we've got uh, obviously our moderators, but we do have uh, various people from the Project Veritas team and um, Pfizer whistleblowers. We'll go through in turns to uh, for everyone to introduce themselves very briefly. Um, before we kick off uh, the space and just let more people join, allow more people to join. By the way, anyone that's in the space right now can ask questions in the bottom right corner in that purple circle, um, and we'll get through those questions throughout the space as usual. But I'll give the mic first to Matthew. Matthew, I'd love you to give a a quick introduction and your involvement with Project Veritas. Uh, Sure, and I think probably, uh, you know, the spaces have obviously taken off, and I've done probably 18 hours of them, and I see a lot of familiar faces, so it's been an incredible medium that, you know, uh, Catherine and Mario, you and Nick have been, uh, you guys really, I think, brought the virality to spaces. And a big one, and Matthew, a big one is Jim. Jim is the man that gets all the speakers. (laughs) Yeah, or Jim's the one who got Tim's the one who got me. I remember I was walking in Tallahassee and he called me and explained what you guys were visualizing uh, in terms of really building this thing out. And it's so powerful. And I, I, I said to our team earlier today in a group chat that this is like having a conference call open to the world with, you know, who can engage with speakers and they're on listen only mode and it's come one, come all. I mean, it's so powerful like that. That like gets in front of so many ways of censorship. We stay ahead of it. So I'm on the board of Project Veritas. I've been with James since 20. Uh, I worked on some some stories with him in like 12 and 13, and then joined the board. Uh, and this was when you know Project Veritas was less than 10 people, and now we've reached you know 70 people, give or take. So watch the impact grow, and you know work closely with him. And we have a lot of our you know great long term long term team members. Uh, Gavin's been here for for years with PV. Eric Spracklin, who was on uh, helping host the uh, spaces we ran the other day. Uh, Mario Balaban, who I uh, encourage you guys to let in as a yeah, speaker. Yeah, inviting, uh, literally inviting him as we speak. Brazilian Mario, that's his username. Great. Yeah, Brazilian Mario. He's been one of my uh, mentors in learning all about Brazil, Brazilian politics, which we talked about, Mario. Uh, Mario N. Uh, but yeah, no, I believe and I've seen every story. I've known, you know, for years, which are the stories that really move the needle. And James and I debate and talk about it and have fun, fun arguments over it. And I told him a few weeks ago, this was going to be not only the biggest story that PV ever did. Uh, but potentially, and I'm getting every day, I get more and more convinced of it. It's the most important journalistic expose story of uh, high level corruption in the history of American journalism, Western journalism, and by extension of, you know, the transitive property of logic, world history. Has there ever been a story that affected everybody on earth 
uh, with this magnitude and potentially so quickly. You know, if, if things go wrong, everybody in the world's affected, you know, in, in theory immediately. I mean, this is bigger than like a nuclear proliferation story, you know, 50 years ago uh, because of that. And the fact that this what was exposed by Project Veritas uh, shows that there are no guardrails in place that be, because the regulatory capture. And, you know, we talked the other night about the tyranny of experts, people convinced that they are right and nobody is there to say, no, you might not be, but at a minimum, even if you are, we should probably debate it. And the knowledge that they that even guys like the subject in the video uh, that Gavin got into uh, fisticuffs with, uh, he you know, said the quiet part out loud. Uh, oh, yeah, we're doing that, but we would never publicize it. You know, people, you know, and then said this is probably bad for the world. He said this, you know, this is probably not good for America, which in drug development, as you and I have talked on some of these spaces, means the world. America is the heart of drug development. Pfizer is the 800 pound gorilla uh, in drug development. So it's. Uh, it's a pretty overwhelming story. And then the secondary story is the reaction and how society, what they do with it, uh, how is it taken? And what we've seen is uh, the greatest reputation management machine in the history of corporate America, which is the drug companies and specifically Pfizer's, uh, go to work and memory hole links to stories as they go up and major venues, right? Uh, MSN.com, Daily Mail, within minutes of them putting up stories, uh, they were they were memory hold. It was it wasn't even 404 link not found. It was just like redirection because I guess they figure maybe if we don't show 404, a lot of people will. They have optionality on people don't even think twice about it. They just move on. Pleasure. So there's all sorts of stuff that needs reform and regulation. And uh, and as a as a small government guy, it pains me to say it, but social good antitrust. This is the stuff. Appreciate, that's appreciate being here, Matthew. I'll give the mic just for a, bit, a few more introductions before we kick it off. David. Um, I'd love you to, to introduce yourself to the audience. Good to have you on the panel for the first time. Thank you for having me. Your audio's a bit. Your, your audio's really, really far. We can't hear you, man. And, and by the way, Gavin, would you oh. follow me so I can DM you, please? Thanks. Is this any yeah, bad? it's much better. Gavin, if you can follow Jim, that would be great. Jim's trying to DM you. Uh, yeah, go ahead, David. Absolutely. Thanks, Gavin. Go ahead, David. Yeah, I'm, I'm Project Veritas is a CRT Hasbro whistleblower. Um, I brought the story that uh, Hasbro wanted to influence and bring racial consciousness to children um, as young as three years old. However, I've taken a particular interest in the vaccine and COVID exposés because, like Matthew said, um, I don't think there's been a story that has affected every single person on the planet, like the COVID vaccines, the mandates, and the just the overall scope of government corruption working with private interests with an absolute disregard to human life, safety, and liberty. And I think this, this expose in combination with the Twitter files and the earlier exposés of Pfizer and the FDA will expose what might be one of the largest crimes against humanity in the history of humanity. Appreciate you joining, man. Anna, good to have you as well. You've worked at Project Veritas. Not sure if you're still working there. Um, I think you are. No, you've worked at Project Veritas. We'd love a quick introduction, Anna, to the audience as we bring up two more panelists. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, excuse my voice. I'm a little bit under the weather. But, yeah, I worked with Project Veritas back in 2018, infiltrated many Democratic campaigns, Tammy Baldwin's, Andrew Gillum's, um, exposed Governor um, Kate Brown in Oregon, was never going to tell anyone that I worked undercover. It was very much an anonymous work to just serve the country. But... When the New York Times wrote a hit piece uh, last year <laughs> on, on James and myself and called us, you know, honey pots and all this stuff, it was just ridiculous. And 
and uh, obviously, you know, it, it kind of it came out that I work with them. And so I've been a bit vocal on obviously fake news. And they also insinuated in the article uh, by by Adam Goldman, which, by the way, thank you, James O'Keefe, for um, <laughs> for, uh, you know, finding him and and and, uh, you know, re- revealing the fact that he's just he's just an FBI very much um, like uh, just uh, an arm of the FBI a used student. to weaponize against journalists. Yes, exactly. So, and, and Adam Goldman insinuated that we investigate, you know, we were investigating the FBI, which was not true. We never investigated the FBI. I mean, all of it pretty much was an, a, a fake news hit piece. And, um, I, I'm, I'm just astounded and amazed how Project Veritas continues to blow my mind with their investigations. I'm very familiar how we worked, um, and, and the strategies that we use. And, and some of them obviously are, are private, you know, just tradecraft secrets. But at the same time, you guys can see, I mean, there, there's just so many, they're so braggadocious in DC and also, um, with, you know, companies that just want to brag about what they're doing, playing God. So I'm excited to be on the panel and talk more about the investigation. So I uh, thank you for having Appreciate me. Appreciate you being here. Mario. We have the same name. First, uh, first time someone has the same name as me on the panel. How are you, man? I'm doing good. Thank you, Mario. It's uh, great to be here. It's my second space that I'm doing. Um, you know, this brief introduction of myself. I've been with Project Veritas for just over three years now. Uh, I'm the media relations manager there. Uh, Matthew, as, he's, uh, as he stated before, I worked with him closely on a lot of the Brazil stuff. As, as you can see, I'm Brazilian. So I've, you know, I got my hands in several different projects, but obviously Project Veritas is my number one priority. Uh, this story, the Pfizer story has been quite something to witness. Of course, I was at Project Veritas in 2020. We broke probably our biggest stories then, uh, starting in September of 2020 from Minnesota ballot harvesting up until January. We were still doing major, major stories, um, especially around voter fraud at the time. But this week, I mean, it's, it's just been unbelievable. Uh, Mario, I'm sure you know. Uh, I don't, are there any videos that you've seen reach 22 million views in a span of three That's days? That's insane, man. Your numbers like, are ridiculous. You, you, your space is well. You had 20,000 live people at a time. And it's like the first space you guys do or the second. That was insane, man. Oh, no, you've done spaces before, but these numbers were crazy. We have. Yeah, and it's 22 million views right now on on one video, which was the one that we put out on Wednesday night, and the other video of the uh, confront not confrontation, but the attempt of an interview with the individual where the man reacted violently, and Gavin was there to save the day. That video has over 10 million views. So combined, just on Twitter, we're over 30 uh, 33 million plus views on these two videos in the last three days. That's insane, man. That's insane. I can't even imagine your DMs. And we have, um, we've still got uh, Melissa, and then I'll introduce Dr. Denish, who's been on the space a few times. But Melissa, pleasure to have you. Um, you've, uh, you're, you're a Pfizer whistleblower as well, so would love you to introduce yourself to the audience and a brief intro about your story. You're muted, Hey, Melissa. thank you so Just much for having corner. me on. Hey, good to have you. Hi, thanks for having me on. Um, I am Melissa McAtee, also known as Melissa Strickler at the time of my Project Veritas release. I worked in the company for almost years, and in my final four and a half years there, I was a manufacturing quality auditor, meaning I dealt with the product daily. I gave lines the approval to start. We were in control of product entering, leaving, or leaving the plant and running throughout the plant. Um, I found a lot of documents on their database by mistake. I didn't know I had access to the private internal database, and I did. Um, I began searching it daily, 
with no luck until I saw an interview where they gave the codes that they use um, in the database. And I found about 80 documents and the emails, which were released by Project Veritas on the um, executives of the plant and communications trying to limit the knowledge to the public about the aborted fetal cell lines being used in the development of this vaccine because um, the Vatican had already given the approval to its um, to its religious following that the Pfizer vaccine would be the one to get because no aborted fetal cell lines were used, um, which was not true. Um, and so I kind of brought light to that with those emails that they released that showed the desperation. They were trying to keep it out of the public's knowledge because they've already basically been saying that it's not been used. So they wanted to just go with it. Um, and I have many other documents as well. I've tweeted some of those out. Um, I also kind of revealed to people that the vaccine does glow. Um, that was something that I never saw talked about for some reason. And when I would search it, it would be fact checked as false when I'm actively looking at it every day. Um, so that's who I am. Um, they fired me after the release of Project Veritas. Um, they claimed I had quit, but I did not. Um, they act, they terminated me immediately and I haven't really heard from them since. Um, they've sent me a letter a couple months ago requesting $900 for overpayment, <laughs> but that's the most I've heard from them in the last year and a half. Uh, well, uh, if they go ahead, whoever's speaking. Matthew, is that you? Uh, so I was going to say, uh, Melissa, stay with us on st stage because I want to ask a few questions about the way right. Pfizer deals with situations like this. And I'm curious to start asking the, the Veritas team. Uh, so we've got Project Veritas account. Not sure if there's someone that can speak. Uh, I'm not sure if I should introduce you from the Project Veritas account or you're just joining there to have the, 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 the name there. But because um, uh, I know Mario's yeah, usually not, behind. There's no one there. Sorry. Yeah, yeah okay. Because no I, know, I know Mario's usually behind that account, but Mario's using his own account today. Uh, and that's not that's Correct. not Mario me. That's Mario Balaban. Um, <coughs> by the way, Tom, Melissa, yeah, go ahead, Melissa. Melissa. If they, uh, if they sue you for 900 bucks, does that, if there are any lawyers here, would that get us the ability to open them up on discovery and discover more stuff? Any lawyers can weigh in. We don't have lawyers on stage now, but if anyone, if there's any lawyers in the audience, um, if you can give clarity to Matthew on this. But you're starting to think like an investigator, Matthew, trying to grab on every opportunity. <laughs> um, so we've got a bunch of questions ready. And before that, I do want to introduce Dr. Denish. Dr. Denish has been on the space a few times. And, and uh, Dr. Denish, you, you've helped us. Ex you've explained to us a few times gain-of-function research. And um, you'll be playing a key role later on in the discussion as we go through what the video means, what the revelations from the video mean. But it's a pleasure to have you on stage. I'll, I'll let you give a quick intro before we kick things off. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Mario. I think, you know, from my conversations with Mario and Jim, uh, my job is not to speak uh, as much from opinion here. It is largely to remain neutral and just give some information. Uh, as a disclaimer, um, you know, uh, I do... Uh, I do lean more towards skepticism on everything and you will hear it in my voice, no matter how much I try not to. Uh, but I think that's not a bad thing uh, in this situation. Um, and you will hear it from me over and over, just uh, kind of tempering expectations of how big of a story is this? How much are the, did he actually say? And how does it apply to actually applying to all of us in our lives? So, uh, Dr. Nish, appreciate you being here. 
Um, again, speakers will be rotating the panel um, as we get different speakers to cover different topics. And if you drop out, just DM me because uh, you might drop out. That happens a lot on Twitter Spaces. My first question before giving the mic to Nick and Catherine. My first question, anyone that would like to jump in and answer the question, just put your hand up or just unmute and answer. But Matthew, you know, you've been on the space a few times. You know how things work. My question to you, Matthew, is Pfizer's response. We saw their response yesterday. I'm sure you've read through it. I'm not sure if you've had any developments today. Would love your take on Pfizer's response. Uh, what it means, because I did a TLDR and there was like barely three sentences. It was relatively brief. I'll actually read out exactly what I wrote there. I did it before I went to bed. And then uh, I'll let you comment on it, Matthew, and anyone else that would like to jump in. But my, underst- my understanding from that response is three points. They claim they are not performing gain of function or directed, revo- uh, directed evolution, not revolution, directed evolution research at the moment. They're conducting computer simulations and in vitro. And there's no statement on whether Jordan um, worked at Pfizer. And Jordan is the guy that you guys had in the video. The third one is probably the most important to me because it just kind of confirms or implies that Jordan works at Pfizer. But Matthew, what's your take on Pfizer's response? And has there been any new developments since? Well, first off, it took, uh, well, I mean, when we we released the video on, what was it, Tuesday night at 8 p.m., the first uh, Wednesday night, Wednesday night. And it took them until Friday night. And by the way, on Wall Street, we always joke about when they drop a material adverse event, uh, uh, SEC filings. Uh, they usually do it at Friday at 6 p.m. after the uh, equity trading, the ECNs, the electronic markets are totally shut off and everyone's gone for the weekend. So, I mean, it had that feel, right? Friday night, they let uh, 48 hours go by on a major sto- a major situation. You know, uh, a researcher just got... Uh, exposed using, uh, with his own words, an undercut of her camera, you know, the cinema verite that Project Veritas has sort of pioneered at this level. Uh, and they didn't answer it for, for two days. And when they did, it was Friday night. And I've read probably somewhere between five and 10,000 uh, press releases from pharmaceutical and drug companies and drug development and med tech and healthcare products. And there are two types. There are two types of releases. There's one to the general population, and there's one to announce uh, results from different phase trials of the drug development process, which is usually for you know professionals, people in the medical community, researchers, uh, investors, uh, people who speak jargon. And this one had, for the first time, uh, it was like a, a hybrid of the two. Uh, and my own feeling on why they did that is they wanted to put it out to the general population, but they wanted to fill in a lot of jargon. So as people would just kind of, you know, glance by it and be like, oh, I don't know what it means, but eh, if they're good corporate citizens, I'm sure it's fine. Uh, and that's obviously not the case because their denials were, were not exactly full-throated. They didn't really address the 800-pound elephant in the room that there was a major journalism expose and, you know, there was an employee and they didn't really dissuade anybody from believing that there's something sinister uh, afoot. They were, they released, it was a massive release, a ton of uh, of, of biotech and drug development, drug technology jargon. And it read like an, almost like an advertorial for Paxlovid. And if you saw Paxlovid all in caps, uh, trademark, uh, which I found kind of a funny optic. Uh, but when they have it, by the way, this is, Pfizer has been sanctioned more than any other drug company. Now, an aggregate dollars fined, uh, they're the largest in American history, but Glaxo has them beat uh, uh, for some settlements that they had to pay. Glaxo's uh, a former Swiss, now uh, British-based company. Uh, but Pfizer's far and away that American regulators have fined of an American company. Uh, they are the biggest recipient of uh, penalties and sanctions and fines, and some of the biggest ever. Uh, so they have a team that's really well-equipped to answer shit. 
And they spent 48 hours kind of figuring out how they were going to do it and then did it to as dead air as they could hope to uh, to to achieve uh, pushing it into. And then you have before their release, you had the media, you know, taking down these links. So, I mean, I you know, they're they're nervous. There's no doubt about that. They're nervous. You have Rubio send a letter. There's going to be hearings. There's going to be a lot of hearings. Uh, and why do you think they included all these um, side Catherine, effects? Catherine, your, your mic is horrible. Yeah, yeah, Catherine, your mic is horrible. You're going to put it close to you. Um, but in the meantime, so while Catherine's fixing you, her mic, Matthew. Do you hear? Uh, is, is it better? Yeah, no, it's not better. It's very, very echoey. A little better. Uh, yeah, this is hard. To, I'll, ask, I'll let you ask you, Catherine, uh, ask your question and then just try to fix your mic right after the question. We can understand what he's saying, I think, now. I think she's fixing it. Uh, Matthew, quick question. So what you're saying essentially is two points. Number one is them um, releasing the statement on a Friday evening. Um, and and Ian, Ian, who's going to be up on stage shortly, and Tara mentioned this yesterday, um, the, the, the news outlets will, will, will not cover the story as much because it's just before a weekend. So do you think that was done intentionally? And is it unusual no, for I, them I, to take I, that I, long to, to, to respond? I, it's definitely unusual. You know, everything response and PR is based on severity. How do you get in front of something? The fact they let this go for 48 hours while they're trying to construct something uh, and, you know, parse words in the most loyally way possible and then drop it into what they would hope would be the deadest air space they can uh, is very, very telling. No, they, they move fast. You know, these, these, these are top PR flacks uh, on earth and they move very fast and they didn't because they couldn't get in front of it. It's too big. Uh, and I don't think they're worried about the mainstream press. Right. We saw MSN and uh, uh, and uh, who was the other one that uh, uh, Daily Mail, the, the most widely read news website on Earth, published and within minutes. Those site, those links were gone. Like the mainstream press is very much, you know, in bed, whether it's I spoke to one UK. I can't say the outlet, but one UK journalist who's right below like editorial decision making that talks to corporate. And he said a lot of our journalists want to cover it. And the words they're using is too toxic. But we know it's because they're scared. They're scared to cover it. They don't want the shit storm that will come from going to war with global pharma and the interlocking business interests of the largest companies in the world. Uh, so they're going no, Kath- which is frightening. Catherine, do you want to try your mic now? Yeah. Can you hear me? Is this better? Not now? really. It's not no, better. It's at really all. bad. It's really bad. Dr. Dinesh, I know you've, you've, you've been, you're, you're going to be great at asking questions here. And for example, the exa- Daily Mail removing the story not long after publishing it. Correct me if I'm wrong, Matthew, but that's what happened, yeah? A few minutes. A few minutes from publishing it. Um, and then yeah. uh, uh, Pfizer taking that long to respond and responding on a Friday evening. Does it show at least a certain level of concerns, Dr. Dinesh, even for someone like yourself? Yeah, clearly risk management was involved. I mean, I read it. Uh, and again, I'm going to try to be neutral. <laughs> uh, but clearly risk management was involved. Uh, a lot of the words were parsed very, very carefully. Um, I think uh, they did not address uh, whether uh, the subject of that video was one of their employees, that was very, very surprising. That that was not even brought up. Clearly, that was at the center of the entire uh, reporting. Um, I think one thing I did want to push back on, uh, so I agree with Matthew on that. I think it's, uh, you know, PR teams do take quite a long time, to be fair, uh, but PR teams are not usually the ones that slow things down. It's legal and, and risk management, and clearly they were involved from the... A few minutes. A few minutes from publishing it. Um, and then yeah. uh, uh, Pfizer taking that long to respond and responding on a Friday evening. Does it show at least a certain level of concerns, Dr. Dinesh, even for someone like yourself? Yeah, clearly risk management was involved. I mean, I read it. Uh, and again, I'm going to try to be neutral. <laughs> uh, 
but clearly risk management was involved. Uh, a lot of the words were parsed very, very carefully. Um, I think uh, they did not address uh, whether uh, the subject of that video was one of their employees. That was very, very surprising that that was not even brought up. Clearly, that was at the center of the entire uh, reporting. Um, I think one thing I did want to push back on, uh, so I agree with Matthew on that. I think it's, uh, you know, PR teams do take quite a long time, to be fair, uh, but PR teams are not usually the ones that slow things down. It's legal and, and risk management, and clearly they were involved from the from the writing of it. The only pushback I want to say to Matthew, though, is the reason why they brought up Paxlovid is because Paxlovid, the, the in vitro studies that you do on a protease inhibitor um, actually require you to do selection studies. Um, and so when you're doing a selection study, sometimes what you're trying to figure out is by giving, so just for to get everybody on the same page, sorry, and we'll go into much more detail with this no, later. Yeah, and before, but, before, before okay. going into that, Dr. Dinesh, because I want to dig into that as well. That's one of the topics. But I'm just really curious. So, David, comparing to how Hasbro responded to when you did your, uh, when, when you had your story break, how does that compare to how Pfizer's responding now, David? Um, I think it's it's very similar. You see a lot of the same kind of coded language, like legalist speak, the saying like, yes, we're not doing that thing. We're kind of doing it, but it's okay because of X, Y, and Z. I think it's more it's it's PR and trying to really just cover their butts and because they what, know could, what, could what could what could happen what could happen next like behind the scenes what are you guys worried about a project Veritas what do you guys speak about and have you received anything that we don't know about from Pfizer well I I can speak to that I can speak to that so in terms of uh, worried about we um, I I think I can speak for everyone at Project Veritas that we're not worried about the retaliation be it from anywhere even if it's a media hit piece we're used to those uh, one already came out from Newsweek that rated our story unverified instead of trying to make it trying to say it was false they couldn't get to that false uh, mark that they wanted to so they said it's unverified which brings me to the question of if it's unverified shouldn't the reporter go do his job and verify the story like i don't understand how you can run a fact check and say it's unverified the point of a fact check is to go and say it's true or false i didn't know that unverified was a permissible fact check <laughs> that's when you go and say maybe i should go do more work on this so uh, overall, we're not worried. We're going to keep going. We rec- We actually, what, what we want next is we want, we want whistleblowers. We want Pfizer whistleblowers, big pharma whistleblowers to come to us because obviously this story is very impactful and it mattered. And uh, we know that it's going to, it has longe- longevity. And it's going to, like Matthew said, there will be hearings most likely from this. But we're not stopping here. And we want uh, to bring out more information to the public. And we invite people to come to us if they know things that, you know, corroborate what we've already put out to the public where they have additional information uh, to come to us and, and become a whistleblower. And uh, Mario, has this been the response here? Because I want to first, the first segment I want for anyone that just joined, I want to really dig into what happened and, and the response by Pfizer um, and how they, uh, yeah, I'm not sure you're speaking. Your audio is really bad. Um, but I would say it's just like a very choppy, um, but I will say Mario. So what I want to focus on now is exactly what uh, Pfizer has done. Uh, what do you expect them to do? How that compares to other investigations you've done? And then in the second segment, I want to really dig into the story itself and what directed evolution means. And that's where Dr. Danish and others will yeah. be helping us out. But Mario, back to the question yeah. is, how does the response so far compare to previous responses you've had? Um, and what do you expect sure. next? Yeah, so I, I, I can I can answer that by tying into 
similar to what David said, I agree Hasbro re- responded in a similar way. We've had, you know, usually uh, what we see is that they don't like to respond to our stories. People, uh, these, uh, when we get a massive story like this, it's, you know, very hard to disprove. Uh, the usual response is silence, right? So that's what we usually see. Uh, a Friday night dump is a, a, the secondary strategy, but I think Pfizer realized that they couldn't do that. It was just too much uh, attention to this. So they had to do something. But, I, you know, in terms of what I can see Pfizer doing going forward, it reminds me of a story we did in 2019 when we did the Epstein cover-up story. Uh, some of you might remember uh, ABC News anchor Amy Robach, who, by the way, has been uh, left ABC News just recently for her affair situation. But we uh, obtained an insider whistleblower uh, tape of Amy Robach in 2019 saying she had the Epstein story for three years, but the network executives killed it because of their fear of the Clintons and the royal family targeting them. So it was a ma- and we published that story. It was huge global news. And the response that we saw from ABC, which is owned by Disney, is that instead of coming out and, and, and admitting what they did and that they buried the Epstein story, they actually interrogated maybe the entire company to find out who the whistleblower was. So tying that into Pfizer is obviously we didn't have a, a specific whistleblower yet on this story, but we have people inside Pfizer who are leaking us documents and information to corroborate what we uncovered on, you know, this individual Jordan Walker and that he works at Pfizer and all these different questions that arise. So the, we, we, I would expect that Pfizer's uh, next act is to clamp down on any potential whistleblowers and insiders who are willing to divulge the information to the true to the public and uh you know I, I think they can follow that path that disney did which is clamping down on on any leaks that come out of of the company um the the next question i have is how long and i'm not sure if you've shared this already but when were the the uh, the the first interview with the general with jordan done when was the second one done and how long did it take you to verify that he worked at pfizer because the, these are pretty important revelations Yes, yeah, so we don't share our, our, our methods and, and sources and details. You can imagine we're undercover journalists. Uh, some investigations last month, some investigation last weeks. Uh, it really depends here. It really depends on how quickly these people we meet are willing to start talking, right? Uh, this individual uh, was one of those that really was, you know, we asked a question and he was more than happy to answer it. But to your point about um, you know, how long it took to corroborate it. We take corroboration very seriously. We don't publish things that we can't corroborate and prove. Uh, a lot of questions arose ro- of that. And I can tell you, we spent a lot of time and a lot of resources looking into every single thing that we could prove that this man does indeed work for Pfizer. And we were vindicated because Pfizer ignored the story for 48 hours. And then when they put out this statement yesterday, as Matthew noted, uh, this person clearly uh, was not Pfizer did not deny he worked there, nor did Pfizer say that this person was low level, which is another excuse we've heard from these companies we expose. So he clearly has, uh, you know, some sort of power inside Pfizer, some sort of decision making power, and he works there. That became abundantly clear from their uh, their silence, and then further clear with the uh, statement that they put out, uh, not dis- dis- trying to disprove that that fact. If I could just add to to Mario. Uh, point. Uh, in short, what he said about our verification standards point to the fact that we're journalists. 
we do journalism. How different is that from, you know, the mainstream with anonymous sources or the tabloid spin of somebody told somebody told somebody told somebody game of telephone that the Daily Beast routinely runs out as breaking news and a hot scoop? Uh, we never do that. And we bring the prima fascia where the subject, the, the sources, you see their mouths moving. You hear auditorily what they say, how they say it, the inflection, the tone, the subtlety and nuance. If there's a joke, if there's sarcasm, you pick that up. I mean, as, as a viewer, as a consumer of the journalism that we bring to the world. Uh, so it's just it's so different and it's so necessary. And that's why the mainstream press, is, or as I call them, the stenographers guild of the establishment uh, are saying nothing. I want to say that there's a person that deals with crisis management. And he said he sent me this message that number one rule of crisis management PR is no successful crisis response begins on the day of the crisis. So the, the crisis management team planned this pretty well in terms of when to respond the next question, and I know, and, and whoever would like to answer this one, feel free to jump in. But I know that you cannot share everything there, Mario. Now you're probably going to jump in and say that. But what can you share about the way he was honeypotted, the way you managed to get him to this position? And again, I know you can't share all your strategies, but what can you share about how you got there with the audience? I can share that you know the 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 assumption that everyone has is that you know we go on these apps and meet people. What I can tell you is that we we have all sorts of ways that we meet people. Uh, believe me or not, there's several instances where people thought that uh, you know these individuals were on a date because of an app, and in fact, it was an organic uh, uh, meetup. Uh, one example that I can share is a, a tw the Twitter story we did last year of the Alex Martinez Twitter executive who sprinted away from James O'Keefe in the streets of New York City. As you can as you remember, he said on undercover video. I'm so happy to our, he said this to our journalists. I'm so happy I met you organically or else I'd be questioning everything you've said, right? Or everything you've asked. Like you sound like you're interviewing me, right? And like, I'm so happy I met you organically. So the, that individual, as obviously, as this man said, was not, you know, met through an app. They met, you know, anywhere. we can meet people anywhere. It's really about have, starting a conversation with someone. Uh, and believe, it's not as hard as people would think it is. People think, how are you able to do this? Believe me, with willpower and with desire to uncover the truth, it's not that hard. Not to discredit or, 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 or take away from the amount of effort and, 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 and brilliance from our undercover journalists. They're absolutely tireless. They work nonstop. They travel the country. They're incredible people. And to do their job is very difficult. But to the answer the question about, you know, how do we you know, start the conversation, which is just one step of all the different things that we do, you know, it's not as difficult as people think, but to complete and, and really go all the way and, and never give up. It's relentless work. That's, you know, you meet people nonstop. You have to just keep trying to meet people that, you know, are, are, uh, will, that have information that the public deserves to know. And you just have to go all the way. And a lot of people end up giving up. Oh, I can't do this anymore. It's not worth it. That's not the mentality of project Veritas. We go all the way. It's worth it. And, uh, the proof of that is what happened this week with the fight. I've got one question before. Um, that's so true. One quick question. And what we're going to do is I'm going to ask one more question to Mario and I'll let you add the re to the response. And then Catherine, Jim, you could jump in right after if that's okay. Um, Mario, and, and sorry, I've just got, I'm just very fascinated by the whole story and how you guys got here, Mario. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hogging the mic. As well. um, then we'll go to Ian. Uh, so Mario, my last question before I go to other uh, panelists is, um, um, Eric made a point in the last space you guys did. And uh, unfortunately, it wasn't recorded. Mario, you forgot to press the record button, man. Um, 
But in that space, right. <laughs> it's all good. In that space, uh, he did, uh, and, and many people are asking the same question. I'm going through the comments as well. Again, audience members, there's the comments on the bottom right corner. We're going through your questions and your thoughts on what's being said. Is that uh, Jordan, the executive from Pfizer, was under the influence of, um, uh, of alcohol and was trying to impress a date, another guy. Do you, how, do you think that's a valid point of concern? That he could be over-exaggerating the truth? Or that over-exaggerating the truth doesn't move away from the things that were said? Because some things were, you know, were not things yep. you would kind of use to get impress someone. Yeah, so I obviously was not the person in the meeting, so I don't know what the alcohol consumption was in, in the situation. It clear, it was clear to me that the guy was, was totally conscious of what he's saying. And, and you know that's true because as soon as James went to ask him questions, he knew immediately what it was about. He knew You could tell he knew immediately what it was about. It wasn't like he was surprised. Oh, I don't remember saying this. He knew exactly what he said. And in terms of impressing someone, you know, usually you, you try to impress someone by saying, I'm rich, I'm powerful, I have access, I know this person. You don't brag about, here's what I'm, you know, here's this occult thing that I'm looking into in my job that might hurt civilization. And yes, I think this is bad for the American people. And yes, no one should know this. And please don't tell anyone about this. I don't know personally how that's a, a, a reason to brag about something. You know, you, you would brag about other things. I, I, I personally... Don't know anyone who's been on dates who's, who bragged about doing things that the public wouldn't like. That's not something I'm aware that people do. Uh, of course, people will always have questions and doubt. Because, again, the magnitude of the story is so big. People are going to say, is this person really at Pfizer? Did he actually mean what he said? Did Pfizer Is Pfizer actually doing this? Did Project Veritas selectively edit? Because everyone's, there's always going to be people trying to poke holes at something that is just so clearly shocking and, 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 and huge for the for the public's right to know and i'll just add uh end with this uh i know anna's here she was an undercover journalist uh she knows exactly the hard work that goes into what they do and uh anna was an incredible journalist for for project veritas so i'm happy she's on well thanks well, all, all glory to god <laughs> but um if i if i oh sorry Catherine, you want to jump in yeah and actually i have a question for you and and mario um but i think it's a great question for you because um i think there's multiple ways of of really doing this kind of work right investigative journalism which is very much needed but often um uh, this kind of journalism is done is relied on sort of making connections and relies on sources coming forward voluntarily and in this case you know social engineering and and having sort of these dates and all that kind of stuff, that's something where the choice is, is in essence taken away from people. And so I'm just curious, like, how do you justify that approach? How do you feel about it? And what's your experience with it? So maybe we'll go to you, Anna, first uh, to respond to that. Sure, that's a great question. So first of all, sometimes when, um, you know, you're meeting with someone, like Mario said, a lot of times it's casual. Sometimes we do, did a dating app. Sometimes it's very much bumping into them and it's totally normal at a coffee shop or whatever. Um, and so in their mind, it might be a date in my mind, I am investigating them. It's a meeting for me. And so a lot of times too, is that we won't ask these questions on the first, on the first meeting you can call it a date, but on the first meeting, um, and you know, sometimes we'll, we'll meet with them two, three, four times before we start asking those questions that we're trying to find out and expose to the public. Right. And our job really is to make 
bad people famous. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it is. People that are public figures that are saying one thing privately and another thing publicly or not disclosing things to the public. That is our job as journalists to expose that. And it's funny how, you know, we know, and as we talked about this before, how very much the media is weaponized, you know, the intelligence agencies are weaponized and, and how uh, Jordan talked about the revolving door. I mean, it very much is a revolving door. Unfortunately, you know, we have intelligence agencies working with big tech and media and um, they're very much a mouthpiece for them. Like Adam Gold, who's a journalist, quote unquote, at New York Times, but he's attacking real journalists who are doing his job. But getting back to your question, even about the beers, that's a great question because, you know, what, what I love about Project Veritas, when I joined the company back in 2018, one of the first meetings, James and the staff um, and the field manager said, listen, we do everything ethically and we do everything legally. It is up to you to decide if you want to take a step further, but we recommend you do everything legal. So, for example, you know, we make sure to film in uh, one-party consent states, right, not two-party consent states where it's illegal and it's inadmissible in court. Uh, the other thing when it comes to beers and alcohol – uh, we were trained, make sure that they're not drunk. You know, you want to, you want to judge carefully, um, because otherwise, again, it's not admissible and it's also unethical, right? I'm not trying to get a guy totally hammered where he just exposes who he really is and the character who really is. No, my job is to find out what you guys are doing privately that the public needs to know so we can make our own decisions. And so, for example, with Stuart Carafa, who worked at the Department of State, he was a communist who had one beer. I met him in an open setting. It was a public meeting. It was actually a public um, call for anyone that wants to join DSA. And DSA, by the way, Democratic Socialists of America, they are open communists. I mean, I was in these meetings. They were Trotskyist, Stalinist, Leninist, you know. And so it was an open public meeting, which they don't do anymore. Um, it was it was held in D.C. The guy had half a beer. And as we see uh, many times in, in our investigations, a lot of these a lot of these people are very braggadocious. They love to brag about what they're doing, what they're planning. I mean, with Jordan, how are you bragging to a date when you just told him, I was actually in a meeting and this is what's being discussed. That's not bragging. You're disclosing what's happening privately and then also obviously confirming it by saying, I don't want the public to know. It would be a danger. You know, he didn't say the danger, but it's not good for the public to know. So I hope that answers your question. We kind of gauge, you know, in, in, in the moment. And obviously, and another, another thing too, especially with the journalists, I mean, I'll speak for myself, but I do know colleagues as well that work there and do work there uh, right now at Project Veritas. A lot of times we're not, we're not drinking. We, it, we might look like we're having, you know, a gin and tonic, but in there, it's just water on ice. You know, it's just water. So water on the rocks is what I get. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go to the bar. I'll get a water on the rocks and come back and pretend it's a gin and tonic because again, I'm totally sober. I have a mission. And again, we'll take our time getting to what we want to get. And then again, we follow up and dig more and more. And it has to be casual or else it's a big red flag for those that we're investigating. You know, um, I got a question. Or Matthew, were you going to say something and then I can ask? Well, I was going to just add uh, two points, one to what Anna said and one to uh, what Mario said. When Anna said that, you know, we want to uh, make bad people famous. Yeah, you know, that that those are much easier ethical quandaries on media ethics and the style of journalism uh, to effectuate getting some sort of output that's important for public to know. But we always have the debate internally, you know, what about good people? What about people who are just, you know, honestly saying something or, you know, I remember we uh, there were, you know, cops talking about COVID uh, early on. 
on. And it's like, you know, do is their facial identity important? We have we have these, you know, debates all the time. And with the good people, it's much more of a quandary. And James and I were talking about the night the, that the episode happened. Uh, and he sent me the uh, the raw footage. And I looked at it, I said, we should probably have a discussion about, you know, this guy's life is ruined. But is what he's saying so important? You know, always think about the different facets of is it does it add to the story? And here in this case, not because just because, you know, the flippancy in which he was talking about these issues, which is certainly a moral issue we've all talked about on previous spaces. But the way he said, no, I was all lying is unprecedented. Whereas I made it all up. He's a highly intelligent guy, highly educated. Maybe uh, missteps on some of the, you know, the common sense, smart things and human interactions, but highly educated and knows what he was talking about. You see it from his resume and his education. You see it from his title. You see it from the way he talks about the underlying subject matter. And when he immediately recognized what was going down and he saw not only his life, his professional life flash before his eyes, he knew the scale and the gravity of what it was and what it was about. He knew that it was like, you know, this is like Hollywood level dystopia. Corporations run amok at the highest level level of corporate villainy and he knew that this was going to impact the company the entire industry the entire political and um, public ethic debate about the underlying subject of what they discussed he knew this was big and that's why you saw an absolute meltdown uh because that was a psychological breakdown from him knowing ahead of time how big matthew did you you, uh, sorry jim go ahead i'll ask a question after actually quickly jim matthew did you feel bad for him like despite the story, despite the whole story and everything, the guy like I felt bad for the guy and what he went through. Uh, I have to admit. Yes, I have a question crazy. about yes, him actually, uh, if you don't mind me asking. Go ahead. Sorry, I'll give Jim the mic because I did interrupt him, and then we'll go to yeah. you. Uh, what I was going to say was that I did initially, which is why I started talking to James, I mean, really late at night after all tensions are sort of uh, have risen quite materially because we never had an interaction like this. And we and, and we talked it out and we agreed the scale of it. Yes, I did. But when when I started thinking through the scientific and medical ethical implications, the corporate citizenship ethical implications, uh, you know, I was very, very quickly on board with the idea that we have to show this in its entirety and it's cringeworthy. You know, you feel bad because it's the magnanimity of how this is going to affect his life is so high. But you know what? Eight billion human lives. Uh, at risk of this sort of dystopic novel theme. Pharma is tinkering with viruses, uh, catalyzing mutations so they can, whether it's prophylactically or not, sell the vaccine in with no oversight, guardrails, uh, regulatory uh, uh, controls over it. They're just making the decision within a company that is pursuing profit and profit motive. Uh, that, you know, this is, that's why I maintain this is one of the biggest stories in history, if not the. And so, so no, essential- but it was too important to not to share. So essentially kind of the end justifies the mean because the importance of that story getting out was more important sort of than that person's life, essentially, what you're saying. Much, much more. And look, we didn't do him any physical harm. We exposed something that needed exposure. The regulatory capture that he spoke openly about, by the way, anyone here who knows the farm industry knows about the regulatory capture. We've all talked on these spaces in depth about Scott Gottlieb, the FDA commissioner uh, in the initial phase of COVID, who went straight to the board of Pfizer, no doubt because they have the ability to give the board compensation in equity at the highest level. And they do it. They're the most aggressive about capturing regulators, policymakers, uh, 
people at the NIH, CDC, pay them royalties for their work. Uh, it's overwhelming the revolving door. And this is just too important a story to and justify the means is a little you know, uh, caustic, a way of saying it, but the public's right to know for the common good is so imperative in this story that it, it wasn't even a debate. And well, before and I go know, to Jim, I, Jim, I just want to mention, and I'll give you the mic, Scott Gottlieb, we're talking to Scott to join the space as well. I think this story, if he agrees to talk about it, would just make that interview significantly more interesting. He will only talk about it if uh, he gets uh, full buy-in with talking points from PR. It won't be yeah, yeah, on the board. And, and it, resigned, yeah. Unless he resigns from five. And, and Adam, uh, Adam we'll give him the opportunity yeah. if he wants to speak. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah. But I'd, I'd love I mean, I would love to have, have him without the PR people there. Right? I mean, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, go, go ahead, spaces. Jim. Yeah, so, and by the way, for those in the audience who don't know what re- regulatory capture is from that terminology, what that basically means is that uh, corporations have people who go into the regulatory agencies or vice versa, and therefore you have this revolving door going in and out from the regulator to the regulated, and and that's what we call regulatory capture. So therefore, in effect, what's happening is the regulators are working with the companies that are able to have that influence in the regula- regulating and the, the re- agency themselves. They, they, and, they but, which, by the way, before, before you go on, Matt, that's not what I'm going to ask you, but go ahead. Yeah, they sell it quite strongly as a positive good, right? The, the, the debate we've had in society the last 20 years over regulatory capture has unfortunately really only deeply dealt with the financial services, the big banks, the entire Treasury Department, the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, the Federal Reserve Chair. Almost all of them come from big banking and will go back to big banking. It's so bad. You know, I was on Wall Street a very long time. I still am in a different capacity. But watching the SEC, when they have low ranking people join their ranks to get this knowledge of how the regulatory framework works and is applied to the private sector, they spend four or five years out of law school. And then they go and join Schulte, Roth, and Zabel, or Skadden Arps, or the big law firms that have most of their business within a compliance on Wall Street, investment banking. And so it is a little bit that the, the fox is guarding the hen house, and the government teaches the foxes how to then guard, guard the hen house later on. And the debate needs to be, obviously, now we know, uh, and, it, and some of us have been screaming about it for years, uh, the healthcare industry, big pharma, the energy industry, a, a, lot of, a lot of places we should be having this sort of spoil system, the way capitalism has, quote-unquote, evolved, quote-unquote, capitalism has evolved with this regulatory capture. Yeah, and actually the bigger problem is that the corporations teach the regulators. That's where you get a real big problem. But anyway, but to move on from that. I had to I was deposed over an options trade uh, once by the SEC, and I had to explain to them, and they're, you know, trying to understand why I was in something, and, uh, you know, the thought process to show that there was no, you know, bad faith actions, but I had to explain to them the basic mechanics of trading options. They didn't know. And that, to me, was like a big – this was 15 years ago. That was a big pull back the curtain for me. And, and we should probably have a special space on that, Matthew, and you and I work on that maybe sometime to do that. But one thing that I wanted to uh, bring up, because one, uh, one of the things that's happening right now in this debate, at this stage in the debate, since the revelation of the, the original video, is what's the information actually that Project Veritas has found out? What's the veracity of it? What does it mean and so I wanted to ask you a question Mario could answer too. Um, the, one of the things, I, as I perceive it, and correct me if I'm wrong, one of the things that I perceive it about the process of investigative journalism is certainly, if possible, to validate all the information that you find out, but, but that, that you can't always get all the way there, but you do need to validate the information that you do get out in terms of 
you know, was it what was this uh, received pro uh, not properly because you know people will argue about the methodology, but but was this received and it's real information? I guess is the basic thing that I'm saying. So people and we'll probably have a discussion as we go further through this about uh, you know the 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 processes that he described. But in reality, what makes this significant and valid and useful is this is the first major salvo into figuring out exactly what's been going on with this, or at least one aspect of it. And that's significant, even even to the degree to which the actual validation, and, and Pfizer's making its pitch to, to answer what uh, Jordan said, but the reality is that's valid and useful and significant information as it is, because it's the beginning, and a significant one, I would say, of a process where we're going to find out more and more that's going to be useful and helpful to the American people. Am I, am I accurate in yeah. explaining that? No, the, this makes, this is a great point that you bring up. So this is something that I think uh, not only Project Veritas does, but I think all journalists uh, should do, right? So depending on, it really, like when you decide to publish a story uh, and you know it's going to be a big story, you have to analyze, you know, who is talking and what, and do they have knowledge of what they're talking about? For example, if this person was the Pfizer janitor, speaking about this issue, probably not the best person to publish a story about this, right? Or another example I can give you is when we did a story on Lisa Murkowski, the Alaska senator, when she was running for re-election last year, we got a person telling our journalists that they were doing ranked choice voting, uh, which is a system where you choose your candidates in order of one through four, one through 10, instead of choosing one candidate, right? And we're like, okay, so the story was, they're doing ranked choice voting. Lisa Murkowski wants to push ranked choice voting in Alaska because that will help her get elected. So she changed the law in Alaska, the voting system in Alaska, because she couldn't beat um, her, her her opposition if she kept the same system that they had before. And they didn't want the public to know that she, you know, she was behind the scenes operating this change in law. She wanted to seem like she was neutral. So we got one staffer of hers saying this. We're like, okay, this is interesting. This seems like a very good story. What do we need to do? Well, we went to another meeting with another staff, a paid member of the, her campaign, who said the exact same thing, which corroborated exactly what she was doing. So we were like, okay, now it's corroborated and it's newsworthy enough that we can say, here's 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 the proof. Well, in this story, we we saw that it's a Pfizer director, it's a high level person, speaking not just briefly, speaking in detail about how it works, how many monkeys, how they use it through monkeys, how they've considered it. Different details that, you know, a person that was just, you know, as, as some some people suggested, bragging, wouldn't necessarily have to go into the details that this person went into. Once we release the story, what it comes down to is, and, and this is something I want to clarify for everybody, the media is like, Project Veritas claims Pfizer is doing this. That is not true. Project Veritas didn't claim anything because we didn't speak in the video. The person speaking in the video is the individual that we exposed. They're the one claiming things. We're just exposing what they claimed. So we're not claiming anything. Our job as journalists is, is to provide material for the public's right to know, and the public can make a decision for themselves. But in this specific story, we released it. The public obviously saw it. Um, they had a lot of questions for it. And Pfizer's response yesterday after 48 hours, in my view, vindicates our reporting because they didn't deny the person works there, didn't deny uh, the person's title and importance in the organization. And even to Dr. Malone, who's been tweeting a lot about this, he thinks that they he actually they actually pled guilty 
in their response by saying, ah, actually, you, uh, you know, we were doing some sort of virus experiments here, but you know, it's not as bad as we we're uh, as the video tries to make it seem. So that's, Mario, uh, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, Mario, can I follow up with you? You said that you know the the story doesn't have to be true for you to put it up, but the truth no, no, is that not, the person not what said. That's not what I said. Well, you said the person has to say it, right? You said that of, the, of the what's well, true is. Yeah. The person has to say it, not us. We're not the one making any claims. Uh, it's Correct. the person on the video. Right. So the person on video, what's true about the story is that the person had made these claims, which is correct. But, but the claims could be false. Like if the person is lying or, or isn't informed or whatever that is, that could still be false. So I'm just curious what you think about sort of the responsibility that Project Veritas or other organizations have in terms of, um, you know, because somebody could, could make something up. They could have other motivations. They could be, you know, crazy. I mean, there's there's lots yeah. of reasons why somebody might say something. So I'm just curious what your thoughts yeah. are on that. So the step that we do, the step we do that all, uh, that all journalists do, is when we obtain the material, we didn't just obtain the video and say we're launching this today, right? Obviously, we corroborated who he was and where he worked. But the other most important step that every journalist does is we reached out to Pfizer for comment 20, uh, at least six hours before the story went out. We gave them the opportunity to comment. I can give you a, an example here without going into detail where we obtained documents from a company, a big company, years ago. We were going to publish them. We reached out to this company for comment. This company said, this, this document is, is completely bogus. It's, it's made up. It's not a real document. Even though a person that worked at that company sent it to us, the company, so we, we actually didn't publish the story. We didn't publish the story because we, we got response and we gave them the opportunity to respond and they didn't respond and they responded saying that it wasn't real. And we couldn't further corroborate it. In this case, Pfizer not only ignored our request for comment before the story went out, they only responded 48 hours later without denying that anything we said, we put, not we said, but that we put out was true, right? So, um, and then just to give you an overarching example, um, if, like, I'm going to give you a crazy example, right? Let's say I'm a Project Veritas, I am a Project Veritas person, and I go and speak, uh, I talk to the New York Times, and I tell them, you know, New York Times reporter, we're doing this crazy thing, this crazy thing, this crazy thing. I, I would imagine that the New York Times would be so excited with the bogus stuff that was being told to them that they would just run it for the fact that someone at Project Veritas talked to them about something crazy inside Project Veritas, right? So and I actually think the standards in the media in general are actually very low as long as they obtain their objective of just hitting the organizations they don't like. But Project Veritas is not like that. We actually reach out for comment. And if Pfizer had denied this and said, this person doesn't work for us, what he said isn't true, I promise you that we would have done a lot more research and a lot more uh, follow-up to make sure that it was accurate before publishing it. I do want to ask one question before going to Ian, then Tom. Uh, the identity of the person, just because some people sent us some information, I don't want to share anything I'm not meant to. This is confidential, the person in those dinners, correct, Matthew or Mario? Yes, okay, okay. Uh, they're undercover. Okay, so. okay. I just want to keep, make sure that's the case. All right, so I won't share anything relating to that. Um, Ian, I'll give you the, the mic, and then yep. we'll go to Tom. Yeah, so I had a couple of questions. You know, I've been listening to this, uh, your guys' talk the whole time, and fantastic, right? So uh, first question, so we're circling back to the whistleblower, Jordan Walker. Um, have you ever managed to recruit anyone to become a whistleblower by turning them during uh, one of James O'Keefe's interviews? That's my first question. Yes, uh, we've had several instances in all sorts of different industries and stories where uh, our, sto uh, our whistleblower led to more whistleblowers, for example. One, one, one example here is the 
whistle, uh, the insider inside ABC News who provided to us the a- Amy Robach tape uh, showing that they uh, covered up the Epstein story for years uh, came to us because the CNN uh, insider, Carrie Porch, uh, came to us months earlier to blow the whistle inside CNN. So this person was inspired by CNN uh, whistleblower Carrie Porch to come to us with the ABC tapes. Uh, we're, the reason we're getting Pfizer insiders, for example, is because of the Pfizer tape we released. Another example is when we did Twitter stories last year of Alex Martinez and Siru Morgasan, those viral videos that got millions of views from inside Twitter. We got several people inside Twitter sending the Slack messages between Twitter employees commenting on our story and commenting on Elon's uh, takeover of Twitter at the time, which was May of 2022. So what we see is when we put out a story, be it undercover video or a whistleblower story, that inspires people uh, to come out in more numbers and, 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 and feel like if someone else can do it, I can do it too. And that's key. And I just want to add for clarity uh, and, uh, you know, to, just to, to sort of explain one thing. When whistleblowers blow the whistle, they're motivated to blow the whistle. We don't go into companies and start, you know, tapping people on the shoulder and say, hey, come blow the whistle. That is, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of lead, depending on the company, the NDAs in place. There's a lot of uh, legal issues with doing so. And we do not, you know, coerce, coax. Uh, if somebody wants to come to us, we will air uh, things because if it, the public has a right to know if we believe it's journalistically meritorious and that's a compelling story that needs to be shared. But we don't, you know, again, to be very clear, we don't go into companies and say, hey, you, uh, what do you know? Uh, if you're an, under NDA violated, come to us with a story. It's got to be organic and they have to come to us. Nice. Yeah. My second question, actually, it's a third question, but uh, I'll ask this one first because it just came to mind. Uh, have you been contacted by any mainstream news outlets regarding the uh, details of the Pfizer story? I mean, like, judging from what they've been publishing so far, there's been a lot of radio silence, and now there's this Forbes article that says the uh, report is wrong, you know, it's trying to debunk it. So, I mean, we'll go to go into that later, but in the meantime, have, have has anyone expressed any kind of interest at all, like, to you guys directly, to talk about the story? No, no one except for Tucker. I commend Tucker for putting the story out two nights in a row and such, and 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 for twenty minutes, by the way, in a full uh, opening segment, which was incredible. But oh, okay. to answer that question, no one has. Uh, mainstream media has not. And the Forbes article I did read was absolutely ridiculous. Uh, they actually, instead of talking about our video directly, they, he they focused on talking about Tucker's coverage of our video to try to disprove our video, which is unbelievable. If you're gonna go and, and fact check or do whatever you want. Talk about our video directly. Don't go and say, well, Tucker said this about the video, therefore the video is bad. It's unbelievable. The journalism they do is about trying to get derivative uh, uh, derivative fact patterns that they can run out. They don't want to go to the source because the source is damning against a narrative that all things are copacetic. Uh, and we are very, very, very you know clear that we will talk to people. James invites mainstream press to headquarters for interviews. Uh, what always is offering more transparency, more clarity. But you know, when Ian, when you were saying that, I was uh, thinking to myself, if I like, if I was typing, I'd be like LOLing, which is the funny that that's now part of the vernacular. Because no, they're doing a full media black. Out. It's really the uh, antithesis of of that mm-hmm. of that point. I mean, you would I, think I, that this story is so big that you know everybody would want to talk about it, given that there's video evidence and now Pfizer's response has been to uh, basically confirm what you guys have been saying uh, without confirming it, right? You know, it's like, oh, tell me what you are without telling me what you are, right? That's what they're doing. You would think that the journalists would just jump on it and be like, okay, let, let's go, because Pfizer just put out a response. And normally, you know, that seems to be the case where there's a hot story, you know, a toxic story, if you will, 
where something like this blows up and then nobody wants to run a story on it until, you know, the company says something and then they're like, okay, let's talk about it because now it seems like the, uh, the veil has been lifted. But even, even then, nobody wants to talk about it except in the context that, oh, you guys are doing not journalism and, and we need to cover for Pfizer, right? As, as we just now saw in the Forbes story. Uh, uh, right. So, uh, Ian, I'll respond to it's that. A, it, it, oh, sorry. No, he's responding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guys, yeah, so, so Matthew, yeah. I'll let you respond. I'll let you respond to Ian's point, and I'll give the mic to Tom. And then right after that, I want to start digging into Pfizer's response and um, directed evolution and gain-of-function research and what the video means to the world, really. So that will be the next topic right after I give the mic to Matthew to respond and Tom to, to ask a question. Go ahead, Matthew. Well, I was going to say, Mario, feel free to, to take it. Yeah, no, so uh, to your point, Ian, what I think is – Actually, you know, this is the interesting thing. Usually at Project Veritas, our mission is let's get uh, the media, let's force the media to cover our story. That's a, a top priority is make the media that doesn't want to cover certain issues, cover the issues because the story was so big. But this is a case that is so unique because of how viral the video was. Then in a way, I'm almost happy that the mainstream media didn't cover it because of the fact that so many people already saw it and know how important the story is. That the media is exposed, and I said this yesterday in another another space, the media is actually exposing itself yep. by not covering the story. The media exactly. is exposing exactly. itself That's by not covering the story. And I'm happy that they actually helped. Uh, they're helping our point to say, here's the corruption inside Big Pharma, and here's the, the here's big tech taking our video down on YouTube for no reason. And or for ridiculous. Have they given reasons. you a reason? And like here, anything reasonable <laughs> with their uh, with their you know their takedown the, notice? So, so they just said, you know, it's uh, medical misinformation that uh, the experts don't agree with. What experts? That was the reason to take our What point. experts? WHO, World Health Organization wow. experts. They, yep, yep. Oh, so they oh. took that down and gave us a strike. We're, we can't post on YouTube for a week. Wow. But again, they're exposing themselves. No one agree. I can't find a single person that agrees that YouTube should have taken that video down. I don't know anyone who says, yes, thank God YouTube did that. Nor do I see, I'm happy the media isn't covering this either. So actually, the fact that we exposed Big Pharma... Is we're actually not only exposing big pharma, we expose big pharma, big tech, and big media all in one with one story. That's what it happened. shows the the power of Twitter. And this might be the only place or the only platform on the internet where you can talk. Well, only large platform where you can talk about the story without fear of censorship. I mean, how how many views has the uh, video had so far? It's like twenty million now, or is it is it higher? 20, over over twenty two million views on just the first video that went on Wednesday night, and the second video of James interviewing. The, the the person has over 10 million views by itself wow. on Twitter. Wow. Well, don't forget by the that way, uh, Google put up that crappy, uh, well, you know, enough sources haven't looked at this yet. The yeah. news is changing. I mean, yeah, it's, it's fast-shifting news, and, and, and you know, the sources yeah, don't work. Just like, just like the media, uh, you know, abrogating their responsibility, Google's job in the that what they've sold our society and their role with public trust, supposedly in good faith, is to just share information. People should be able to search and get information. And now they're being a gatekeeper to information, which creates another uh, antitrust issue, something in violation of the public trust and their supposed expressed raison d'etre. So it, it's it's an overwhelming story. And again, thank God for Tucker and for Elon, because could you imagine Twitter six months ago, how quick we would all be canceled for, for have, bringing this story up? To so, the Matthew, I'm going to jump in. Matthew, before I go give the mic to Tom, I do want to, uh, you know, Mario, I'm not sure if you know this, but we try to keep every panel as balanced as possible. So I do want to start getting some voices that have concerns with the things shared in the video and, and how serious are they? Not concerns, but different opinions. 
and the videos itself. Now, the videos, hard to disagree with the videos. And I think the discussion, I want to move it more to the content of the videos that we've seen and what Jordan said in those uh, um, in those uh, interviews. I think Not we interviews, saw some people dinners. calling, claiming that the video was fake. That was uh, yeah. I think this is we're past. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're past this stage. Nonsense. Pfizer's so Pfizer's response for anyone listening, and this is me trying to be as objective as I can. Pfizer's response. We, we wanted to do have this discussion in this space, but after Pfizer's response, we kind of scraped it all because there's no need for it anymore. Uh, otherwise, Pfizer would have mentioned that in their response. So I'll give the mic to Tom, and then I would like to to Danish. And um, uh, Mr. Mr. Medi as well, Sai Medi, to start talking about the contents of what was, the, the context of what was said, and what it means for for uh, for COVID and and Pfizer's um, processes and Pfizer as a company. But Tom, I'll give you the mic first. But thank you, Mario, and, and hello, everyone. I, I just want to first, you know, on behalf of Judicial Watch, again congratulate our friends over at Project Veritas. Uh, for this basic investigative journalism on this core issue. And I just want to highlight that. This is basic investigative journalism on an issue every media entity should be looking at. There's been significant evidence of dangerous gain-of-function research uh, that could have led to the eruption of the COVID pandemic, and we know subsequent to that that it's going on in laboratories throughout the world, including here in the United States. And the necessary question that rises from those discussions and analysis is, well, how's it working with the vaccines? Are we doing it in concert with vaccine development? And this video answers the question, yes. And the fact that Project Veritas had to engage in undercover journalism to ferret out the information is an indictment of the legacy media that would rather spend its time uh, most of its time reporting gossip out of here, out of here in Washington, D.C. And so what does the video show? It shows a senior Pfizer executive admitting to gain of function research in the least and a desire to engage in more gain of function research. And Pfizer's response uh, is non-responsive and to a degree it is responsive. It validates the, uh, the, the journalism of Project Veritas as exposed by this uh, this doctor, where they confirm that they are doing some type of gain-of-function research uh, related to Paxlovid uh, with respect to the um, uh, vaccine development and the COVID uh, viruses, uh, they use a bunch of gobbledygook uh, to distract from the fact they don't really answer the question one way or another. But, you know, that's not really the response, is it? The response is YouTube took the video down. The response is that um, previously, and this is the response I would be worrying about, rather, is the Judicial Watch exposed, for instance, that Pfizer, it looks like, was collaborating with the FBI to target Project Veritas on a pri- uh, on previous exposure exposés on the uh, vaccine concerns that uh, Pfizer had internally. And, you know, they were trying to get the FBI involved, it looks like, based on the documents we were able to uncover. Uh, and of course, we know separately, Pfizer has relationships with big tech companies to uh, target uh, those who were dissenting and raising questions about the vaccines and other matters related to COVID and trying to get them censored. We know that's happening with Twitter. There's no reason to think it wasn't happening and isn't happening with Facebook and YouTube. And then thirdly, we have the Biden administration. 
which is adamantly opposed to anyone questioning the vaccines and has aggressively and brazenly embraced a censorship regime uh, out of the White House and out of the agencies uh, to target for censorship. So I think the next steps are figuring out why this YouTube video was taken down and Biden administration and Pfizer um, uh, administration, because I think there's a dotted line between the two, um, involvement in suppressing a uh, suppressing of this story. And the other question is, is this unlawful? You know, are they engaged in gain of function research in a way that violates uh, the rules and regulations? And this kind of goes back to the EcoHealth Alliance issue. It's to me, this is all a bunch, this is all fraud. You know, they make promises not to do something and to follow regulations. And when government officials and private entities knowingly engage in fraud to, uh, you know, the, the funding restrictions to do what they want anyway, you know, forget the rules. You know, that raises some significant civil and criminal liabilities. Uh, so Congress has got to get on the ball because, as Matt has noted, you know, people's, you know, our, our lives are at risk from this type of research if it goes south. So, so do we know that if they are doing what is being alleged uh, through the Project Veritas investigation that it would be illegal? So I would I would start with um, – that's a good question. And Dr. Dinesh, uh, you've introduced yourself. Sai, this is the first time we have you on the stage. So maybe it's a good time for you to jump in, Doctor. Um, this is um, first just for the yeah. audience. We're going to kick off the, the segment that I'm really looking forward to is like what it all means. And before doing that, just remember pinned above is a newsletter. If you're not subscribed to it yet, I've just pinned it above. And I'll retweet it on my account. It just gives you summaries of different spaces that we do. And we do spaces pretty much every day. So make sure you subscribe there. And now we're going to kick off the next segment. We do have... Um, another guest that will be coming in a bit later. Um, she's uh, patiently waiting. I'm very grateful for that. And apparently we've got another bombshell to share um, regarding Pfizer um, and Pfizer employees. So we'll do that a bit later. We've got a lot of special guests coming in. But the next step would be um, having doctors explain to us what it all means. And Denise, you can also share your thoughts on the video and any questions you have for Mario and, uh, and yeah. Matthew uh, to have that objective conversation. I think just to get started, I think it was very, very... And if you can get the mic a bit closer, Denise, just a bit closer, please. Oh, man. Uh, hold on. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. In the meantime, while Denise is getting his mic closer, Sai, I'll let you do a quick introduction as well, and then we'll give the mic to Denise to kick it off. Just a quick introduction for now, Sai. Hi. Uh, my name is Sai Medi. I'm an American physician trained in internal medicine and pediatrics, and uh, I've been following this closely uh, since the start, particularly the game of gain-of-function mutation um, research and also how viruses behave when they become endemic and so forth. And um, I'm of the belief that Omicron is the final sort of form of, of, of SARS-CoV-2 and it's reached a stable form. And so that's going to be the basis of what I think is going on uh, with respect to what that gentleman said in the video. Perfect. appreciate it. And would love uh, – so Denise and Sai – uh, one yeah. thing, if you can just keep perfect mic, man, if you can keep it simple for the audience, because a lot of the audience wouldn't understand a lot of the technicalities, what it means as simply as possible, whatever you make a point. Um, but let's start with, with what was said in the video, Dinesh. Yeah, so just wanted to kind of go back to the video and be very, very clear about what was actually said, right? Um, I think uh, we have to be very, very neutral because, as Matthew said, this is really important stuff that needs to be evaluated for what was actually said. Um, and then I want to compare it to the response from Pfizer, which was, in my opinion, 
you know, the speaker right before me said a lot of things that Pfizer is claiming that they said, but actually that's not what Pfizer said. So I wanted to also clarify from a scientific basis of what Pfizer actually said. Um, whether you want to believe them or not is a personal decision. I'm just going to speak to what is actually being said, um, just like with the video. Um, so going back to the video, looking and listening intently, and then also kind of touching base with some of my colleagues that are in this in that side of medicine, uh, specifically infectious diseases. Um, it was very clear what he was referring to was early experiments that actually again, multiple times, he said, we are not currently conducting. We were having a meeting to discuss whether we should, and some people were saying whether it's a good idea or not. I wanted to bring that up, number one. So there was no talk of current investigations in that, current work being done that way. And But he did say, we are doing some experiments. And so sometimes when you're doing some experiments, you have to do experiments beforehand to see whether those experiments would be valuable and some of those experiments could be in silico. In silico experiments are experiments where you're doing running simulations. So we don't know if he was talking about wet lab experiments that were being conducted prior to any gain of function or directed evolution. And I can kind of explain the, the, the overall umbrella. Uh, you know, I actually am not one of those docs that believes that directed evolution is completely separate from gain of function. Um, I actually think gain of function, it depends on the U.S. sort of legal framework versus what people in the bio, I, I've talked, I've spoken with so many docs in the last 24 hours about this. And so, you know, people that are actually much more uh, experts than I am, but I don't think uh, as open to communicating their point of view uh, publicly, uh, uh, not because they don't believe it, but because they're scared of what I get in my DMs. Uh, and so, uh, you know, ultimately, uh Gain-of-function research as a broad thought process. Um, and again, it depends on what you're reading and who you're talking to and whether you're talking about legal or not. But from a very broad uh, approach, it means any experiments that aim to produce a gain of desired function. So again, so if you start looking at that super umbrella term, anything that you do, whether it's selecting for a specific trait, such as making it more infectious or, or in, increasing rates of replication, any of that stuff could be considered gain of function in a very broad sense. Um, and so wanted to bring that up that technically I don't see a significant difference. In fact, gain of function probably sits as an umbrella term under which you have desired, you know, directed evolution. Um, but kind of going back to the video itself, at no point was it said that, hey, we are actively doing experiments. I know the monkey stuff that was being spoken at. That's actually not exactly what they were talking about. And he was referring to, from my understanding, uh, 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 related to actually selection of monkeys, not specifically of the strains. And so they, they didn't do any direct artificial integration of genetic material into the strains themselves. And I wanted to be very, very clear about that. Again, do I think that that's okay? I actually personally, and this is going to be an opinion, I actually don't think that's okay, which is why I would never work at a pharmaceutical company. <laughs> uh, but, but uh, you know, this is for regulatory, uh, the regulatory industry to determine whether that's allowed or not. It's not a personal or a clinician decision. The second thing that I really need to push back at, and I was speaking about this earlier a little, but I think this is a better time, 
when they're talking about what they're doing there, there's two parts. So one, they were very clear that they have done zero gain of function research. Very, very clear, in my opinion, in Pfizer. And again, whether you want to believe them or not is up to you. But I'm going to speak about the Pfizer response. They were very, very clear that they were expressing the spike protein, which means they were getting the spike protein from variants of concern. That means that that variant already was not only out there, it was out there in a high enough level that it was considered a variant of concern. So want to be very clear, they were not creating, they're not admitting in their press release that they're doing gain-of-function research that's leading to more uh, uh, mutants that don't exist out there already. This is just them trying to express the spike protein so that they can make vaccines associated with it. That's what they're claiming. Again, it's your decision as a human being to make that decision whether you believe the pharmaceutical companies. And by the way, just to give you a sense of how much I believe pharmaceutical companies, look at what happened with Biogen and Aduhelm and the regulatory capture that Jim was referring to earlier. Trust me, I am not a complete believer at all times, but I want to see clearly to what, what's being said. The last thing about Paxlovid, I have to speak to this. So with Paxlovid, what they're referring to is actually something you need to do to get approved by the FDA. So it's really easy to read certain words and get super scared. But ultimately, what they're talking about is that they were doing in vitro experiments, which means experiments in a petri dish, uh, to identify whether giving a, uh, a so when you give a uh, an inappropriate dose of a virus, especially an antiviral, especially an antiviral that affects replication like Paxlovid does, you can increase mutagenesis. And in fact, mutagenesis, just to be sorry, I need to be more clear. So with mutagenesis, what we're talking about is that you can actually make more mutations because you're giving an ineffective dose. This is a really, really bad analog, but it's similar in some senses to some of the studies that you, you'll see that occurred with, uh, with other antivirals like 20 years ago. Um, so, so just wanted to kind of bring up that what they're doing is not quote unquote gain of function research. What they're doing is they're looking to see whether certain doses of giving Paxlovid can lead to a mutation, uh, a, a, a antiviral resistance strain. And by the way, they're required by the FDA to do that test because you wouldn't want people out in the world getting an antiviral that actually made the virus more resistant. So I, I wanted to make sure that that was very clear. That's what they were actually referring to in their statement. Now, again, it's a personal decision to determine what you think they're trying to say. And uh, I think the video uh, was concerning for me personally as a human, forget about being a doctor. I think it warrants further evaluation. I wish we could see the full video that was unedited. I think that would be really, really helpful for us to get a much better sense of it. And my opinion, and now it's again, my opinion is that we need to do, this is, I, I heard, uh, and you know, uh, Eric Weinstein, I'm not always a big fan of everything he says, but he did say something really important about this, which is this has now, mar X has now marked the spot. It's time to start digging. I don't think we stop here. I think we start here. Yeah, so, so Anna, I want you to jump in on this, and then, Tom, I'll get you right after, if that's okay. Anna? Anna, are you with us? 
Okay, oh, sorry, yes. it's all yours. No, 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 no. Oh, wait. Okay, yeah, there she is. Sorry, I couldn't get the unmute button. Um, thank you for sharing that, Doc. I just have a quick question because in their own response today, I was reading, it says, most of this work is conducted using computer simulations or mutations of the main protease, a non-infectious part of the virus. Knowing a little bit of biology because I was a bio major, I was going to go to medical school a long time ago, um, protease is actually the enzyme that allows the virus to replicate. So isn't that a yeah. big kind of dangerous and obviously they're 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 actually saying that they are thinking about doing it and i understand that they want to also follow the policies of the fda but mm-hmm. isn't that a bit hypocritical because it does mm-hmm. affect the, the so, so the the when you are affecting so what's really scary and if i was going to say there's one part that's like a little bit iffy for me it's actually in the earlier part where they're talking about the fact that they're expressing the spike protein from variants of concern because you're actually affecting the part of the virus that attaches and can increase infectiousness of a disease. In terms of replication, uh, you know, those types of studies are actually done all the time. They are not unusual things to do, especially, in fact, they're required by the FDA to do that to evaluate whether if a mutation occurred in the protease, uh, in hip, uh, you know, in the protease uh, enzyme, how would it affect the inhibitor and would it lead to a more mutagenic? So what I mean by that is if there is, uh, so when you're using an inhibitor of replication, right? And that inhibitor of replication is trying to inhibit a specific protein. If that protein mutates, it can lead to a virus that could actually spit out way more mutants. Uh, It's hard to explain in any other way than what I just said. So if you have a protease inhibitor, that leads to a protease that is more mutagenic, which means it can spit up more mutations overall in the in the virus itself. That can be quite scary, and so I think what they, the FDA requires these protease inhibitors to not lead to that behavior. Hey, uh, can I jump in real quick? I got a I got a, uh, a jet here. Um, is that okay, Mario? Yeah, yeah please go ahead. Okay, yeah, um, uh, just a quick uh, five points. I, I posted uh, to the room. Uh, my Substack article, it refers to Dr. Malone's article for his reaction. And, you know, I, I think it's just important to, to air everybody's opinions. Uh, Malone looked at that press release and he said, boy, it, it was a way, it, it, it was basically wordsmithing by lawyers to not deny anything that was in that video, but look like it was denying it. So I'd encourage everyone to take, check out uh, Malone's Substack, which is pointed to uh, in the article that I posted. The second thing is that nobody from Pfizer is in this room. Isn't that interesting that they don't have anybody here to defend themselves? Uh, the third thing is that um, he said he lied in the in the, the second video. And that's, I've talked to everybody, no, I've talked to everybody, I've talked to a bunch of people and asked, hey, could you concoct something like that on the fly? And they said there's no way that he could have made this stuff up. So he basically was lying about lying. And if he really did lie, then he just should have said uh, to James, hey, I lied. But he shouldn't have gotten upset. And the fact that he got super upset about this, and rather than just saying, hey, I lied, that's got to be pretty concerning. And the final thing is, um, number point number five, and then I got to go, which is, there is more on the tape that we haven't heard. I know, I know there's more on the tape, and Veritas knows there's more on the tape. And that part is, very, I think, 
Some people would think that that part that we haven't heard yet is even more concerning than the, the part we've heard. So uh, hopefully well, Marty, Veritas, can, Veritas will release we, that in the future. Can I ask you a question uh, just as a quick follow-up? I mean, a yeah. lot of people did seem to have expressed concerns about the editing. And I'm just curious, would you consider, would uh, Project Veritas consider um, releasing the unedited version of the tape? I can answer that. So this is exactly what we I discussed yesterday in another space. And someone was pressing that exact point of <clears throat> of launching, of putting out the whole video. By the way, there was at least two to three meetings here, right? Which means you're going to have at least two to three hours worth of raw footage. My question that I asked anybody who thinks that we need to put out the whole tape is, has anyone ever asked 60 Minutes to put out raw unedited footage of the interviews? Maybe they, they should. Maybe they yeah, should. exactly. Maybe but they should. They would never. Yeah, in, look. In this case, in this case, there, there's a key thing, and and I can talk to the people at Veritas uh, offline on this. Uh, there is a very concerning part, and it's not that long in the video that was not shown. But 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 here's 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 the other point. Beyond the agreement, maybe they should is journalists. The re- why do you think there are editors in newsrooms? Like news, there's a managing editor, there's a news editor. The whole point of journalism is to edit material so that it can be presented in a concise way to the public. Every single media outlet edits their, their, their material, be it written material. Like, for example, if Project Veritas, whenever Pro- New York Times reaches out to Project Veritas for comment on the story that they're doing, Anna knows this, and we provide comment with three, four paragraphs worth of explanations as to what we did, how many sentences does New York Times include? Maybe one. Maybe they'll include three words of our full statement in their article. So every single outlet edits to their own discretion of what is newsworthy or not. I can tell so you that Mark, everything that we put out was the newsworthy portion of the story. Absolutely. Yeah, so but, Mark, but my, only, my only there's one, one little part that is very newsworthy that I got from a very credible source that Project Veritas has not talked about. It's not what? that long. I I I have no idea. Okay. Personally, I don't know what this what that is. I have no so, idea what that is. So Mario, want- my only pushback is if it, if this truly is as expansive. And again, I have to say I, I've watched it now uh, many many times. And and I think if you guys did, re- I personally think that it's important for scientists and the the you know uh, people that are actually taking care of patients. To, to see this, I actually do think it's important because I think it's a starting of a conversation. So saying so that, I can tell you. So, I hold can on, tell on, you Mar- right Mar- now. I'm, I'm just going to ask a simple question, which is why not reduce the skepticism? Because the difference here is you don't have a second corroborating uh, piece of evidence. This is your main evidence. Why not open it up and completely squash all of the skeptics? And and make I'm 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 saying it because I think it will have an impact, and I think that ultimately no one will worry about the length of the second release, and I think it will help make the case a little bit stronger. So I completely disagree, and I respectfully disagree with the with the with the assessment that this will reduce skepticism because what would happen? There's a few things that would happen if we release the raw unedited footage. Number one you'd be seeing a lot of conversation between how's the wine tonight? How do you like the spaghetti? So I don't think the public really needs to see that information. It's not newsworthy, number one, right? So the other aspect is the precedent that you're setting as journalists. If we release this uh, tape now, 
the four, six hours, whatever it might be. Why, what, what makes you think that other times we release videos, everyone's going to say, I need the raw unedited footage right now. So no one does that. You're setting yourself a precedent that no journalists ever do. And we're, and Project Veritas most certainly won't be pressured into doing what, what the media traditional behavior of editing and, and reviewing newsworthy material does. Right. And the other, and here's the other part. If we do release a six hour video, who's here to, who can tell me for sure that other people won't come and say, I don't believe it that it, it was only six hours. How do I know it wasn't nine hours? How do I know it wasn't 15 hours? Where's the other 18 hours of this? So actually, the skepticism will be there because there's always going to be people who say we actually didn't release the whole thing. It's still, it, how do we know that you released yeah. 20 hours, 50 hours, 100 hours, 300 hours? How do we know? So, I don't know. And there's, and there's legal, and there's legal issues to doing that too. You, you know, yeah, but, you're, but look, I, hey, hey, I'm not, I'm not asking for the whole thing. You know, the whole thing might be nice, but I'm just asking for there. There's another relevant part that was completely glossed over. Uh, it's probably three or four minutes worth of stuff, but it's very important uh, to a lot of people. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk to James uh, O'Keefe offline here, so I don't reveal any you know confidential secrets because maybe he's yeah. Well, to, I mean, if, if you want to it, 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 as well, uh, I will give you you know a hearing where we can discuss, and I can bring it in front of James as well. There's this expectation. Uh, look, there was this information that was put out that the left doesn't like. And so they cut up with new standards of, of journalism that would only apply to Project Veritas. It wouldn't be, be left out of the room if you asked other journalists to do it. And, and, uh, here we have startling confirmation and with all due respect to the doctor, uh, they do confirm gain-of-function research. And I'm going to quote Pfizer. First of all, in the video, he says they were planning to do it. And then secondly, oh, he suggests that... Did it. That's not the same thing. Hold on a second. He says they were planning to do it. And then later in the video, he says they were doing it. And the only they question about that. how they're doing it they did is not what... Say Oh, hold I'm on, well, Doctor Dinesh, no, Let him, let him finish, man. I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you respond. And the I'll only question about how they're doing it is whether they're doing it via uh, computer simulation, or you know what sort of biological uh, mutation process they're pushing through. Pfizer confirms gain of function in both areas, and I'm going to read the relevant language as opposed to characterizing it, which is what I think we're getting a lot of, as opposed to dealing with what actually is said. Working with collaborators, we have conducted research where the original SARS-CoV-2 virus has been used to express the spike protein from new variants of concern. That means they are admitting to we have the original virus and we're messing with it to change its spike protein production to match new variants, meaning they're changing the function in certain respects to make it in the case of the new variants we now know are more transmissible. Secondly, in the second part where they talk about this studies related to Paxlovid, uh, the doctors write in that they allege that the FDA requires testing on the viruses to see if there are mutations, but they have to, but that's not the issue. The issue is what viruses are they testing? And here they admit in a limited number of cases when a full virus does not contain any known gain-of-function mutations, such virus may be engineered 
to enable the assessment of antiviral activity in cells. So what they do is they have a virus that they can't really use, and they have to increase the gain of function, apply a gain of function technique in order to make it usable for the tests they say they're required to conduct for FDA approval. This is straightforward admissions of gain of function research, and we can talk around it. But not talking around it. It's just honest, honest discourse. This but is how, not, is it, is, how is it? How is it? So, how? What, Tom, I'm going to respond. Let's, what let's, I'm describing is game function research. I think you just try to like talk. Yeah, let's just give Danisha a chance to respond just yeah, to the science. I, I mean, I, it's great to go through this filibustering of 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 clearly not what it was saying. So, so again, I think it's completely fair for people to be skeptical of what these people are saying. I understand that, and as I said, if you. If anybody wants to study, and I'm going to now, this is just my disclaimer very quickly. If you want to study how FDA is incredibly corrupt in certain instances, look up what happened with Biogen and Aduhelm. Well, we, it's actually currently under investigation. So I hope that makes it very clear that I'm trying to be very neutral here. Specifically, when it comes to Pfizer and this specific situation, and Tom kind of uh, you know blanket, blanketed multiple points, I'm only going to try to be able to attack a few of them. Uh, but very, very clearly, doing simulations is not considered gain-of-function research. That's one. <laughs> it, it literally is not. Uh, number two, they said expressing the protein, not... Uh, and so I don't know why you didn't use the word express. I think it's very, very obviously why you didn't use that, because it didn't fit the narrative. And by the way, to keep making... I wrote it. I, I, I just quoted it. Why are you saying I didn't use that word? I quoted it from the press release. It literally says the word express. Did anybody hear him say the word express? I mean, I, I don't understand why I was waiting for you to say that word. So uh, the, the third thing is what they're doing with Paxlovid is they're trying to see if it leads to mutations. And when you were talking about in those select cases, what they're, what they're referring to is you can actually engineer a, uh, a, a cell to express or a virus to express different markers that tell you whether replication has changed. That is what they're referring to. It's a very common technique that's used and required by the FDA. Now, I know that there's no way that normal, regular people off the street can know that, but it's easy to build narratives that fit. You don't think that their legal counsel and their risk management sat there and talked through every single word? I'm just trying to tell you, you think that they're going to go out there and even say that, even if they're doing it? So my point to you is very, very clear. And not just you, Tom. This is just in general. In their statement, there is not only no admission of -of gain-of-function research, it is clear that they were, in my opinion, very clear that what they're doing is they are doing exactly what they're supposed to do for Paxlovid. So that Paxlovid portion for me, and I think for any clinician, is completely within the the normal procedure of what people do for that. I think what they were talking about with variants of concern is that what they were talking about is they're expressing the spike protein from variants of concern. That is what they're doing. So, so Tom, I do want to let, I want to let you jump in here and reply very quickly, and then I got to go to Eric if you have a reply. This this is, and I'm not saying the doctor's playing a game here, but this is kind of goes through the debate. The the medical establishment has created a definition of gain of function research to essentially uh, it's kind of like the critical race theory debate. You describe what critical race theory is and they say, well, that's not critical race theory. So in this case, I'm describing what is clear, readily apparent, uh, admittedly to a layman, 
and as confirmed by folks like Dr. Malone, uh, express description of gain of function research. And I, I, I don't think the doctor addresses the points here. You, they manipulate uh, the original COVID to, uh, to have it change to express spike proteins that change its function. And then they also, in order to get a virus that they can test the Paxlovid on, they change, they mutate the other virus at issue to get a virus that's better uh, suited for this. And so that's gain of function times two. And we can talk around it. Uh, they're never going to admit to gain of function in the, in, in, in the common sense of the word, uh, but they are in the technical sense of it. And, and, you know, and, I'm a layman, but many experts, with all due respect to the doctor, would strongly dispute his analysis of the plain language of this document. And I encourage all of the viewers and listeners on this broadcast to go and look at the what this gentleman said and what the what uh, Pfizer said in response. And they're going to see, oh boy, there's there there, and this needs more serious investigation by federal and congressional authorities to uh, figure out what's up and down here. So, so, so I do want to bring in... Eric, one, yeah, one yeah, I'll give, you, I'll give you 30 seconds, I, Dr. Dinesh, and then... Uh, so, so I 30 seconds. I the last that. point that Tom made is something that I actually do agree with. I think we should be doing more investigation. As I said earlier, I actually do think that this is the beginning of the conversation, not the end of it. I actually think that there's more there there than what we have learned to date. That's what my point is. So I wanted to clarify that I'm not saying that this is a nothing burger. I'm saying that there's something that needs further investigation. This, what has currently been disclosed is just, you know, a a, a very, to me, it's not as uh, clear cut that there is some nefarious thing going on. I think they were, we would have to figure out more. Okay, thank you, Dr. Nanish. Eric, you're the Digital Communications Director for Project Veritas. Been hosting some very badass spaces here over the past few days. And uh, I want your feedback on everything you've heard so far and give an overview of the situation as well. Eric? Hey, guys, can I jump in here real quick? Well, can I not hear Eric, or is it everybody can't hear No, Eric? I can't hear him either. He seems unmuted, but uh, there's no sound. So might have to kick him off and bring him back up. If, if... Yeah, I, d- I don't hear him. Okay. Mario... Right, we're going to drop you and bring you back up, Eric. Uh, in the yeah, meantime, you... Sai, jump in. Yeah, hi. Oh. I, so I'm Sai Medi. I'm an uh, American physician here. And I was following this uh, kind of exchange with Dr. Dinesh, and uh, I really think that getting bogged down in the minutia of is he talking about actual gain-of-function research or in silica research versus is this a Paxlovid protease inhibitor research that's required by the FDA versus should Veritas release the, you know, the entire video? I don't think these things miss the point. I really do. Because, I mean, just going back to what directed evolution can mean in an endemic virus. So when viruses reach endemicity, they basically reach a happy sort of equilibrium with the host. They're not as virulent their goal at this point is to simply go in there, infect the host, and get out of there. In fact, they actually have loss of function because their main point is not really to cause any kind of derangement, but just to replicate and get out of there. And so in order to direct the evolution of an endemic virus, it's akin to saying, we're going to direct what the cold virus is going to do in 10 years. We're going to direct what the influenza is going to do in 10 years. Well, not much, really. I mean, it's going to stay more or less the same. There may be some small differences. Some years may be worse than others, but 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, I really don't know what this accomplishes um, just based on what I've you know, heard in the video. Now, when uh, Dr. Denise brings up uh, in silica, that makes a lot more sense to me because if I were Pfizer and I wanted to, quote unquote, make a new vaccine and I wanted to do it in a way that seems to be ahead of the variants somehow, I'd probably run a simulation. I'd run the simulation, find the epitope. Epitopes means the, the variant of the spike protein. Try to find out, predict the, try to predict which one's going to, uh, which direction the virus is mutating, and then release a you know, mRNA vaccine ahead of that, knowing full well it's not going to be that much different. It's more of a marketing scheme, you know, more than anything. That being said, though, if there's a sub 1% chance that they are actually looking at true gain-of-function research, you know, the minutiae around the exact legal definition notwithstanding, and this guy worked at Pfizer, then we absolutely have to dig. I mean, the implications are so vast and so dangerous. Can you that can, can you explain? You can, sorry, can you explain why are the what do you mean by the, when you say implications are so vast and so dangerous? Well, I mean, <laughs> if you're going to take a, a virus and try to uh, introduce new mutations such that it is more infective. Uh, achieve some kind of immune escape or tinker with it, recombinate it uh, with our other viruses, then you could have another pandemic on your hands. You know, And uh, I am of the belief that there's lots of evidence, particularly with the fear, fear and cleavage site, the lack of intermediate host with the original SARS-CoV-2 virus that I think it came from the lab. I think that's a, that should be the default position until you know they produce an intermediate host or trace it back effectively. So absolutely. I mean, if there's even a sub 1% chance that they're doing this, which I don't believe they're but, doing. But because... isn't it isn't it legal outside the U.S.? Yes, that's what I was I was about to say that. So Pfizer opening up a biosafety three four level lab stateside and going through the regulatory hurdles to do this would be such a big risk for them that more often than not they would outsource this, which is what happened with Dasik. Uh, they outsourced it to Wuhan, and you know uh, the NIH and NIAID didn't want to kind of do this on their own soil. So they So my it, question. That's very so common. my question, Sai, if if it's if it's not legal in the U.S. and you're saying that if they're doing gain of function, this is very serious, very dangerous. But gain of function is already happening in other countries. So why is it so such an important development? If the same and so dangerous, if the same thing is already happening in other countries. I'm not talking from a legal perspective. Well, be... I'm talking from a, from a danger perspective. I see Eric back on stage. I'll give Eric the mic right after. Yeah, so I'll let you answer that question quickly, Sai, and then we'll go to Eric. Hey, hey guys. Uh, Eric, actually, I'll let you go. I'll let you go now. Yeah, I'll let you go now because I know it's been, you've been glitching in and out. And then, Sai, I want to get back to that question. Good to have you, Eric. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, uh, I, I'll go back, you know, I, I, just to take us back a little bit. I wanted to comment on what Tom Fitnett said. I think it's a great point. You know, they, we talk about the language that, that these, uh, they, these people are using. Um, and we released a story about a week ago now in, down in Georgia. And, uh, you know, this guise of diversity, equity, inclusion is actually code for critical race theory. Um, you know, I think that that's exactly what we're looking at here with this idea of directed evolution versus gain of function research. So, you know, I think that Tom uh, Fitton hit the nail on the head there. And, um, you know, I wanted to, you know, obviously I, I run a lot of the, uh, the online uh, digital presence of Project Veritas, and I just wanted to speak a little bit about to the virality of the story and, and what we've been seeing. And I can, I can absolutely say that um, this Elon Musk 2.0 Twitter um, space that we're in right now and, and the ability to share this information is, is a godsend for us. 
Um, many of you that are listening in have been a part of the distribution by proxy campaigns that we've been doing over the last 18 months when we were suspended from Twitter. And uh, now that we're, now that we're back, I, I see a new frontier for Project Veritas. Um, this is by far the the biggest video series that we've done in Project Veritas history. And you know, throughout Project Veritas history, we've seen congressional hearings, we've seen you know all sorts of legislative impact. So I'm excited to see what's going to happen here. I think that every single person listening here sharing these videos is instrumental in getting this information out there to the public. So, um, you know, I'm happy to answer any questions anybody has on, on the, on the side of what we've seen online. I don't want to get into any of the, uh, scientific specifics, but, um, you know, I'm here for a few minutes. Um, yeah, I appreciate it. So, Eric, uh, I, I've got the first question. I'll give it to Nick and Catherine for other questions before we get back to gain-of-function research. Uh, Eric, the uh, and I've asked this question to Matthew and Mario, and they've been very generous with their answer. Um, what are your thoughts on Pfizer's response so far? And second, uh, is there other things behind the scenes that you haven't shared, whether Pfizer, action taken by Pfizer or insider information you've received from Pfizer? Anything else you could share about developments since your space yesterday, I think it was? Yeah, sure. I can, I can speak to that a little bit. You know, obviously I, I think Mario and Matt have probably told everybody today and I know James did yesterday. Um, we've been reached out to by, by several people at Pfizer, to be quite frank. Um, you know, we've got several people that are feeding us information from there. Uh, we encourage others who are out there, uh, to reach out to us, Veritas tips at protonmail.com. Uh, you can also find us securely on signal, uh, 914-653-3110. Um, you know, our, our tip lines are monitored 24 seven. So, so reach out to us, let us know, um, what you're seeing. If you've got anything that can contribute to this, you know, we're always looking for it. But as far as Pfizer's response, I, I think my biggest takeaway is the fact that there, this is a $245 billion market cap company. I mean, this is a massive organization. The resources that they have are unbelievable and uh they couldn't even name project veritas in their statement i mean little old project veritas 20 million dollar a year project veritas the 501c3 from Ameridec, new york i mean they couldn't even name us i mean that that is the most telling thing to me so you know i've been with james o'keefe for going on seven years now and this is probably the the wildest thing i've ever been a part of and uh I, I think that they're, um, you know, they've dug themselves a little hole here. So we're going to, we're going to see how this plays out over the next couple of weeks and uh, we'll keep everybody tuned, but you know, uh, I, I can definitely say that several people within Pfizer, within the government, you know, across many industries, to be quite honest, are, are reaching out to us all the time. So the, you know, what, what is, what is going to happen is going to be pretty incredible. So, Eric, are you concerned about any of the legal action that might be brought? That's a, that's a question from Ian, who so, was on stage earlier. Yeah. Um, you know, Project Veritas, uh, you know, I, I think most people know that we, uh, we face some pretty unique legal challenges with what it is that we do. Uh, I, I'm obviously not a lawyer. I don't want to speak too much to, um, you know, our legal theory or anything like that, but um, we don't back down to anything. We stand by our reporting. Um, whatever Pfizer wants to bring our way, we, we will fight tooth and nail. And, uh, 
you know, bring it on. There's a lot of, uh, you know, there's obviously there have been a lot of accusations or curiosity or whatnot. Uh, there's obviously a lot of people who support Project Spiritas and, and the work that you do, but also a lot of people who are incredibly skeptical. And, you know, when you go to a Wikipedia page, for example, I'm sure you've seen your own Wikipedia page and they say, you know, um, deceptive editing practices and words like that. Why do you think Project Veritas in particular has been, you know, has gotten that level of pushback and, and kind of just trust because from what i've heard in the past you, you say that you know any kind of lawsuit or accusation that's been lodged at you you've been able to win but this is kind of how it's represented there's a, a, a great level of skepticism uh, what's kind of your I, thoughts I, on that <laughs> you know i i think that that's great and that's something that we talk about a lot at project veritas you know these arbiters of of what your wikipedia page is, I mean, that's, you know, if, if you go onto Google right now and you type in anything, I don't care if it's Pepsi or if it's a, you know, an individual person, whatever it is, uh, the first thing that you're going to see, the first result is going to be the Wikipedia page. So that, that, that applies to us too. It's a very real thing that we, um, that we want to counter. Uh, but unfortunately with Wikipedia, it's, it's a community that's moderated by, uh, these editors who have been appointed, you know, throughout the years, you know, they've built up reputations, quote unquote, uh, in that space. And, you know, unfortunately, we, you know, we see that on, on you know, just like any other digital uh, presence these days, uh, this happens to have, you know, what, what is a perceived left, uh, left wing bias, um, you know, whatever that is. And that's funny because Project Veritas uh, we aren't left or right wing. <laughs> We're, you know, but you're perceived as, as for the right wing, right? Um, sure. <laughs> what What is right wing these days? Um, is the truth right wing? Is exposing Pfizer mutating viruses right wing? I mean, if these are inherently right wing uh, positions, I guess that, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't want to speak on behalf of Project Veritas, but I mean, I guess that that's a good thing, um, you know, because, it's it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable that these types of topics are partisan. Um, that's my view. Wikipedia, or as a as an entity itself, crowdsources, and it's become a form of activism uh, from certain political cohorts to attack their enemies through the editing process of Wikipedia with the little safeguards that that has, and who's just as, as disgusted as we are about that, is Larry Sanger, who's vocally uh, disgusted about what Wikipedia's become in that form of activism. I think we all remember, you know, the way they've been able to hijack Rick Santorum's account numerous times and put in things just that are filled with invective. It's not, you know, an actual uh, dictionary encyclopedic type entry. Uh, Larry Sanger co-founded Wikipedia with Jimmy Wales, and he's been vocal about the same issue. Yeah, I mean, there has been a lot of uh, criticism of Wikipedia. I think it started, I think I was like a donor to Wikipedia. And then <laughs> I, I, I do see a lot of the issues around that. But um, but I think there is the sense of like, because there is a sense of uh, partisanship, at, whether that's true or not, that a lot of people become skeptical. So as you mentioned, Eric, you know, Pfizer didn't name uh, Project Veritas in the press release. And had you been, you know, maybe the New York Times or something like that, they probably probably would have. So do you think that stands in the way of sort of the coverage being taken as, I guess, seriously by, you know, the mainstream, for lack of a better word? 
Um, sorry, Catherine. I think Eric just had a, he had another technical issue. He had to drop oh, no. and rejoin again. But can you repeat the question? I'll, I'll try to answer for him. Can you, can you repeat that again? Sure. So the question was basically because he mentioned that, you know, Project Veritas wasn't mentioned by Pfizer in the press release. And, you know, it's clear, obviously they wouldn't. But but I think that if it was, say, coming from The New York Times or, or an entity like that, it maybe would have played it would have been different. And also there would have been different co- coverage. But because Project Veritas is seen as partisan, whether that's true or not, um, there, it's more divisive, there's less trust, and therefore it doesn't get that same mainstream coverage. And that's kind of a hindrance, I suppose. Um, yeah. And there's less trust, I, I guess. So I am of the belief that the reason that Project Veritas doesn't get mentioned by name isn't because uh, we're not a trusted source, in their opinion, is that they actually want to keep attention away from us specifically. They don't, you know, they, they're responding to a so-called video in that press release, right? So they don't mention us by name because if they did, it would incentivize more people to go and say, what is Project Veritas? I'm going to go on their website. I'm going to go on their Twitter page. And then they're going to watch the video for themselves and make their own conclusions. So I think- Mario, why would they release anything at all? That's a, that's a good question. I think, I think uh, for, so I can go back to an, an example where we exposed Pfizer in 2021 uh, we got undercover video there of their person saying, actually, um, natural immunity is better than the vaccine. At the time, by the way, don't forget in 2021, it was not only controversial, but unacceptable to say that natural immunity was better than the vaccine. And we got a Pfizer scientist saying that. We published that. Video went viral. Pfizer never responded. Uh, we got uh, Melissa, who was here on earlier, who was a Pfizer whistleblower, was showing how Pfizer uh, emails between executives saying, we don't want the public to know how our vaccines, you know, there's, there might be some fetal cells in the, in the cell line of the, of the, of the produ- in the production of the vaccines. We don't want the public knowing that, right? Let's keep that as much out of the public eye as possible. So that was an e- leaked email where, again, Pfizer didn't respond. I think the reason they responded to this case was that because this video uh, from this week was just about five or ten times more viral than those videos. And and big tech, yes, came into at the time back then. Uh, Instagram took down all of our videos of Pfizer. YouTube did not, but Twitter took it down back in the day. Now that Twitter has changed hands, and Elon Musk actually allows for the truth and for debate to take place on this platform, and has allowed the video to stay on where that was not the case in the past. I think it forced Pfizer's hand to have to respond where they uh, would would have preferred not to. Could it be because it seems- they have definitive? Sorry, what? Sorry, I'm I'm just and I'll stop. No, after. go ahead. Could it be? Could it be because, uh, you know, in the other, and I actually uh, think that that was a very important, uh, I remember watching that video about uh, natural immunity. I think, you know, could it be that they had more de- a more definitive statement that they could have made about this one, which is why they were willing to go out on a limb and just squash sort of all conversation around this, that they are not doing gain-of-function research and they're not doing uh, any, you know, and they could actually come out. and Because remember, for them to now put that in writing, right, uh, now, inve- they know investigations are going to happen. They know the house has flipped. They know all of this is going to happen. Uh, so perhaps they were willing to come. I'm just giving a, a counterpoint just to make this yep. a little bit more balanced. Uh, yep. That they were able to say very definitively that they were not doing what people are claiming they were doing. No, I I, I understand that for sure. But my, my question to Pfizer, and you know, even I, it can be up for discussion as well, is why did it take them 48 hours? If it's that easy to say, we don't do gain of function, period. Why couldn't they have said that on Thursday morning 
within 12 hours of us releasing the video or even Thursday night? Why was this released on a Friday night on a Friday dump, right? Like the usual, let's, let's make sure that news, the news cycle is over by the time that we put this out. Uh, it would, wouldn't it have been easier. I mean, I guess, you know, I don't know what the PR strategy and experts. They made it it the, the easiest answer is that, uh, they were waiting to see if it got any traction. I agree. I agree and, with that. And, and it happened, and it did, so they had to respond. They were hoping to get exactly. back. Exactly. No response. Exactly. Exactly. So what, what's, what my 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 uh, point of view with media, because I'm a media person at Project Veritas, is not don't only look at what they're saying in pu- or to the public. Look at what they're not saying and look at their timing and look at when they say it, why they say it, and how long is their statement. All these factors matter in PR. All these factors matter in media. They could have given us a one-sentence response. They decided to put it on, bury it on their website and write a whole essay about the story, right? And not mention us by name and use all these scientific complicated terms that a lot of people don't understand. I was, I had to reread that thing three times to see if I caught everything that they were saying to make sure that I wasn't missing something because they were using all these technical terms and going on these tangent conversations that I didn't even think were completely relevant to the video that we put out. So it's it's all of these factors matter, and to you know to the naked eye, it might be difficult for a lot of people to to catch these things. And you know, I think the uh, and I in my experience, the more complex and more uh, you know the longer and more complex the response is, uh, especially if it's been forty eight hours since the the story broke, the more the higher the chance that they're doing this because they're trying to confuse and uh, distract the audience from what the video actually does tell us. Sorry, Mario, so, so, I gotta push back a little for a second. I'm sorry. They said very definitively the first sentence, the first paragraph. So I, I understand that they had jargon in there, but they have to say that last part about Paxlovid because that is something that is required regulatorily. And so I, I, I wanted to push back that no, they were I'm pretty not. clear. There was no jargon there. They said definite. And again, whether you want to believe it or not is another story, but they in there after spending 48 hours with their lawyers, their crisis managers, their risk managers, and everybody else that is getting paid, uh, they they said definitively in the first paragraph, we are not doing gain of function research. That's what Pfizer said. Uh, not I'm saying the royal we. I definitely, if if I'm getting, by the way, just wanted to respond to a few people that are DMing me. If I'm getting paid by Pfizer, they have the wrong fucking address. I mean the press the yeah. press release speaks for itself. You know. Uh, you know, Fauci's repeatedly testified uh, that they weren't engaged in gain-of-function research, and it was obvious when you look at the description of the activity, it is gain-of-function research. It's not new uh, for this area of the medical establishment to say they're not doing something while admitting very much so and hoping that the jargon confuses people that the, uh, uh, to distract from the fact they actually are doing it. And I would just highlight, you know, bas- you know Judicial Watch has been battling the FDA and pharmaceutical companies, you know, for as long as I've been there, 24, 25 years. And one of the things I've noticed that when it comes to political drugs, right, and this vaccine is a political drug, HPV was a political drug, RU486 is a political drug, uh, they are willing to lie and dissemble in order to justify uh, the need for and and to defend the drug from critics. And so uh, you know, that's my experience, and I'm seeing this here with Pfizer. Uh, you had an admission by their directors, a voluntary utterance, right, 
uh, that they were engaged, wanted to engage in this research and likely were engaged in the research. And I think I'm fairly characterizing it. Pfizer came out and described what seems to be to most uh, reasonable expert observers gain of function research. And I, I think the, the, the kind of the media inability to shoot this story down, I think is, is, is uh, quite notable here too. Usually, uh, the leverage point becomes quickly apparent and they haven't been able to find one yet. And I tell you what this gamesmanship is, it going to stop Congress? Uh, and certainly, uh, the next administration, if it's, if it's run by someone who's committed to the truth, um, it's, it's, I hope it doesn't stop the agencies from getting to the, getting to the bottom of this. And just one more point. It's not just Pfizer we should be worried about. Your judicial watch has obtained other documents showing disastrous, um, activities in bio labs throughout the United States. They're not supposed to be engaged in gain of function. They're doing it. The safety mechanisms are, are failing by just because it's human beings running it. Uh, we're whistling past the graveyard on this issue. So we've got to broaden this debate. There are a lot of folks in the medical establishment who like gain of function. They want to be able to do it. They think of ways to avoid the regulations on it. It's not illegal. It's controlled. And they don't even like the controls. Uh, we're risking humanity. We're risking humanity as we kowtow to the Fauci operators that uh, embrace gain of function as a core tenet of their religion. So, so Dr. Lynn, I'm going to work you here in just a second, but I I do want to bring in Benny. Uh, Benny, welcome to the panel. You're the host of the Benny Report on Newsmax, and we'd love just your overall opinion on the entire investigation and conversation that you've heard so far. Yo, what's up, guys? Uh, Okay, so a couple things. Um, To quote my favorite Supreme Court justice, I'm not a biologist. Okay. So I want to begin by saying that um, I, I do know what a woman is, but not a medical professional. And there's probably way better people, way more qualified people to speak than me. But I do have a couple of questions for Pfizer and particularly this bit of uh, wordsmithing. And uh, what would be the right way to say this? Uh, jargonese, word salad. Like, my rule is if you can't explain it to a 14-year-old, then you shouldn't be putting it out, right? So this seems neat. Like, they took 48 hours to needlessly be obscuring what they are doing and to bury it into jargon that's just going to make 98% of the people glaze over, you know, as soon as they look at that press release. So they say, we don't do to gain a function, and then they go on to describe literal gain of function. And if they cannot make the delineation between what is gain of function and what they're doing, if they can't explain that to a 14-year-old, then you've already lost the conversation. Because I can, right? So I, like, I can go through and describe to you how we got COVID-19 in the first place, right? You can just use Occam's razor. John Stewart's smart enough to figure this out. John Stewart says if, there, if, there's a, uh, if there's a chocolatey avalanche in Hershey, Pennsylvania, people are probably going to blame the chocolate factory, right? So, you know, they, they take horseshoe bats, which are found exclusively in China, and they take the coronavirus that naturally exists in the reservoirs of those horseshoe bats. They take it out of the bat. They add a spike protein so that it can uh, exchange with a human body, and then that makes it transmissible to humans. 
Now, even I, who, again, you know, uh, uh, quoting Katanji Brown-Jackson, not a biologist, uh, I can figure that out. And so when Pfizer releases a press release that says, hey, we don't do gain of function, but by the way, we also just remove spike proteins from certain deadly viruses, and then we add them, and then we manipulate them, and we spin them all around, and we mix them in with a hard seltzer and a high noon, and we just hope everyone's having a great Corona cocktail. Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't square. But then also, you know, the, the doth protest too much, like, kind of follow the Shakespeare rule here, right? So if you have to explain, if you can't explain it in a tweet, everyone hears a big tweet, you know, everyone hears a big tweeter, big Twitter space, follow a lot of you guys, just followed a ton of new people because space is dope. But if you, if you can't explain it in a tweet, then what are you doing? Like, this, how many, is it, is it a thousand words, this press release? It doesn't make any, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me. It should be very simple. Do you, do you murder hookers and burying them in your backyard? Do you? Uh, you? You know, you can just generally answer no. You know, no, I don't do that. In fact, feel free to take a backhoe to my backyard because I'm, I am completely confident that I don't engage in this illegal activity. You should be able to just say no. Pfizer would have been, it would have been very powerful. And I'm not trying to root against my, my boys over at Project Veritas. But it would have been very powerful to just release, no, we don't do this. The end, right? Come at us with your subpoenas. Come at us with your investigations. We just don't do it. And instead, they bury us in jargon and in medical terminology and in what seems to me as a layman gain-of-function explanations for what they're doing. And so it seems guilty to me. You doth protested too much. Um, Benny, and so is it possible the that it's, you know. is it possible that it's because you know we live in a world where words have been defined and redefined so much that we don't even know what they mean anymore, and then they have a team of lawyers that have to craft things that sort of protect them? Oh, absolutely, but that's on them, right? So you're the people who are benefiting from this. The rest of us are the ones who have to suffer lockdowns and our kids getting masked on planes. It's you people who are doing this to us. So how dare you to, I, again, quote one of my favorite people, Greta Thunberg. Uh, how dare you? Like, you, you, it's you people who should explain to us how you're not creating the next COVID. And what, the, what this press release did was essentially say, we're not doing it. Also, we are. If you just know the basic nomenclature of how we got COVID in the first place. And again, I just use Occam's razor. Someone's going to have to explain to me how this definitely 100% did not come from that lab in Wuhan. And more importantly, that Dr. Fauci didn't personally fund this, direct the funding through Peter Daszak and the EcoHealth Alliance. I mean, we have, we have the receipts from the far left wing, you know, super far right wing conspiratorial, The Intercept, right? One of the, one of the greatest right wing publications on earth you know, have straight up published the receipts. So again, I, I, like, I don't want to take time away from qualified doctors or people who are from Project Veritas here. I just want to say, you know, we have a big audience, we have a big show. And so we try to inform our audience in a rate in a, in a, in an every man's vernacular. Right. And so it's incumbent upon Pfizer to explain to us why they're not doing gain of function and to like, a, like you would a 14 year old sit them down and really explain this isn't happening. 
because right now they are guilty in the court of public opinion. And um, that's that's a very powerful court. Yeah. So, so Benny, does it have to do with the fact that they changed the definition or or, or the definition of gain of function was actually changed, uh, I believe, either last year or the year before? Well, right. right. So would you, do you mean like the directed evolution? Because that actually sounds more nefarious. I mean, holy right, shit. Right, right. Like that's that. Holy shit. Like that. That's straight out of a Tom Cruise movie. That's the next Mission Impossible. Oh, the guy, the directed evolution. He's the evil Russian. He's bald. He has a hairless hat. Like that. Like that. That sounds more evil, actually. And and, and Benny, uh, let me. I was just going to add to uh, Benny's point. I, I agree completely that uh, the terminology that they use is is totally a game to try to distract from what's actually happening. Directed evolution, gain of function, CRT, DEI, whatever the topic is, right? And and to point to another Project Veritas story that Benny, I think you 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 remember a year ago, we released these DARPA documents, which is a government military agency where they talked about how uh, they, they rejected uh, gain-of-function uh, uh, plans that they, uh, I believe it was Fauci's organization wanted to do in China and Wuhan, but they went ahead and did it anyway, right? And that story right. went viral, uh, trended number one on Twitter at the time, and Fauci was in a Senate hearing the next day, had to mention Project Veritas by name twice in the right. hearing. But here's how he defends it, not only in that case, but against Rand Paul is, they he he changes how he sees gain of function. He describes it one way, and other people describe it another way. So to respond to what uh, Doctor Danish said is, you know, although Pfizer might say they're not doing gain of function, according to whose terms and whose definition of gain of function are they referring to? Doctor Fauci's definition of gain of function, uh, Doctor Rand Paul's definition of gain of function. Which person? And because if, if 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 anyone can define gain of function the way they please, or any term the way they please, and, and words have no meaning, how do we know that they are actually saying what we what they claim to be? But saying? couldn't it be possible mm-hmm. that the reason why they didn't just end with that first sentence is because of the concern you just raised? What do you mean? That's the what only I way it makes sense. Is, what, what what I mean by that is ultimately, if everyone is going to, as I said. Technically, anything that increases a virus's, if there is the, the investigator is trying to increase any desired function, let's say they want to express a specific protein or if they want to do anything to a virus, technically, if it's desirable, quote unquote, then it's considered gain of desired function or gain of function research. Uh, and by the way, that's happening in general in very, very small levels. Uh, for example, sometimes you can have a virus that expresses a fluorescent protein so you can see it under a microscope. I'm just giving very specific examples because it makes it very simple. And uh, so, you know, is that considered gain of function? If you can see if a virus is replicating under a microscope, obviously it does not. Right. And so there is a line, by the way, I'm going to share. Uh, I was, you know, in prep for this. Uh, there's there's the Congress actually came out and gave a definition, which I think was what was referred to. In the last 12 months, in November of 2022, uh, where they defined at least on a quote-unquote legal framework for gain-of-function research. And I think that's what was being referred to by their millions of dollars worth of lawyers. They had to put it in there. And if you read it, it's as if Pfizer just took it out of this Congress uh, document and put it in their uh, press release. Which, by the way, if if they're good lawyers, that's what they're supposed to be doing, right? I mean, what else are they supposed to do? Yeah, sure. Um, so, 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 Benny, I do want to ask you a question here, real quick. Is you are one of the very few TV journalists that have been covering this 
this story and have actually been bringing light to what's been going on all the way since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and, and so at, at this point, two questions. Do you think that mainstream outlets are finally going to pick up stories about this, maybe start investigating it a little bit more? And two, do you think that uh, the U.S. government is going to look into it. Do you think Congress, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, is actually going to take this seriously at this point? So there are a number of reasons why not to do that and why this cage has been rattled by Project Veritas and then that echo didn't really reverberate. And also why Pfizer didn't name Project Veritas, right? The reason why you wouldn't name Project Veritas is you don't want to signal boost them. So to signal boost someone is simply to name them, right? If you're a WWE wrestler and you shout out Hulk Hogan or The Rock or whatever that you want to fight, I don't, you know, you're signal boosting. They're signal boosting their enemy. And so they don't name Product Veritas to try and continue to dampen and to degrade them. This is a tactic. And Pfizer is really smart at this. And Pfizer is really smart at also sponsoring pretty much every news program on planet Earth, right? We've all seen the mashup brought to you by Pfizer. So why would you bite the hand that feeds you? Media is suffering right now. And most media companies are going through massive layoffs. So, you know, if, if somebody is going to support your show, then you're not going to harm them, presumably, if you wish to keep their uh, money flowing in. Now, what's interesting in the Project Veritas piece is that, that this, this they, they said the same thing, right? Like, so, so they said they're not going to regulate us because we hire all the regulators. It's pretty easy. And there's a simple word for this. Again, I'm a very simple guy. Room temperature IQ, you know, 75, very comfortable. Um, but, th- you know, yeah. this, is, this is, this is, there's a very simple word for it. It's called graft, right? So this is corruption. And there should be rules and laws smoking. against that. Watch a documentary. It's good. I mean, it's a movie. That's exactly <laughs> it's right. Produced but by Elon speaking Musk. Speaking of laws, Benny, like it used to be... Yeah. It used to be different because you you used to have a thing where where essentially the rules were you could not advertise if you were pharma. uh, And then it was changed. And now you can advertise. Do you think it makes sense to go back to sort of the old model? Absolutely. Uh, You know, and that, that may seem a little heavy handed for, you know, free market conservatism. But there comes a point where you understand what fascism truly defined is, and I think at the, probably every person listening right now doesn't want to live under a fascist regime, but fascism defined is the fusion of the government and private business. Well, I, have a, I, have better, I have a better idea. State and private business fused together, and what was described in the Project Veritas video is the state and private business, Pfizer, fusing together. So the CDC and the FDA and all the regulatory bodies fusing with Pfizer um, and who suffers from that? And so, can somebody please explain more? And, and secondarily, can somebody please explain to me how that is not fascism, right? Def- defined. And, so. and, you know, and let me suggest that maybe uh, an interim, uh, you know, I don't think we need to be restricting pharmaceutical advertising much more than it already is. But how about applying the same rules to promotion of the vaccine by non-medical officials in commercials, without any of the standard disclaimers we require for the private sector in promoting their medications and treatments. And here we have this exception for the vaccines where everyone is deprived of necessarily informed consent 
Cer- certainly, if you're relying on the advertisements and the promotion by the, uh, the the medical officer in chief, the president of the United States, where you know all of the sort of risks that uh, other uh, medicines and pharmaceutical companies have to disclose related to their advertising, everyone else gets a pass, including yeah. the yep. big tech platforms. Correct. Yeah, you'll be hard pressed to find any clinicians out there that don't believe in informed consent. So I don't think there would be any. Pfizer's had a history uh, with uh, issues with informed consent. One of their largest criminal penalties ever was for human trials in Nigeria, where they were not giving informed consent. They were paying people to enroll in these trials and not telling them anything about it. That was on the heels of a couple of years earlier. CRO uh, did it, a much smaller company. Uh, they were fined into near bankruptcy, and Pfizer saw that. Everyone in the industry saw it, and they did it anyway. So, I mean, there is a – they've priced in the risks of being noncompliant with law, towing the law, going into the gray, and uh, that's just a cost of doing business. I mean, they've paid out many, many billions of dollars. As I, as I said earlier, the largest uh, uh, aggregate uh, funds that have been extracted from them and civil and criminal penalties have been uh, of an American company have been levied toward Pfizer. So they're very good at, you know, playing the after uh, PR game. And then if they get fined, if there are hearings, this might be a little bigger than, than anything they've ever done before. That's obviously why we're here having this debate. But this is a cost of doing business. And if that's the way they think, then there needs to be a debate, uh, regulation, reform, accountability and tighter laws. America is one of the only countries in the world that does have uh, drug companies uh, with the right to advertise. And it's heavily restricted Every yeah. by yeah. regulators. Most drugs, you're not even allowed to name the company that produces it uh, because of brand loyalty issues. That's a form of coercion. But meanwhile, with the COVID vax, Bill de Blasio was publicly saying, if you get the vax in the city, we'll give you a McDonald's Happy Meal. Talk about coercion. Could I, you know, could and, I just end, Mar- Mario, Nick, could I just end by just noting something sure, based on that sure. point? Uh, and I, again, I'm pr- please, and I thank everyone for listening, and I'm not the smartest person here, and I want to b- return the floor to legal scholars and to medical scholars and to, um, you know, pr- like, you know, approved biologists who know what a woman is. But um, I, you know, I, like, I, I, I would like to say that, that there remains... Um, a deeply perverse and strange thing that is happening right now in society. And it's totally bewildering to me. And maybe there are some people of the left that could answer for me an open question here, which is when did y'all become uh, big pharma simps? Can somebody explain that? Like when, when did the position of the, the, the left, the progressives become like pro big business exactly like pro big pharma because like, i'm 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 like more than four years old right so so i'm more than four years old meaning that i were i'm old enough to remember a time when big pharma was evil for the for the left sure. and they they would and what i'm asking here is as somebody who's skeptical like why don't y'all like I, somebody explain to me how suddenly you all became like big pharma like ball gag um you know get like walking around in a gimp costume you know, for, 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 you know, for Pfizer. I don't understand that. I thought that this would be a moment where we could join hands. I am a, you know, I am a conservative, right? I am a Republican. So I thought this would be this like precious moment where I would gain hand, like join hands with my leftist, leftist brethren. And I would be able to like declare with them that this big business is evil and maybe should be regulated a little more. Like that, that makes sense to me. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? We could all kumbaya over that. The big, but suddenly it's not. Like it, it, I look across the aisle. Well, I'm like, what I the mean, hell Benny, they're, they're already hyper-regulated. And the other side of the scandal, I think, 
is the FDA knows exactly what's going on here. They know it's happening. Uh, there's no doubt they know what's happening. They're, they're not. There's at this stage in the vaccine development programs, uh, FDA uh, is working hand in glove uh, on an ongoing basis. They don't wait for the studies to be done to see what's happening. Uh, they're 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 watching it all the time. Uh, so uh, this is as much a, uh, a corporate scandal as it is a government scandal. And I was a problem with so, banking. It's a problem with banking. It's a problem with the military industrial complex. I'm also against generals retiring from the Pentagon and going directly to Raytheon uh, or Boeing or Northrop Grumman. I'm also against that happening on Wall Street from the, you know, from the FTC or from the Treasury Department straight to Goldman Sachs. I mean, I think that's the def- that's definitionally fascistic. Right. So it's the fusion of private industry and government. And it's wrong. It, it, it's going to the people who will be hurt. There will be us. Right. Even, so it's a media problem, too. You know, it's not just a, it's not just a big corporation problem. It's a media problem as well. They are taking all this money, you know, from uh, corporations and promoting their narratives. And anyone who speaks out against it is smeared as a conspiracy theorist or, you know, is unreliable. Or, you know, in, in, in the case of Newsweek, when they were covering the uh, Project Veritas story, they said that, oh, it's a uh, what, what's the term that they used, Matthew? Uh, what, Newsweek? Uh, I didn't. Yeah, but I love I Newsweek editorials. Wonderful Newsweek news is the Daily Beast. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I want to jump in quickly. I want to, Doctor Lin. Doctor Lin, you've been waiting for a while, and you've got some interesting, some important information to share. But before doing that, I would like Denise to briefly respond to Benny just for balance, and then we'll go to Doctor Lin, um, who's been waiting patiently for a long time. Denise, the mic is yours. I think Benny, to your point, uh, you know, as as we saw this last year. Uh, as I was mentioning Aduhelm, many people may not know, but the but the but the FDA actually approved a medication that had little to no efficacy because it was there was some insider uh, conversations and it's been investigated, you know, quite a lot. And it's pretty clear that there was real corruption occurring at the FDA. So, you know, even though I do tend to I consider myself very much a moderate, I, I, I don't know if other people consider me that. Uh, on this stage, but I am very much a moderate. And, uh, you know, I think that across the aisle, what's happened and why I think what's been really surprising to your point, Benny, you know, again, I don't agree with everything that you said. Uh, I don't, I don't know if that was very clear, but I do agree that people just following the narrative because it's what, you know, these, uh, cults of personality are telling them to do is, is completely unreasonable. You know, in, in my mind, we work country full of critical thinkers now it's a country following the narrative and it's getting out of control so i i i, I there's not much to respond there benny's absolutely right the, the one part of the country that always spoke up to the corporate class was actually the far left and now suddenly yes uh, when it comes to pharmaceutical companies that it's no longer true i, uh, I don't I, understand i'll go i, I want to go to dr lynn uh, and then i know that sai has something to say and colin appreciate you in accepting the invite to join uh, so i'd love to chat to you right after dr lynn uh, but dr lynn pleasure to have you why thank you thank you very much um you guys covered a lot of ground and i i probably have something to say about every single topic so i don't want to take up too much time um, regarding gain of function, I think the best place to look to see where it's mostly done, it's on the university level in little BSL-2 labs, which is insanity because they don't have the same kind of, of protection in place or protocols in place 
to, to be safe. And if you look at, say, University of uh, Wisconsin at Madison and Yoshi Kawaoka, who is doing gain of function all the time, who created crazy, uh, virulent, airborne avian flus that fuse with human cells and all of these other things, they do this on a regular basis. And as long as that Bay-Dole Act is, is in place, you're going to have this going on at every university in conjunction and with in collaboration with China. And w- this is what has happened nationwide. And um, the NIH is guilty as well. They have these people called virus hunters, and they actually go and hunt down viruses. They've gone to Alaska in a village where many have died from the 1918 pandemic, and they've dug through the permafrost and pulled up lung tissue and sent it to the NIH, and a sample was sent to University of Wisconsin. And these samples are reconstruct pandemic H1N1. And they go into animals and then they do all these things. And, and if you, if you believe for one second, it doesn't escape, you're, you're very naive because it most certainly does. Um, that's the gain of function story. What Pfizer is talking about, in my opinion, they are covering their ass. There's no doubt, but I believe they're doing pseudovirus work. And when you're doing pseudovirus work, you're leaving out important components of that virus so they cannot replicate, but you're working them in, in cell lines to see how they behave. That could be a possibility of what they're saying in their press release. They're, they're so behind the jargon and the legal ease that they're protecting themselves. So an investigation is really. I'm sorry. What do you mean by pseudovirus work? Can you uh, explain a little bit further? Sure. A pseudovirus, it's used in many, many experiments where it is, it represents the virus in its entirety, entirety aside from the fact that it cannot replicate. So it's kind of like, exactly. like neutering a virus, but you can still. Exactly. Learn so why, why, what's the concern there? Sorry, there's no sorry, concern. Lynn, I, I apologize. There's no concern with using pseudoviruses. In my opinion, there's no concern. Okay. Perfect. The, sorry. I just want to, I, I apologize. I, 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 it sounded like. What you were saying was that they were doing nefarious things with pseudoviruses, no, no, no. but that's not that's what not said. what I said okay. at all. Sorry, I apologize. There are enough nefarious things going on worldwide, and and, and <laughs> Anthony Fauci is fully aware of the nefarious so, so Dr. things. Doctor Doctor Lin, question for you: Based on the response from Pfizer, now if we we take it as if it's it, what they're saying is factual and they're not lying, based on that response, and if it's accurate, if it's the truth, would you would you say you're not worried? Uh, about what you know so far from the videos and from their response? And again, we're making the assumption that the response is true for that particular question. Oh, yeah. We're, and also, we're also making the assumption that they're you know, using pseudoviruses instead of actual viruses. Correct. Right. That is an assumption. You're right. And until they investigate, we won't actually know. Um, Pfizer also is based in – it has an Israel base, and they have bases in other parts of the world where this is fully legal. So they can hide behind whatever they want to do this type of research. It makes it, it makes yeah, so uh, Dr. Lin, like it, it makes no sense from a business perspective for Pfizer not to be conducting gain of function research. Denise, do you disagree with that statement? Like if they have if they have labs around it, the world including countries. I, yeah, I don't I don't disagree with I, that. And I'll tell you that the way it's been for quite a while, for a couple of decades, is to work with this risky kind of uh, of manipulation at the same time you're developing the vaccine or the treatment. So 
if and when, this is the hope that if by chance, even though you sped up evolution by 800 years by using humanized mice tissue to force affinity in human tissue, even though you sped it up, if it so happens to evolve that way, there you are with the patents and, and the treatment in hand. They've been doing this for quite a long time. And if you think they're not and they're following, dotting their I's and crossing their T's, you're completely wrong. And that was the whole purpose of going through groups like EcoHealth and Peter Daszak. It's a firewall. It always has been. When you well, find but, out that so metabiota. There's no proof that Pfizer when you, was when in you find, with Peter Danzak. Uh, I'm not talking necessarily about Pfizer. I'm talking about it's a culture. It's a rampant culture, and it has been. Metabiota was just in the Congo working on Ebola. Should that scare you? Damn straight it should scare you. There's a lot going on that people don't understand, and they just think, oh, look at the distraction. But the fact remains there are things going on that need to be banned or regulated, period. Agreed. I agree with that. I think, I think in general, we need to have much, much more clarification around, one, what do we actually define as gain-of-function research? I will push back significantly, Mario, to your supposition that they're doing gain-of-function research because of business. We don't, we now, don't know, we don't know if they are or they aren't. Gonna, if they're using pseudoviruses, then okay, they they're, not. they're not. If but they But if you listen to yeah. the video, the young man did say from the executive meeting that it's crazy because it's kind of dangerous, but they're making it stronger. Okay, well, words like that mean something. That is gain of function, increasing virulence. Well, it's his observation. That's not exactly what he said, actually. Uh, but he did say that. I can add. Let me put I'd like that one side. I let quickly to quickly add. And before I introduce Colin, Catherine, do you mind if I get side to comment on this quickly? Is that okay? Just very quickly. Yeah, please. Side, I let you comment on this very quickly, man, because I know you've been waiting for a while. Then we'll go to the Colin's introduction. Thank you. Uh, I got to run here in a little bit, but no, I, I agree with what's uh, been said broadly, but I want to caution people against getting kind of sucked into the sophistry and the medical legal definitions on exactly what gain of function means, exactly what's happening here. The minute you engage in that with a corporation like Pfizer and get down in the you know weeds with that, you lose. I really think what's happening here is it's almost akin to somebody doing, quote unquote, nuclear materials research, losing something, and a tactical nuke is used somewhere in the world. That is the urgency we should be treating this with. And I really don't care what Pfizer thinks gain-of-function research is. And I understand it's different from, like, pseudoviruses or attaching a fluorescent uh, protein to a virus so you could actually look at it, you know, in a cell line. But, you know, I, you know, based on what's happened with SARS-CoV-2 likely leaking from a lab, we have to overhaul the definition of gain-of-function research. We really have to tweak the threshold of what we may call gain-of-function research, and we need to put the full might of the federal government into investigating these, shut down these foreign labs, and rein it in completely, because this cannot happen again. Thank you, Sai. Well, actually, this is a great segue to introducing Colin Wright, who is uh, an evolutionary biologist, amongst other things. And uh, Colin, he, he worked at Bayer, and, uh, you know, he had a great thread about how they got around regulations on genetically modified pesticide that the biologists were performing uh, kind of that would be called encouraged evolution uh, to achieve desired mutation, kind of similar to what Pfizer is performing, uh, what some have called directed evolution to sort of avoid calling in gain of function. So I'd love to have Colin speak a little bit of on that. And, and Colin, maybe you can... Uh, 
um, explain why you think that makes it more dangerous than straightforward genetic modifications. Yeah, thanks for having me here. So yeah, as you highlighted, uh, I worked at Bayer for a while. And there's there's a perfect just parallel here because uh, when I was there, there was just a lot of this social stigma uh, about genetically modified organisms. And so one way that Bayer got around these regulations that are both very costly and would you know instigate protests was to sort of develop this new wing that did biological pesticides. So it's a type of like bacteria that we'd spray on plants and they wouldn't do genetic modification, which is, you know, the direct, you know, implantation of a certain gene that can make the thing produce more of whatever you want it to produce. So they did what they did, what they called encouraged evolution, uh, which is essentially just exposing these bacteria to all kinds of mutagens, um, having them just mutate in certain ways. And then they're sort of picking among all these mutants that just sort of spontaneously were created and then seeing what they do. Now, the one reason that makes this a little more risky is because if you're just doing genetic modification, you can just, you know, insert one gene. You kind of know how this gene works and how it influences other genes around it. But what this encouraged evolution does is it mutates the entire genomes in ways that you, you don't even know. So you'll get a new function and you'll be like, this is great, but it's doing so much else to the, the entire genome. You could be creating more issues that you, you just wouldn't be able to foresee. So this is kind of similar to the, what Pfizer's doing. You know, they're calling it directed evolution. Uh, and it's, it's purely just a word game to get around these regulations and also the social stigma, uh, with gain of function research. And, you know, I would argue that with Pfizer here, like there is a lot more danger around gain of function research or, you know, directed evolution with viruses than there are with a pesticide. I mean, there, there's risks on both sides here. Uh, but really what, what Pfizer is doing, it's just a, it's a complete word game. Legalese, they can go out and they can say that we're not doing gain of function research because it's very narrowly defined thing, what that means. And what they're doing is they're just creating mutants and then selecting among mutants. So they're not actually, you know, performing the gain of function because that could conceivably produce loss of function and well, they're just, you know, selecting among these spontaneously created mutants. So, uh, yeah, so th they can sort of just hide behind this fact that there's a technical versus uh, sort of social definition of what we have. They could be making a gain of function, but it's not technically gain of function, even though it could be even more dangerous than uh, than than that. So I I just wanted this in some context. Do you mind if yeah. uh, a quick clarification here that I think might help quite a bit? So Please. Colin is pointing to something that we would think of as gain of function writ large. And inherently, there's, there's not a, a negative valence to that. So if you're talking about gain of function, what we're really concerned with is gain of function uh, research of concern related to pathogens of pandemic potential. That's the way that they would define it. So it, in in his case, in his domain, you might be talking about Monsanto taking a seed, a Roundup Ready seed, and giving it to third world countries so that they can completely obliterate all living things around the crops. And the only thing that made it through was that Monto, Monsanto Roundup Ready seed. That's a form of gain of function. And we should be extremely worried about that. But when we're talking about in the life sciences and viruses, it is slightly different. So there, there's a, there is a nuance there. And for people that are coming to this conversation for the first time, that's why this is the story is important. Because it's it's like the Manhattan Project 
or us finding out about Dolly and cloning, the, the, the people that have not been following this, this is not your field of study. You export a lot of that part of your brain to other professionals whom you trust to deal honestly with the public. And I think that, that we're not going to get everything answered tonight. But the fact that so many more people are getting informed and starting to ask, well, what is gain of function? It's going to lead us down a much better path. So just well, I think, yeah. yeah, sorry, uh, Kyle. No, I, I was just curious because for me, like looking at this, I, I think the framing of it can sometimes be, you know, this is their evil. They're doing terrible things, but really I think there, there, there could be very good intentions behind it because the they're idea evil, they're is doing terrible things. Kat. Well, well, okay. Well, hold on Ian. So the idea behind it is, is, you know, you want to predict these mutations so you can create vaccines. You know, I know people feel differently about vaccines, but you know, you want to create these vaccines in order to prevent people from ultimately getting sick and dying. However, the, the, the concerns, which I do think are extremely, valid is that these mutations that are so unpredictable can get stronger can get uh, you know can if if you believe the lab le- i mean there have been lab leaks in the past it's not like it's it doesn't exist so uh it, the, the incredible danger of that and we're not having necessarily the transparent discussion about it and regulations about it and transparency from these pharmaceutical companies and i think that's really where we're at and so i think that's I think it's important for us to really frame this not like evil versus good, but to really look at the nuance of it and decide as a society where we want to go with this. Do we want to open this, you know, genie bottle, right? Well, um, that's exactly the way to think of this is as a as a genie bottle moment where <laughs> human civilization. <laughs> I mean, I think that the, Pandora's the, box. It's, it's not a genie bottle. It's Pandora's box, right? When you let it out. It, you can't contain it, and that's the issue with these companies, is that, yeah, you can characterize them as evil because their motive is not to help humanity. It's not to make people better. It's to make it's to make money, right? It's as simple but as the that. People the, more, the, the sicker people are, the better. I don't yeah, care who the people working at the companies. The people working at the companies are not the ones making these decisions. The people who are signing these orders and saying, hey, let's go do this dangerous research and violate all kinds of laws and try to find workarounds around it, you know, and we will, you know, set up a, a fund to make sure that we can pay for any sort of legal issues that uh, spring up, which they do. You know, they do have to pay settlements to many, many people, as we've seen before, you know, at Pfizer uh, in particular, they paid perhaps the most amount of settlements of any American company in history. And so they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing is bad, What it, it, that is dangerous, and that can lead to all of these uh, severe uh, ramifications that do impact you know, millions of lives, they don't care about this. People have never been part of their bottom line, right? It's all about money. That's all they Ian, care about. I, I'll push okay. back a little There's bit a, as somebody. Matt, Matt, you got, you know, can you let just like those of us who are in bioethics that have been studying this for quite a long time and have been warning about this, if you guys don't hear anything else and this whole Twitter space is from from the point of view of those of us who have been looking about this and warning about this throughout our entire careers. Just go to Stanford's website and look up David Railman at the conferences on biosafety and biosecurity. When it was first announced that um, that the uh, the avian flu H5N1 had been manipulated via gain of function. 
Kawaoka and Foshe for, for like those conferences that were happening. David Railman was one of the only voices of reason. And I point him out to say, go, if you guys really want to understand what the, the true depths of where we're at right now, get someone like him on these Twitter spaces because he was saying at the time, you guys, we cannot do this kind of research if there's not a clear and compelling benefit to the people who are alive right now. Because if you do dangerous research, gain a function research of concern or dual use research of concern with pathogens that can lead to pandemics, the risk is for everyone who's alive right now. And what ended up happening in those conferences is instead of being worried about gain-of-function research of concern, they were more worried about the label. And there became a, a, a sort of debate about, well, what are we going to rename it? Because when people hear gain-of-function, they immediately think of, like, some kind of killer virus. So they understood at the time that whenever people hear this, there's going to be a visceral reaction. But the problem is much worse than people even know because they're coming to the, to the game so late. And all of us are existing under what, what I would call like the, the use of strategic ambiguity. We're all in this sort of veil of ignorance where we're dealing with, uh, and this isn't by accident. So we're, we're forced to, to operate under uncertainty. And worse than that, really, we're, we're forced to operate under a state where if you question narratives, um, you're considered uh, spreading disinformation, misinformation. That's the insidious part of that. Because what, what we don't know, and we should all know the answer to this by now, to the best of our ability scientifically, is where this virus originated from, how yeah, it originated. I think, I think we have an idea that it's from Wuhan. But you understand, if you think this is a bioweapon, then you, then our government's response might be quite different. Thank. You. So um, I know Mario. Can, can I jump in here? Well, hold, hold on a second. I know Mario has to leave soon, so I just want to give him a chance to respond before he has to go. So, Mario, feel free to yeah. and then circle Thank back to the others. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, I'll be dropping off here in about five to ten minutes. But just to the point that was just made about Wuhan, I actually wanted to talk about exactly what, what was said in the video. I think it's good to remind uh, the people in this room to exactly what was said by this individual from Pfizer, uh, Jordan Walker. I'm going to read you a quote real quick. He says, quote, you have to be very controlled to make sure that this virus, referring to COVID, that you mutate, uh, that you mutate doesn't create something that just goes everywhere, which I suspect is the way that the virus started in Wuhan, to be honest. It makes no sense that this virus popped out of nowhere. It's BS, right? So it, the omission here is the, to attach what he said, right, in the video about uh, the directed evolution and people saying, oh, we don't know if it's gain of function or not. Well, this man is attaching that uh, what he's discussing about direct evolution to we don't want something that happened in Wuhan to happen. He said it. He said those words. Right. So he he draws a direct parallel. And it's interesting because I've never seen Pfizer ever come out and say we believe that the, the lab leak theory uh, is, is, is likely or probable or, or even a, a thing. 
right? So he says it himself, and he also says another point. Another quote is, "We don't need another another you know leak, another break, outbreak. Uh, Jesus Christ, that would be awful, right?" So uh, to you know the the people that uh, question, you know, is this uh, really you know gain a function? Is there really a risk with the experiments that they're conducting? Well, he seems concerned himself because he's talking about the last thing we need is another outbreak and we don't need another Wuhan to happen, right? So I just want to put that back in the fray so people have the full context. Thank you for that. And, um, and you know, Joa, I know you have some points you well, wanted to raise. Oh, sorry, yeah, Nick. Go, go ahead. No, no, no. It's oh, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah, Joa, I know you you had some points that you wanted to raise about, you know, because th- there may be some times where gain-of-function research can be a, Can a, a I actually, Catherine, do you, do you mind? Yeah, but let's, get, yeah. let's get Tom in. Yeah, yeah. First. I, I know Tom okay. wants to speak. Okay, he wants to speak. And then I want to introduce Joa because he's going to make a point that the audience is not going to like. But I, you know me, I always like everyone yeah. to question whatever they believe, whatever they think, and question the narrative. So I, I would love to introduce the next one, Catherine, and save you the hate messages. But Tom, I'll give you the mic before introducing Joa and the point he wants to make. I, I think the way to think about this is do we want to allow the private sector to engage in biological weapons research? That's what we're talking about with gain of function. If you're going to allow it to take place, even under regulated circumstances, this is what happens. And I kind of, you know, I like to go back, you know, we always talk about policy and what should happen. I like to go back to the documents. We uncover documents showing that even under broad ability to gain a function, and they still had regulations over at NIAID, they found in 2016 that EcoHealth was likely engaged in gain of function research, and they were all very nervous and warning them about it. They changed the rules to further restrict, and it still continued to break the rules. So there's this demonstrated record of them allowing gain of function to go on. Folks are breaking the rules. They pretend to restrict it while still allowing it to go on to put more guardrails in, and they're still breaking the rules. And I tell you, there isn't a member of Congress, I predict, who would vote to allow government funding to support gain-of-function research outside, frankly, militarized biologic weapons research and defense. And the idea that it's going on in the private sector and, and the earlier guest who highlighted that it is going on all over the country in, in, in labs about as secure as your bathroom, uh, it, it ought to scare the heck out of this. And I would highlight when you look at what was going on in, in, in China – the funding there was as much about they're going to be engaged in gain of function and biologic weapons research. Let's fund it so we can better track it. That's the crazed, I think, I think conclusion we're going to find if we dig into this deeper based on the information I've been able to analyze, not from Project Veritas, but from the government's own documents. Danger, we're in, we're, there's this dangerous game here, and I don't know why COVID isn't enough of a warning signal for some urgency to be addressed, uh, to be applied here. I, I, but Tom, Tom, I just want to, Kyle, before you jump in, because I know that um, uh, uh, Joe is just waiting for a while, so I'll give you the mic in a bit, Tom. But I actually, Kyle, sorry. Um, I want to say Tom's summary of, of the of the issue here, I, I agree with the summary. I think it was well articulated. The issue is gain-of-function research within the private sector is is just very risky. And um, But I want to kind of explain 
why gain of function research is being conducted. Now, is the the is, is the main objective to make more money? Yes, but that's making more money by being able to develop vaccines. Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, but develop vaccines before other competitors. Uh, Joa, I'll let you explain the benefits of -of gain-of-function research. And this is not Joa defending gain-of-function research by companies like Pfizer and by the private sector. It's just explaining to the audience why they conduct such research. Because I know there's some theories and some people go a bit too extreme. They're conducting these, you know, they're creating those viruses on purpose so they can release them and kill people. This is is too extreme, everyone. It's somewhere in the middle. They're not non-for-profits trying to save the world. But they're not evil monsters trying to kill everybody. It's got to be somewhere in the middle. And Joa, I'll let you go through the article that you sent me and explain it to the audience. I don't think anyone is saying that their whole purpose is to kill everyone, but not everyone. No, no, not every. They hurt. They hurt a lot of people, and and that's the issue, right? They don't. They don't concern themselves with human life. Yeah, yeah. No, but but Ian, Ian, we're not talking about this panel. (laughs) There are there is people in the audience. You know, the Ian, the people that just go. Oh, I'm sure there are some people who say that. Nobody on this panel is saying it, right? I don't think anyone here thinks that big pharma are just evil Nazis who want to destroy the human race. I don't think that's. That's the case here. Yeah, but and, and I will is, say that Big Pharma does I, I not consider believe, itself a human life. I don't believe life. all of them are evil Nazis. That is true. Not all of them. <laughs> not all of them, exactly. <laughs> uh, go ahead, I John. Think that a lot of people get into the whole field to, you know, to do the right thing. But, hey, you know, money gets in the way. That's just what happens. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with Mario and Tom. I think Tom, we typically don't agree, but I think he did resume it really well. But you know, gain of function is conducted. I think a lot of people in the panel, if they know CRISPR or DCAS9 is a very promising, uh, it's very promising for the future of humanity to cure a lot of diseases that exist. Gain of function is studied all the time and it's approved um, because it could make things better as well, just as they also study loss of function, right? So these leaps in rationale of, they're doing gain of function, so they're bad, or they're trying to create, release the virus to create another pandemic, which was some of the accusations that was here, was they were trying to create another pandemic. Isn't true, like they can be doing gain of function without having trying to release a gain of, uh, um, they can be doing gain of function without trying to release a pandemic, right? It's the leaps in rationale that's happening. Like this guy was on a date, he said, um, he said uh, that they were doing the, doing this, which actually doesn't make a lot of sense. As Dr. Dinesh said, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, there's a lot easier way to manipulate the virus, which is just just put it in, into the antiviral, right? Put enzymes in the antiviral to change to make it mutate faster. That's a lot easier to do than actually creating it in the lab and then releasing it to the public. So what he said actually doesn't even make sense. But I'm sure these companies don't get it wrong are in are in business to make money. They're not in business to find cures, only if that makes them the most money, right? So I'm sure that conversation probably happened. And just like little boys that go on date, like a girl says, oh, I like a tough guy. And he's like, he starts bragging about how many fights he's been in. That happens. We don't know because we didn't hear the whole tape. But the jump in rationale is what doesn't make sense. Like, the right jumps to the rationale that Pfizer is being evil and they want to spread a disease so they can they can profit. The left can jump and say, look, Trump in September 2019 fired the entire pandemic response team. 
three months before COVID started spreading. Should the left jump and say Trump knew that that happened? Like we have to stop jumping to rationale and actually connect the dots. Um, and that's all I wanted to bring to the to the to the panel. Should we be doing some sort of regulation and putting regulation in place? Because right now we have a situation where we have sort of research that regulations that are different across the world, but you know, U.S. corporations and pharmaceutical companies they are doing different research in different parts of the world. So what kinds of rules do we want to put in place? For example, a pharmaceutical company that operates in the U.S. or is, is based in the U.S., you know, might be doing research elsewhere. Uh, well, any thoughts on that? Is, the hard part is that with CRISPR, as Joel was referring to, and again, CRISPR is uh, sort of one of those disruptive technologies um, and, you know, happy to go into what it is exactly. But uh, ultimately, using CRISPR... Uh, we can rapidly evolve and mutate viruses uh, and it, both from a gain of function, but also from a loss of function and also to make those viruses do what some would consider incredible things like cure cancers and so on. But, you know, to me, ultimately, as you're mentioning, regulation is critical. But if somebody can do it in the in their garage, how do you truly regulate that? That is sort of like the big challenge that we're facing with CRISPR technology specifically. What we're taught, what he was talking about, just to be clear, is probably one of the most inefficient ways in, in the video. Sorry. Uh, what he was talking about is one of the most inefficient ways to lead to uh, uh, a mutation. Uh, and, you know, they could I, I can tell you right now that all of the big pharmaceutical companies have CRISPR programs currently. Now, they're using it for very different reasons than what, what would traditionally be called gain of function. In fact, they're using it for loss of function, primarily what they're publicizing. Who knows what's happening behind closed doors? Again, I would be very surprised if they're doing actual gain of function research in the U.S. Uh, currently, but you think, but Dennis, you think you think that Pfizer is likely doing the gain of function research, but not in the U.S. And then my next question will be that if they are, then and I, I know Melissa is here, so Melissa, I'd love to get your experience as a, as a whistleblower as well. Uh, but if they are, Dinesh, then. Because if they're not doing it in the U.S., doesn't mean much. We saw that with with COVID when there's a virus that um, that spreads very quickly. I, 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 I have no insight. Pfizer has a research labs in Israel, right? And uh, Israel gain of function research before. is is legal in in Israel. What, what's that story? Is well, legal legal I think I think the, the just to go back to Catherine's original. Question, well, hold on, though. Mario. It's legal here in the United States. It's, yeah, it's legal. It's, since it's, it's restricted, but it's legal. It's uh, yeah, yeah, we had my DS, point was Mario. more around. Yeah, I'm just yeah, my, my point was more around the fact that ultimately with this new technology coming out, just like any other technology, you can't stop people. You can't stop basic scientists that believe that they're doing the right thing in a lab out in any random country. Pick a country. Sure There's can. a researcher there that can get access to CRISPR. I think we have to treat it like we treat, you know, the uh, any sort of nuclear-related uh, Doctor, respectfully, I, I think we can stop them. I mean, we How? stop... When I say we, I mean the world stops North Korea from, uh, you know, performing nuclear weapons research to an extent. Iran, the same way, right? North Korea, a bit harder. But uh, with Iran, I mean, there are ways to stop them from doing it, and sometimes it requires direct wait, wait, intervention. Wait. I'll walk you through CRISPR. might be helpful to get a sense of, like, how crazy sure. it is. If you, you know, if you've ever been in a wet lab, you can literally take a cell... Uh, 
under you know we can sequence genomes very very quickly, especially viral genomes, right? Uh, and you can you can actually say, hey, I want to cut it here, I want to cut it here, I want to put this there. It's it, anybody. When I say anybody, anybody can learn it within weeks and do it without anybody else knowing. It is not like you don't need to source, uh, you know, nuclear materials and bring them to a specific location. When I'm saying this is legitimately one of the when we talk about things that are scary uh you know we have a bioethicist on the panel this is what the bioethicists are actually super scared about right now which is crispr technology and it, you know if you start looking at different companies and how much they're fighting for this it is how easy uh, is it to to make a, a crispr lab let's say you have you know a few thousand dollars is it possible to less set than a one few up? thousand less than a wow. few thousand. yeah you don't even need that and you don't even need the lab there are labs that are already set up that you can send to them what you want done to the DNA and they will manipulate it for you. And this exists all the way back to 2014. These labs were popping oh. up. So, so it's, it's not like the nuclear issue, right? The nuclear issue right. requires, you know, uh, you uranium. Yeah. You don't need the infrastructure and, and the nuclear material. He's right. You, this is something that as the, emerging technologies get better and the price point goes down and they become more ubiquitous. It's kind of like the iPhoneification of biology. That's why I'm saying we're, we're sitting here arguing about what Pfizer is or isn't doing when at a much larger scale, it's happening around the world. And that's why we make a distinction between dual use research of concern, which is research that if you put it out there, a bad actor could use that and somehow potentially in the world. So we're now in a place where in the biological realm, it's replacing the, the kind of ubiquitous existential threat of, of nuclear weapons because we always said with that, mutual assured destruction was a deterrent. That was based on people being rational actors. Now you don't need rational actors. That's not a deterrent anymore. You can have one lab work on this and release something. Just imagine that COVID had been, it had a larger or longer latency period, was largely asymptomatic, and then had the same level of lethality of like Nipah virus. And it's almost game over for, you, for humanity. Kyle, what about if it's a kid in their garage or something like that? Are exactly. we kind of past the point of no return? Like, wh what can we do about this? So it's interesting when we talk about um, whenever we teach this in, in bioethics, we talk about information has implications. And there was a, a familiar uh, to some maybe case several years ago. Um, I think it was 2011 where a young man, uh, I think it was at the University of Texas. He was a law student. Um, he developed plans for a printable gun. And the point that he was trying to make to people was that we're not living in the 1990s anymore, that information has very important implications that if you go all the way back to Watson and Crick's first publication in about 800 words, when they elucidate DNA, they talk about <laughs> there being implications for that. We're at that point now. Digital information has implications so that you don't need the kind of infrastructure which makes it infinitely more difficult to trace. And so 
just keep in mind that the warnings, COVID should not just be a warning about the life sciences, but we have converging technologies, nano, bio, and information technologies. So this is the first shot over the bow, and it's a warning that people are playing with GPT. Um, we're not ready for, for things like AGI, artificial general intelligence, because then you can have a kid in a garage using an AI to help come up with uh, something that, that's completely novel. So we really are in a different landscape, and we don't need to be distracted by the fact that our governments are obfuscating. Uh, we need to hold them to account because, seriously, as Paul Virilio said, and I'll end with this, there will come a day when the day will no longer come. I mean, it's possible. These are not guns. It's not a nuclear weapon. These are things that could present existential risk for all of us. You know, and if I could just add, I think in the least, you know, it's it's a scary discussion um, and, and the implications, obviously, um, I think are reasonably frightening to folks. So, you know, my view is, well, it's okay, what is it we can do now? And I think one of the things we can do is recognize the U.S. government's role, however objectionable it is to small government conservatives, uh, its outsized role in the funding of biologic research. And we can tell the uh, the Fauci a cohort that is still running those agencies and directing funding that we're not playing your game on gain, gain of function anymore. We're going to recognize it for what it is. We're going to allow laymen to uh, analyze it, and they decide what's gain of function research, meaning legislatures and such. And we're going to prohibit government funding explicitly uh, of gain of function. And none of these guardrails that allow it to continue to operate as long as someone signs a form. It's that risky. And I think we could obviously, for all sorts of research that is immoral or risky, find positive outcomes from them. You know, there's always a risk-benefit analysis. And I doubt there's any – there are few public officials or elected officials who would, who would take the risk uh, uh, versus the benefit here. And, Tom, you know, and, th and then then you from there, you figure out how is it you restrict it within reason uh, among those uh, researchers that uh, can do it privately, uh, but, whether there are federal but, restrictions on private funding for it would be the next step. But in the least, let's stop letting the government um, tell us and people like Pfizer say, who are you going to believe us or your lying eyes? The question, though, Tom, is that if you're going to aim you need your aim to be true and you need to be 100% correct because what we don't know is what we were doing in Wuhan in the first place. Now, through these through these subcontracts, and I encourage everyone who's listening, go and read EcoHealth Alliance's subcontracts. As someone who has been federally funded with grants, millions of dollars they give to us, the kind of deliverables that the federal government requires us to respond to are are very onerous. What EcoHealth Alliance was able to get away with is just astounding when you read it. They didn't even have to report a lot of the findings back. But but the question is, what we don't know, and it's important that we do know, is it could have been a pay for play situation where 
I, I understand your point and I agree with you. I actually think I'm, I'm going a step beyond you and saying it could be the case that because of the work that was going on in China and that it was so risky, this was one of the only ways we felt we could get into the lab to keep an eye on them and see what they were doing. So that we had to help support the research in, in some way to get eyes on the research because you don't want it to be a black box and not know what they're doing. And so I think that's why there's a lot of uh, ambiguity around this and why our government has been silent. I, I want to go, Melissa, I want to go a question to you if you don't mind. Um, we, we saw what the, the Jordan said in that video. We know from, um, I think it was Mario or Matthew or, or Eric who mentioned, it was Eric who mentioned earlier that there's been more people within Pfizer that reached out to Project Veritas. And you were one of those people earlier as well. Can you tell us more about your experience? And then the question that I have is, is it even possible for companies to keep secrets? Like every time we see new leaks, new jobs, we had WikiLeaks on the show a few months, a few weeks ago. I just find it harder and harder for any organization, government or company to keep any secrets whatsoever. And I'm guessing that includes Pfizer. Yeah, so... To answer your first question, um, when I reached out to Project Veritas, I had never heard of them before. It was actually some of my kind of, at the time, I considered conspiracy theorist friends. Um, they had worked at Pfizer, and I showed them what I'd found, and they were shocked, and they're like, you've got to get this out there. I had unsuccessfully reached out to any and every mainstream media you could think of, and I'd never heard of Project Veritas. I'd seen one short clip of the video, which was Jody O'Malley's whistleblow, and it looked like they were just filming kind of in a basement. And I thought that they were really low-level people, didn't think much of it, um, submitted it, thinking I wouldn't hear anything to their tips. They reached out to me in about 15 minutes. Um, and, for example, on Whistleblowers Inspiring Others, Jody O'Malley is who inspired me to try harder because I had been feeling defeated because I had tried so many different things. Um, and after reaching out to them, they verified extensively for several days that I could prove who I was, how I acquired the documents. Um, they actually had, because I was actually on a mental health leave of absence, because I after I found the documents, I left because I was just so in shock and distraught over what um, I found in their database. Um, that I'm really glad I was on that at the time because I couldn't have continued to work there. But uh, they continued to prove who I was by, I reached out to friends still in the plant and I said, hey, can you go through this method um, and film it from the very beginning, film it so that I can show them I know how to access the database. And this was a coworker who also didn't know they had access to the database. So I had to guide them through it. They recorded the entire thing with Pfizer logos in the background, so they knew that they were in the building. They had me go through extensive proof that I was an employee. So that's something I want people to know, is that they go through above and beyond to prove who someone is, who they say they are. And I've actually had friends who still work there confirm to me that this Jordan Walker does work there. Um, so that was my experience reaching out to them after they contacted me. They were very... Very kind people. I, I really appreciated that. Um, they never pressured me to say anything. They just wanted me to confirm what I was saying, I guess, um, so that they could um, properly advertise and knew what I'd be talking about in the interview. I did not meet James until he came to sit down to film the interview. Um, 
And we did not rehearse anything whatsoever. Everything that was in my whistleblower in October of 2021 was the whole interview. Nothing was really edited other than they showed the emails, which to protect the identities of the people involved in the emails, they blacked those out. Um, but yeah, they, they did a great job with my interview. And then afterwards, um, they've continued to check up on me to make sure my mental health is in a good place, um, to make sure I'm where I want to be. They've given me opportunities to um, further my story, different things like that. Um, so they've been great to work with as a whistleblower and, and as a and, and journalist. Melissa, can you also can you recap for the audience what your story was, if you haven't done that already? Yeah, so I um, acquired at least 85 documents, including PowerPoint slides and emails, um, that I believe show very um, damning evidence against Pfizer as a company and, and whole. But Project Veritas wanted to, um, as they said earlier, they want to focus on stories that they can 100% confirm, not things that are left up to opinion or maybe he said, she said. I had emails that did that, emails that were hard evidence against Pfizer that they were trying to couch their words and extensively um, vet their terminology as so that quote unquote, lay people don't run with this and make a big deal about it. Um, using the aborted fetal cell lines is what they were specifically talking about in this email, which um, Pfizer had been actively denying religious exemptions when I whistle blew, which is why part of my push, because they were denying my friends religious exemptions because they were using the fetal cell line argument, but then not giving a reason why. Um, other than the most I heard was um, other vaccines use that method. So if you've received that, you can receive this, um, which is wrong. Yeah. So, so Tom, I know you wanted to respond to that, and then I'm going to get to George right after that. So, Tom. Oh, no. My hand was just left up. Go ahead. Thanks. Oh. <laughs> All right. To buffer what Melissa was saying about, you know, the, the way – when we cultivate, when, when whistleblowers come to us and, you know, we bring out a story and we, we verify it, it's done at the highest standards of any journalism in the Western world, in the whole world, because we know we have a target on our back. We know that, uh, you know, the Wikipedia page with all the fallacious stuff, it only takes one slight screw up. And everybody who is ideologically opposed to what we do, which is uncovering the truth of sacred, sacred cows, elitist institutions, those who technocratically rule the world, uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of arrows on our back, and we take it very, very seriously. If we screw something up, if we do something wrong, if we take a shortcut and realize it's a mistake, we own up to it. We don't really have to do retractions, but we've had many, many hundreds. We have the wall of shame where mainstream press who discusses what we do and spins it, lies about it, obfuscates the important parts of the fact pattern. We have gotten, I think, last count, 400 or so retractions. We send everybody an alpaca. Uh, and we do uh, segments deconstructing the state of the, these lies, these these omissions, these uh, whatever it is that creates a false piece of news. Matthew, and quick, quick question, Matthew. What, uh, Eric, Eric Weinstein in, the sp in your space yesterday, he did talk about – so I, I didn't know much about Project Veritas before um, this uh, recent release. Um, I did read a bit about you guys. Uh, and then Eric Weinstein mentioned something in yesterday's space that you guys learned from pre previous mistakes. Uh, because what you do is very, very difficult, so so I understand that. Can you tell us uh, uh, very briefly um, what are those mistakes? Again, very, very briefly, and, and what you've done to kind of improve on those areas? Well, to, to make sure to evolve as we've evolved as an organization. You know, when I started with James, it was seven people and a budget that was – 
15% of it what it is now. Now it's 70 people and departments that are very, very uh, hierarchy is put together with a responsible sort of mind frame around, you know, production, uh, editing and scripting out, you know, what's the important part of the story. We have big teams and we work on this. There's, you know, staff meetings all the time to discuss. James really runs the place almost in a way like Ray Dahlia with Bridgewater with radical transparency. It's a, somewhat of a flat hierarchy. Anybody from, you know, the lowest production person or editor, if they have an idea, if they have a, a qualm, if they have an issue with the met, with the journalistic ethics of what we're doing, it's very, very open and we have a lot of internal debate about it. And in terms of the evolution of the place, you see the quality of the stories. You see the quality of the production of the stories. Uh, you know, when, when people say, well, just release the raw, and that's the journalism. That's not journalism. That's you know, throwing shit against a wall. You have to frame a story by highlighting what's important. We don't make things up. We don't spin things. We bring uh, all the time we're debating on what's the important context so that we cannot get accused of doing what the Daily Beast does, omitting the actual important facts that might be exculpatory to a a frame that's being set up. Uh, We put all sides. We always, always rule number one, ask whoever it is for comment, whether it's a corporation, a politician, a candidate, Whoever it is that's being investigated and exposed, their staff, we always look for comment. They usually say no. I mean, the New York Times doesn't uh, call us for comment when they're about to smear us with something uh, like our stolen emails by the FBI or whatever that they're running that somehow they get minutes after they're uh, absconded with on a pre-dawn raid. They don't they don't ask us until one second before they're hitting send. And if we don't get if they don't get that response, they run it anyway. They're playing a game of activism. We are playing a serious discipline of journalism. And it's a I think that this Pfizer story should demonstrate to all. And by the way, this story, it's so not political. There's no politics here. It's purely is our society governed by a plutocratic elite that have totally captured a technocracy and control it and will collude with one another. Like, look at the media not covering this. Uh, Like, this is so far transcends a left-right divide, much like your spaces, which is great. You bring in left-right, center, people from all different views who might not determine that they are define themselves as any of those things. But it's so key that we have stories like this that everybody can say this is an important debate. This needs to galvanize, say, uh, House hearings or whatever, reform, regulation, accountability, peel the onion. Most important thing that nobody's really talking about is who did he report to that should now be in the public eye to verify the veracity of what he said on tape? Uh, you know, we got to peel this onion because he did not make the decision over the protocols that they were going to engage in, in in testing. This came from the chief science officer, the chief medical officer. They've got medical ethics panels. We need to understand their decision making because this affects all of us. And they are, as we can see from this, even the fact we're having this debate shows it's broken through. And most people believe we need to we need to have a public discussion around this. But they're doing this with very little guardrails. And those need to be put in place. And I think this journalism is a great example of exposing that, something that we can all get around, and the journalism that Project Veritas does, which I think speaks for itself. So, George, on the topic of journalism, you are an investigative journalist, and you've been following the uh, uh, the virus and the vaccine since uh, the very early days. Um, I like the opportunity to hear your take on the entire situation, on the, on the Pfizer situation and the developments that came from Project Veritas and the like. Great. Uh, well, I am an investigative journalist. Um, I am, I have one person in my company, me. I put $750,000 of my own money into my investigative journalism, selling two of my houses. 
I've been to, uh, when I did a story on gain of function for the Rotterdam, somebody mentioned earlier, the H5N1, that had been serially passed at the Malta conference in 2012 by Ron Fauchier. I went there to Rotterdam for four days and talked to people who worked there. <clears throat> uh, that's how I do my journalism, right? Um, I went to the World Court at The Hague and, and uh, talked to people there. I went to Amsterdam and talked to people at Endera Kron, which is the leading investigative journalist in Holland. <clears throat> this is just how I followed up on one. One of my associates went to Ron uh, to the lab in Wisconsin that was mentioned earlier to uh, karaoke a uh, his uh, co- uh, his his lab his gain of function where he worked with Ron Fauchier. I went uh, we followed the actual WHO documents that laid out the foundation and the future for gain of function and for mRNA which was called DARPA adept we found the person who actually received those DARPA adept bids. In March 2020, I brought 12 uh, journalists to the Potomac from all over the country to look at who was rigging the bids. We didn't even know it was called mRNA. We called it out DARPA adept. Bid rigging occurred with the Wellcome Trust and uh, Jeremy Farr in June of 2019, three months before the outbreak. Another bid rigging occurred for DARPA adept mRNA with WHO. In both cases, the same person received those bids, those fixed rigged bids. Virginia Benassi at benassiv.who.int. We did not black out anything. We published her name. We published her address. I went to Geneva uh, more than uh, two weeks this year looking to try to find uh, Virginia Benassi and see if we could get follow up. She also wrote a document with the guy who had the leak from Fort Detrick, who left in disgrace after he shut down Fort Detrick. That was Sina Bavari, who is a close associate and has done a lot with one, Dr. Robert Malone. So uh, in our uh, reporting here in the United States, I went to the uh, Green uh, uh, green uh, Field, I can't remember the name of the, uh, the place where the E-Valley deaths occurred. We've been out to Fort Belvoir chasing uh, different bid rigging around uh, vaccines at DTRA since 2017. We've been to Fort Detrick many times. Uh, before the breakout, we had predicted something like this was going to be happening with flu, with JSOC uh, whistleblowers that we had. Uh, I, I was in Boston yesterday. I was where I was in, uh, went to the Boston Consulting Group I was there most of the day where, uh, Mr. Gordon worked, Gordon Walker worked, uh, a Jordan Walker worked. I went to Massachusetts General Hospital to make sure uh, if, if he had verified employment there, that was on his resume. They didn't know Jordan Walker. I talked to six different people uh, that uh, were uh, uh, doctors at the hospital who were about his age that did not know who he was. I know uh, I didn't get a chance to go to Tufts. That was the other place he was supposed to have done uh, some kind of urology uh, uh, internship. But um, what I'm saying is, uh, you know, I went there. I went to the Lieber trial every day of the Lieber trial. I've seen Tom Fitton many times in uh, Washington, D.C. and Virginia uh, at trials. So and I sit with the CNN guys. So my my approach to journalism isn't any different than Project Veritas. I have a great deal of respect uh, up until this incident with James O'Keefe. He was my hero. He was the guy who put Jeff Zucker's uh, conference calls online and showed how they target and do search and destroy journalism against people who are actually trying to get the truth out, right? 
I published these names, Virginia Benassi at Benassi B at WHO.INT. She also happened to be at uh, the University of Texas Medical Branch. She was in Wuhan before the breakout in Wuhan in September of 2019. Isn't that interesting that all the person who's getting all the bids for WHO, all the bids for Welcome Trust is also the person who's there in Wuhan during the leak. Interesting, isn't it? So when I saw this uh, piece of journalism, uh, which is the hidden camera on the dates and so forth, um, my initial, uh, before I had ever heard anything, and before I'd seen any tape, I looked at the original night. Uh, I, I, I tuned into James's thing with uh, Kim.com and Bob Malone. And uh, Tom came in and all the, all the folks came in and said, I want to congratulate you on this incredible journalism. We've got this top executive that runs mRNA research for Pfizer. Right? Tomorrow you're going to see the tape. Uh, great. You know, awesome. Top executive. Well, I really had a lot of problem verifying that. And Project uh, Veritas did not publish what day he graduated from the University of Texas Southwest. They didn't publish the fact he was a failed um, resident at in urology, nothing close to pharmacology. They didn't publish the fact that he had uh, – they didn't publish the fact that he hadn't been – at Massachusetts General, or that part of the resume seemed to fall through, and they didn't publish that fact. They didn't publish that he went to Boston Consulting Group. And somehow is the guy writing the paper, the early paper, days after the approval, right? Days after the approval of remdesivir is writing a position paper for a major medical had a license as a doctor, according to our records, until October of 2021 in the state of New York. Now he goes on this commission, and now he's the key golden child individual recommending remdesivir as the course of action. Still, remdesivir is being used today for this reason. So I uh, took it upon myself to say, now, wait a minute. I have, uh, many people know my son's a doctor and at a very big institution. And and I just charted my son's experience with his, about the same age, went through residency, went through fellowship, uh, and so forth. And I'm like, hey, this guy took all the shortcuts. This guy uh, didn't do anything in his gap year after he graduated from medical school. He screwed up his uh, internship and residency, and he failed at that. Now he's finding his way over. Uh, after he uh, rinses out of Tufts, now he finds his way over into the Boston consulting group somehow, telling pharmas how to run their business when he knows nothing about pharmacology. You don't know anything when you get when you graduate from medical school. That's when they start training you, right? And now he's going to consult the world, right, of telling how protocols should be used and what the standard of care is. How can that possibly be? Can I jump in right? real quick, George? Yeah. So, Dr. Whoa, 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 yeah. whoa, whoa. Why don't well, we hear George all the facts? No, George, George, just, yeah, yeah, yeah George, but just, it's, it's good to give uh, – so just to give everyone a chance to speak, um, be good to, to kind of okay. uh, land the plane, please. Well, I'm almost done. I'm almost thanks, done, George. Mario. Okay. Okay, thank you. I'll wrap up. I'll just say that when I saw this, I, 
put the ethical situations aside with, you know, doing fake tender dates or fake grinder dates as a way of getting news, which I think I've never done that, never will. But the, the fact that a person who's not even an MD could somehow be quoted as a top researcher running research, running R, R and D as a top executive and, and from Europe, uh, what's his name? Uh, Bob Malone came in and said, he's, he assures everybody he's a top executive when he wasn't even an MD. That never would happen. He hasn't even passed his boards yet. And that's my problem is he was presented as a top executive. He was used as a fundraising pawn and he's a nobody kid that's sitting on a Boston consulting group, uh, a thing that prepares PowerPoint slides of org charts. That's how he's at Pfizer. Why don't you tell what he really did was five year plans for mRNA revenue planning for mRNA for the cancer for oncology, which is something else he never studied. I'm done. Yeah. So, so let me let me get uh, before we get to do Dr. Lynn. Uh, I want Matthew to respond to that because it yeah, I'd be happy. Like I'd be, yeah. So you're looking at this story and saying it's all about him. We're looking at the story and saying it's not about him at all. It's about what he knows because he is inside. We verified he worked at Pfizer. We verified his title. Uh, we verified his identity, uh, which all that stuff has obviously uh, been scrubbed from the Internet moments after the first video went went up live. Uh, but your uh, deep dive into, to, you know, his educational background that, you know, admirable. I love investigative journalism. I do a ton of it. Uh, you know, obviously PV does. I do my own. I do forensic stuff. And that's great. But. This story wasn't about, uh, you know, whether this guy is or is not George Santos in uh, in Pfizer. This guy is about what he has seen and what he has disclosed to somebody else. And if we can verify that what and we believe that what he has seen and what he is saying to somebody else is newsworthy and worthy of deeper investigation, worthy of a public debate, which we very much do. I think the veracity of the story is, is, is as high as ever. You can go around and, you know, do deep dives on him. I mean, I saw the tweet you posted about him with his, uh, with his resume. Uh, you know, when you talk about the ethics of journalism and investigative journalism, you took that from, uh, Brian O'Shea, uh, and you screenshotted his work and his article. And I gave him credit. He's right at the uh, top. I gave him attribution. Uh, I, I don't see any attribution. I think post facto there was attribution, attribution right at the top, Matt. Where? Second screenshot. This is the kind of character assassination you guys do. And Kim.com did the same bullshit. I see. Ryan O'Shea, right at the top, his substack. Okay. You screenshot. Okay, on the fourth one, you can see it on top. You don't mention him. You say, if you have followed I've, my... I've, I've done I'll several see. stuff, and I've credited I Brian O'Shea every time. I mean, that's not... That doesn't uh, look so, like so I'll, let Matthew, I'll let Matthew respond. Go ahead. That's, that doesn't look like an attribute. Okay, you you do have the website name on top, but looking at this thing, you're not attributing saying good work, Brian O'Shea. The insinuation is you did the work. So bullshit, I bullshit. I did a I did a a, a four hour show that day. Gave Brian and mentioned oh. Centennial. Well, uh, Brian company O'Shea. several times. Okay, several times so. I gave him attribution. Brian you guys have a lot of gall setting up fuck up uh, Tinder. Uh, George, 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 George. That's your way of getting George, news. George. Uh, uh, but George, I have, a, I have, a, I have a question. Actually, okay. George, on that Her point, Matthew, I, 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 I got a question for you, George. Um, what's the concern with getting – and I know there's a lot of people that have that concern, and that was discussed earlier and I think in previous spaces. The concern of you know, 
pretending to be on a date, which I know you could question the ethics of it, but if you're using it to get information for the public good, what's your concern with that? Uh, I'm genuinely curious. He had, a hoax. He, he, he had a hoax at Yale where he replaced the, the four letters on the Yale sign with rolling on the floor laughing. He was a hoaxer from his Yale days. So anyone who knew anything or did any kind of research, I found that in five minutes, anybody who had done any kind of research on him would know he's a hoaxer. He had no credibility whatsoever. The last person in the world you should have been talking to to find out what Spicer's plans are is him because he's worse than a person who doesn't know anything. He not only doesn't know anything, he's making up enough. He's making up enough to sound credible. Which is even worse. But why disinformation? So, so, so is even you're worse. questioning George, and if I, I if apologize, he's, if he's, uh, sorry. If, I, if he's up, you go ahead, Matthew. If he's making it up, why hasn't Pfizer in 48 hours? I was going to ask that question. Main, yeah. you're, you're the only investor, and I use the word "quote" investigative journalist in quotes uh, because you sound like a crank. You're the only investigative journalist <laughs> who who is saying this. No other journalist, if any journalist in the mainstream could bury Project Veritas with what you're saying, that would be happening times 6,000 Pfizer. No, no. You've got 30 million people who love to just want, you, you give them confirmation bias, you feed them the breadcrumbs that you want, you don't want to do any just the question, Just the, the question, the first question, okay, George, the, why didn't Pfizer, because that would be an easy, easy bait for Pfizer, easy way for Pfizer to discredit everything with their response. And and MSN, I, I can't just, believe you called me a crank. No, yeah, we'll stop. And, we'll and, stop the and, personal attack. I think it went both ways. We'll stop the personal yeah. attacks. But it's a. So I want yeah. you to. I want you to answer that that question yeah, from me, Matthew. Me yeah, go ahead, Matthew. Wait, wait for him to answer the question. Go ahead. Uh, let, let me ask the question. I do believe there is some grains of truth in the fact that Pfizer had to test against a panel of anticipated future possible spikes that are coming in new waves of. Uh, viruses and the way they get that information is from darpa and i believe the channel of how they get it may very well be this guy so i think there's some great parts to the journalism here right there's some great parts of the journalism here that this guy may be a men a conduit from darpa and people like michael callahan to feed over t- and to basically parlay their knowledge darpa's knowledge of what's coming in terms of future spikes they did not use monkeys. They used in vitro, in vitro cell cell lines. And by you calling me a crank, I went to Erasmus Lab. Have you ever been there? I went to the WHO for a week and protested against undermining the Constitution. Have you ever gone there? I went to the Wellcome Trust in London, right, on Leicester Street, okay? And went and Sorry, no. Sorry, no. Sorry, Sorry, have you ever back, done that, Matt? Back, guys, guys, have you ever guys, done guys. that? No. George, uh, I've you're the hat. So one thing, uh, I've just uh, muted everyone. So, so Kathy, go ahead. Yeah, I'd love to track back because you said that the, this is a low level person and, uh, or, 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 you know, it seems like the criticism is that, uh, Project Veritas kind of propped this up as being a really important guy at the company. And that seems to be the criticism. So I'd love to kind of hear what you found through your investigations about this guy, you know, and where he's maybe lying or misrepresenting the truth. I uh, would love to get a little bit of fact. And just to give that. you, and to just give you, George, before you answer, just give you like where, it, we've all talked about this behind the scenes and we've kind of come to the conclusion that it it just all adds up and kind of Pfizer's response was the the, the kind of fine, the nail in the coffin, the, the final nail in the coffin, that the, 
you know, he is who, who well, they say he is. But I see it's my position. I'm not sure about Catherine. Uh, and maybe Catherine is a different position. Yeah, I, I have, I have some more. Yeah, I have, I have more doubts. Oh, okay, okay, perfect. Yeah, some that, of the other. That, oh, beautiful. Yeah. That balances it out. Um, so I'd love to, to, yeah, I'd love you to answer the question, George. What's the question? I'm sorry. Just if you can give us some facts that of things that you found that sort of don't align, because you said that he, some of the things about him uh, about uh, don't quite align. So he's he's misrepresenting okay. himself, right? And that wasn't included sure. necessarily in the report. Well, well, first of all, uh, Project Veritas hasn't uh, reported anything about his uh, involvement at Boston Consulting Group, which I think is far more important than his role at Pfizer. The Boston Consulting Group is a chill, puts a chilling effect on on healthcare people because it's the big uh, pharma, uh, you know, uh, authority coming out and saying that this is a new standard of care for remdesivir. Only a couple of days. This is sort of the same chilling effect that the Lancet letter had on any kind of people that did that said anything about a lab leak. His paper was a seminal paper. Now, how does a person without even an MD write that paper? And why is George Webb bringing that story to you? Project Veritas did not cover that story. They didn't bother to go and get the facts. And I went to Boston yesterday and the day before, and I got the facts, okay? The other thing that I think is there is a shred of truth here is there had to be some kind of sponsorship. There had to be some type of state sponsorship to give him that nobody who had clunked out of urology and hadn't gotten to agree when he had joined Boston Consulting Group with no credibility, no bona fides, how could he be the person who was writing along with four other doctors, he may have just been the fifth wheel, but how could he have been put in such a position to write such an important paper that would determine all of our futures? There had to be some kind of state sponsorship. I think the answer is going to be Michael Callahan at DARPA. DARPA created Moderna. Moderna never bought their first stapler without DARPA money, right? And that's how you get to the dark hand here, right? You don't have What's that? Yeah, so you're saying there's information that's missing. I mean, something that has come across my my yeah. desk, so to speak, is that he's right. also lost his medical license, and that wasn't really uh, included. When so did that, he lose his medical you, license? Uh, this was sent to me, so I haven't had a chance to fully examine, but I do have a copy of be good, that. Be good, uh, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Decent. And we could Matthew to get Matthew to respond yeah. to because there's so many points yeah, being made. I would love yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, George, sure. feel yeah, like, let's, yeah, let's give Matthew a chance to respond. Yeah. So first. The most important verification of this entire fact pattern of this story is, did he or did he not work for Pfizer, which we had to confirm? He did. Was he uh, in his position at Pfizer to have access to information with his titled role uh, to access the information that he discussed about? He did. We verified that. Going through his entire history, that was not the he was not the subject of our investigation. Pfizer is based on what he told us. And we wanted to make that public because this is so important. Now, I would also urge because, you know, you're, you came out gun, you know, guns swinging, arms, uh, arms uh, moving around uh, askance and saying there was no ethics here on our part, that this is, you know, a, a sham. Of that? That's how you that's how you came out. I urge the, the listeners to this to go to your Twitter and look at your last weeks of tweets. There is an unhealthy obsession with calling James O'Keefe a fraud. So I, I'm, I'm trying to understand because you said oh, like after, after you after you attacked uh, initially right out of the bat, uh, guns blazing, 
Uh, then you said, well, there's some interesting things here this uncovers. So, I mean, you're kind of talking out of both sides of your mouth. And after getting sent a barrage of screenshots of your tweets the last few weeks, and already Brian Hoshea had tweeted about you, uh, and I, and he told me about it, and we had a conversation about the ethics of that. Uh, you know, you're you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. I, I don't really Actually, understand. No, I so gave I, full what? attribution. I gave full okay, attribution. Okay, so, so but I, more... I think that this uh, – I want to – like right. we're fighting it with we're yeah yeah Aaron I'll let you jump in because I think Matthew and George yeah, we're, we're both fighting the same battle and and Matthew George did did give credit in some cases to the to the revelations made nothing questioning the witnesses witnesses fear I haven't seen what George tweeted etc um, but Catherine I think I think the we should move to to another topic what do you think Catherine can I throw in please? yeah go ahead Dr Lynn yeah I'll let you do that before I give the mic to Aaron. It's really important to understand, and George, maybe you didn't notice this, but over the years, these types of students have been profiled just like you would an FBI or CIA agent. And if they meet their personality criteria, they are pushed through medical school. I call them cardboard MDs just to get the the credential. Then they go to a consulting firm, something like IQVIA, who is very much in bed. It's a CRO and very much in bed with Pfizer. Then all of a sudden, with no background or no experience in pharma, they end up at Boston uh, consulting, where they're placed in a mid to upper position in a major pharmaceutical company on a path to a very specific place. And they're usually untouchable because they belong to protected classes. So understand this is, is, this is a trend. He's not one of one. He's one of many. And if you do your research and look in some of these pharma companies, a lot of these people that they're shepherding in have no business being there, have no experience, and they're under-experienced. And you saw how fragile he was in that sec- second video. They're, they're, I, I would agree the, with you. I, I just want to agree with you. And I, I, I believe that there is a, a PowerPoint where G, this gentleman they're talking about created his title and created his slides and created the org chart that they're that they're publishing. So I'm just letting you know that he was responsible for creating the PowerPoint slides. Right, but they're giving yeah, him Veritas. this. They're giving him this responsibility because oh, he's untouchable. Yes. He's infallible. Yes. And there's a, it's a double-edged so, sword because though they're th- they think he's untouchable, they don't realize that in a case like this where he's cornered, he's very fragile. And he, you saw what happened. So this is and Dr. Lin, yeah. you make a, a very good point about I've been dealing with management consultants in different sectors and especially healthcare for 20 years. And there is a uh, part of the revolving door is the McKinsey's and the BCG's going into industry, whether it's healthcare or many, many other industries. And why didn't we investigate BCG? Because BCG's chairman is not going from BCG to the FDA back to BCG that did new business the way the regulatory capture that he talked about openly and we believe is very worthy of public debate probable reform, accountability, and re-regulation. So making this about BCG, if you want to go investigate BCG, more power to you. The more journalists exposing the more stuff, the better. The more citizen journalists who are not beholden to corporate media, who we've seen how they've behaved for many years, and even with this story, totally memory-holing it, not addressing it at all. Great. Go investigate that. But to come out and just say, this is a BS No, I agree. This I agree, Matthew. What the you guys did. I don't like you. He wasn't a top executive, man. I'm sorry. Uh, so just, just, just quickly, uh, I've muted everybody. I've just brought up Tom as well, Tom Fitton. Um, I, I, look, I, I want to I – wanna... Mario, can I jump in? Yeah, yeah. I want to jump into you, Aaron. Yes. I think the we, – um... we need to reframe the tone of this conversation. So oh, oh, 
a word to the speakers, first of all. We got 10,000 people listening. Nobody wants to listen to gorilla chest thumping. Nobody wants to listen to a five-minute professional introduction. Give a one-line, two-line professional in- introduction, and then let your arguments uh, and your information stand or fall on its own merits. Um, and, you know, the mudflinging and the, and the who's got a bigger whatever is, is just, uh, it's tedious and it's tiresome. I, I want to just make a brief comment that is actually relevant to the previous argument. And that's just a sociological observation that there's so many people uh, who seeing this video immediately find it, f- find the individual depicted there as uh, incredible or, or non-credible and are in disbelief that he could be, you know, wherever exactly he is. He is fairly high up. Uh, and for what a reason got him there. He is fairly high up in the org chart at Pfizer. And they just find it unbelievable that an institution like that could employ a person like that, this who is so callow and uh, seems to seems to lack a conscience in, in whatever context, dating or otherwise, uh, it, just in the way he's talking about something that if it turns out to be true, uh, would be rather concerning, if not horrifying. And what I want to say to that is our our current um, ruling class and our current elite institutions of both the private and the public sector are populated with people like this who have a managerial mindset where my only concern is with the means. I never have to think about the ends. I never have to think about whether we should be doing what we're doing. I only have to, I've been tasked with thinking about how to get it done. Right. And, um, and so it's not at all surprising to me that a guy like this is high up at Pfizer. Um, I just returned recently from testifying at the Senate health committee in Sacramento against a bill that was passed that was just uh, in our lawsuit against it uh, just this week. Um, The judge ordered that the lawsuit be suspended uh, that, that the bill be suspended. And so people have asked me why, you know, why did the California state legislature, um, you know, pass a law that was so obviously unconstitutional. And, you know, my answer to that is that you're too impressed with these people actually that, that they did it because the average IQ of, someone in the California state legislature is probably at least one standard deviation, if not one and a half standard deviations below the mean. And I I mean that in a purely descriptive sense that we've created a society in which certain forms of advancement um, are made possible and facilitated by not having a conscience and uh, by not caring about the ultimate outcome and only learning how to do things in in, in a way that's that's efficient or in a way that can do an end run around the kind of concerns that would be voiced, um, you know, in a in a context like this. My s- second point, and I'll be very brief on this, is uh, what I pinned to the top here. My, my take is that the Project Veritas video might distract us from the much bigger gain of function research experiment that this company has conducted over the last three years, not on a few monkeys, but on billions of people, namely uh, vaccinating with a, a product that creates a, a very narrow range of immunity uh, in the middle of an outbreak, in the middle of a pandemic, which many argued b- 
before we started doing this was going to drive viral evolution in the direction of a virus that increasingly escaped vaccine immunity. And if we continued to do it and continued to persevere and double and triple down on the mass vaccination campaign, could even drive the virus to mutate in a direction that would escape infection-induced immunity as well, which would be which would be an even more serious problem. So, um, so I just wanted to throw that issue in the mix that the biggest experiment that was conducted was not the one done in a lab, but the one that was done in real life starting in March of uh, 2021, when an inadequately tested product was uh, not only released and made available to billions of people, but in many cases forced on people without their consent. Um, we so, so I want to move to uh, Jean-Francois real quick. You are a biologist. You've been waiting up here pretty patiently, and I believe this is your first time on the panel. Am I wrong? Absolutely. First time, and it's an honor. I'm a big fan of your show. We do have, before you, you go, you hear yeah, before you go, Jean-Francois, we are bringing up Nate Kane. Nate Kane, please do request to speak. I know you've got breaking news to share with us, uh, according to the sources. So uh, if you could DM me, I'm going to send you through an invite. Go ahead, Nick. Yep, and I do want to say one, t- one time here, uh, everybody that's been here, we've been going for a while. Sign up for the newsletter at the top of the screen here. And, and the, yeah, uh, not only, uh, not only that, Nick, Nick, I actually want to ask something to the audience. I want to see, is there anyone that has concerns with the videos at all? Um, I put it in the comments, bottom right corner. I'm going to go through the comments. Cause from the messages, from the comments I've seen, um, those concerns, there were some earlier, but they've kind of been appeased after Pfizer's response. But I do want to see if there are more concerns or anything we should address. Um, I don't, I don't expect there to be much, if any, uh, but I'd love to see them in the comments. We can bring them up. So if you have any concerns with Jordan's yeah. identity or anything at all, do put them in the comments. Otherwise, uh, we'll go to Jean-Francois and I'll bring up Nate as well. And I see Grant unmuting. So Jean-Francois and we'll go to Grant right after. All right. So I have a PhD in neuroscience and I have extensive experience working in the private sector, developing uh, genetic strategies to better cure things like schizophrenia, depression, anxiety. So after working in the private sector, I wrote my book and my theory of biology. I just come here to fully reinforce as an expert in this field what Tom Fitton has been saying. Uh, He is absolutely right that the Acknowledgement by Pfizer in the press release is much bigger than acknowledged on this very show. There were people claiming that there was a full denial of -of gain-of-function research. That is not true. The very first sentence of the Pfizer release is allegation. uh, It's in the ongoing development of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine. Pfizer has not conducted gain-of-function or directed evolution research. That is a partial denial. They are saying, as part of our research for the vaccine, we haven't done it. But we may have done it still, not as part of research on the vaccine, but as part of research on Paxlovid. And Tom Fitton went to the right sentence just after the one that he read. It says, in vitro resistance selection experiments are undertaken in cells incubated with SARS-CoV-2. Resistance selection is a form of gain of function. I wanted to come back to the definition of gain of function, and I take it from Dr. Kenta Subarao from the NIAID. He stated in 2015, in other words, any selection process involving an alteration of genotypes and their resulting phenotypes is considered a type of gain of function research, even if the U.S. policy 
is intended to apply to only a small subset of such works. So we are in a problem here. Gain of function is a very large and broad phenomenon. I would go as far as claiming that any sort of evolution going on in any situation is a gain of function. Were we making gain of function research when our farmers were selecting pigs and cows that were more fat, that were delivering more milk? I think we were. (laughs) We were in a rudimentary manner. And what we do in modern times is just a laboratory version of this. We leave viruses replicate in in vitro cultures. They change, they acquire new capacities, and that to me is gain-of-function research as far as it matters. Now, the problem is the government has imposed a legal conception of gain-of-function, which is basically, we will call it gain-of-function only when it bothers us, only when we think there is potentially a pandemic consequence to it. But my problem is, you may not think that your research has pandemic consequences, Pfizer, but you don't know. So you think, so, I, Jean, very Jean, annoyed. so Jean-François, sorry to interrupt you, but you, the first thing you said uh, is important to me. And I want to try to get Denis back here. Uh, he'll probably come in, come in a bit later because I find this very important. Based on their response, and, and Matthew, um, it's credit to you and Project Veritas, based on the response by Pfizer, you're saying, and I'm reading it now, and, and uh, you make a point, they didn't, they were very careful in the way it was worded. And they don't explicitly say they're not conducting gain-of-function research. And you added another point that gain-of-function research, gain-of-function itself is a relatively vague term, legally speaking. Um, so I would, and I think even Dinesh kind of agreed that even if the the statement, even with the after reading the statement, he does believe Pfizer is either outsourcing or conducting gain-of-function research. So I, I would say like we, it's it's it plausibly implying that Pfizer is conducting gain-of-function research, I think it's relatively fair now. At least it's more fair than it was before. Is that a fair conclusion for what you said, Jean-Francois? Absolutely. Dr. Danish missed just one thing. It's that the first sentence that he, that he read is a partial denial, not a full denial. It's a little bit as if I was saying, I didn't kill anyone yesterday at the bar. And yeah. okay, no, but maybe sense. I killed someone. No, it's, it's a, so that's that's exactly what they did. It's legalese. Yeah, yeah, and we are we're trying to get a, a attorneys up on stage as well, um, so to get their thoughts on this. But I appreciate you bringing this to our attention, Jean-François. Um, Matthew, anything to add to this before we I go to Grant? I, I would just like to say, actually, I uh, I don't think I'd ever say this publicly, but I kind of want to hear what Brian Krasenstein has to say. Brian I was actually gonna like I was gonna ask you a question and this isn't an attack on you at all um I I I I, I remember like this was hours ago I know you guys have been going for several hours uh you said that when Jordan said that he found out that he was being or not, I'm sorry that you said when Jordan found out he was being filmed uh, and said it was all a lie. It was because he figured that he just let out all these secrets from Pfizer, and he was panicking. But isn't it also possible? I, I, I would I would say that that's an assumption, isn't it? Totally. Also possible that maybe he just figured I just lied about my company, and and I'm gonna probably get fired. Uh, I was I'm probably gonna, I'm gonna be seen by millions of people. Uh, as a liar now, I lied to impress this sure. man who I was on a date with. Like, is that possible sure. too? 
Yeah, absolutely. Look, when I said that, my read of it and after, you know, watching hundreds of these uh, spontaneous uh, interviews and interrogations, when you confront a subject with what they've said, we've had a lot of runners, uh, uh, Vanessa uh, Gelman, classic video. Uh, we've had a lot of people get sort of aggressive rhetorically. We've never had a physical confrontation ever. Uh, and seeing the, you know, having seen so many of these before and seeing how people react when they're caught. Uh, and when they've just kind of, you know, uh, given up the farm or, you know, uh, open, you know, pull back the curtain on something they knew they didn't really want to. I mean, it's why this journalism works is because people tell you things that they wouldn't say to a stadium filled with people with a microphone. They say it, you know, in confidence, like, hey, sh- get this, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. The reaction he had was so over the top and overwhelming, the panic that he was expressing that he didn't even run away. He didn't. He stuck around and was like trying to figure out as his world collided and the gravity of it, the magnet, the, the magnitude of it, the scale of it. That's just my editorial assumption, just from my experience of watching people and watching so many of these situations, uh, doing this with James for, you know, a decade plus, uh, that that's my assumption. Yeah, no, that absolutely. You don't know what anybody's like psychology and the way they think, the way they would react when confronted with something that is obviously not what you want to be confronted with. That's personally painful uh, and personally creating risk to you. What it, where's his value system? Is it his life flashing before his eyes because he's going to be made out to be a liar because he's going to lose his job perhaps but we've seen that a lot we've seen many instances of that this seemed like something so much bigger that there was a scale here of what was exposed and he's a smart guy and knows the intricacies of what he's doing professionally that he realized this is big this is very big and this is going to have, have, have you guys been especially, especially since his statement is consistent the statement's consistent with the f- subsequent pfizer statement Sure, certainly. But so there's no evidence he's lying. Pfizer didn't say he's lying. In fact, they explained and gave detail to what he said. Yeah, parsed through. Did, have you figured out like how high up he is? Like, I, I know directors at companies appoint directors all the time. There's probably yeah, thousands probably. of directors. And different industries uh, have different, you know, nomenclature, you know, a director at a, uh, a hedge fund or a bank is very different below a manager director. It's not really management. It's, you know, you oversee a few employees. But what we determined was that he was three to four chain of command steps away from the very, very top of Pfizer, the CEO, the CSO. And in a company as big as Pfizer, you know, having that level within the org chart or the pyramid, uh, it's not, you know, this is not somebody who is doing uh, basic quality control of vials at, you know, the Pfizer manufacturing facility in Groton, Connecticut. This is something bigger. And this is something there is subject matter expertise on the issue that is so controversial that, you know, we pulled back some curtain on and we're still trying to figure out like that's the whole point of the journalism, right? We are going to peel the onion because now people are talking about it because some some nugget that we've determined to be true maybe it's not maybe it is all made up maybe it's a hoax maybe he's an actor who knows that'll come out but we started a conversation on something very very important here and his reaction to me seemed like he really knew how important this was because that reaction was very over the top and that's just an assessment of just the humanity of the situation so so Raheem, I want to welcome you to the stage, man. Uh, you are the editor-in-chief of the National Pulse, and I know you've been following these stories very closely, and we'd love to hear your opinion on it. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, we've been doing, you know, reporting on, on Wuhan and gain of function and, and the CCP involvement in, in the lab and so on and so forth for, you know, pretty much the day, well, days before um, the WHO even, even called it a pandemic. You know, I... I launched the um, war room pandemic show with steve bannon we did the first 
couple of episodes and first couple of years together of that show. So, you know, it's, it's something, something like this is especially, you know, poignant to me when I, when I see it and I watch it and I watch, you know, the, the arguments over the veracity here. And, and I, I figure this from a, you know, from an editorial perspective about it. If, if this guy's, um, credentials were impeachable in in the res- in the respect that has been alluded to in the last several minutes why why hasn't Pfizer themselves come out and said that in in you know a, a clear fashion you'd think if you you had information about your employee that employee was known for certain you know lying proclivities or, or what have you as has been alluded to um, and even his response within the company he would have had to answer for this behavior immediately um, that Pfizer would be able to come out and just say, well, look, you know, we've looked into this. This was clearly a man speaking about things he didn't know, et cetera, et cetera. Disciplinary action will be taken appropriately, but they haven't said that, have they? Uh, Matthew, I got confirmed from my staff that uh, we've determined him to be three degrees, uh, three uh, degrees of, uh, you know, Kevin Bacon, uh, separation to the CEO. I mean, this is not a, a peon. This is somebody who very, very believably, you know, beyond uh, a shadow of it's bullshit, uh, well beyond that, has knowledge and access to knowledge about what's going on behind the curtain. And that makes it newsworthy and journalism, despite what some of the, uh, the, the critics uh, are sniping about. Thank you. Uh, so, so, yeah, so, Matthew, do we know the current status of Jordan? Do oh. we know... We, we 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 believe from a source that he's still employed with Pfizer, but we can't determine any of that. There's a blanket over this that's right out of Orwell. I mean, memory holds links of stories that disappear to 404, not found so quickly. Uh, I don't know where he is, if they've renditioned him to uh, uh, to Madagascar for a debrief. Who the hell knows? I mean, anything is possible when you're dealing with companies like this, and not just in pharmaceutical space. But, I mean, we know what corporate the corporate global world looks like now. And it's not really what we signed on for in a, uh, you know, a capitalist uh, free market. We all believe in that or most of us believe in that. Uh, there is obviously some power concentration among the largest corporations that has been frightening Americans for decades and is certainly coming to a head in recent years. So we do not have any clue where he is and what his status is formally. We have had people reach out and say they think he's still there. There hasn't. But there's also we've had people reach out and say Pfizer has definitely been in internal damage control. And there's there's gyrations within management. It's like people are discussing it inside as they should okay, be. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. So and I just want to make clear for the audience here uh, in the video of where he was just going absolutely berserk and attacking cameramen and breaking iPads and such. He was saying, I'm a contractor. I'm a contractor. I'm a contractor. Um, and you guys have verified that he was not just a contractor and he did work or does, assuming he still work for Pfizer. Still, the, we uh, not say still. Yeah, yeah uh, not but still. We, but We did verify that he is a Pfizer employee. Uh, and, you know, he him saying he's a contractor, again, this gets to Dr. Lin's point that frequently, you know, management consultants, especially in sectors like pharma, uh, go from the from the, the management consulting firm, BCG, McKinsey, Bain into industry. And that is obvious the way he got there. Uh, but he's seen the way he was dishing that out in panic was like a damage control kind of uh, uh, maybe prevarication, so to speak. Uh, for us, again, the most important part of this inv- investigation is what he told us. 
uh, is not, you know, what he what what kind of dude he was like in college. It's less important. As that comes uh, uh, out, great. Matthew, I just want to quickly mention before giving the mic to Grant, and we have Kim as well on stage. Good to see you, Kim. Nate, uh, Matthew recommended we bring you up. Jim was telling me. Um, you've got some breaking news to share with us. Nate? Mute, mute, Nate. Hey, sorry about that. I'm still new to this. Oh, good, man. Oh, good. This, good, but, um, good to have you on stage. What's uh, what's up? Why is hey. this, what's the team pinging me about? Well, first, I want to just say that um, thank you guys for having this forum. Uh, it's great actually to see a variety of different people and to not be in an echo chamber, but to actually hear people having a healthy debate about these subjects. Um, one thing that I did want to say though, and and I I was listening and I saw that you know George Webb got on there. Um, just so everybody knows who I am, I, I was the uh, the FBI whistleblower that blew the whistle on uranium one, uh, while I was working and employed there. Um, and I, you know, I had a, uh, I, I ended up getting retaliated against and had, had, uh, my home raided. So my, you know, this forum is important. We have to have these kinds of open discussions to discuss these sorts of things, but without a doubt, there are going to be people who are going to try to come in and create problems and create disinformation. Uh, that does exist. And, and I will tell you, um, I've had my own run-in with, uh, with George Webb. Uh, he showed up at my house and doxed my home address to the whole world right after the story broke on me. And, uh, and it put my family through a lot of stress. And when I refused to give him an interview, he went on a rampage of basically putting out a whole lot of, of um, stories that were completely false and untrue, a lot of assumptions made uh, about me. And, and so... I totally uh, would just suggest that people take everything he says with a grain of salt. And, and that's one thing that I wanted to put out there. Um, you know, as far as this is with this forum, one of the things that I think that, that I haven't heard brought up, I know there's at least one whistleblower with inside the pharma community. Um, one thing I wanted to ask about is um, I know from my own experience, I was dealing with blowing the whistle on classified information and that became such a very, uh, sensitive and difficult thing to do. Part of the reason for that was that within my own chain of command uh, were some of the people that, you know, were in, you know, that were uh, basically the, the subject of my whistleblowing and it made it, and because it was classified, I had to go through uh, a myriad of lawyers and, uh, you know, and do certain things to protect myself. Um, I know that uh, within the private sector, it's a bit different. But I'm sure that there is a lot of sensitive information. One of the things that I was curious about and would like to ask people uh, who would, might know this information is, is there really a need, especially when it, when it comes to, um, uh, to gain-of-function gain research, is there a need for any kind of uh, secrecy or, or classification? I mean, if, and we're not talking about weapons programs here or biological weapons programs. I'm talking about just gain-of-research. It would seem to me that the best way forward on this because you are talking about something that if it gets out of the lab and if it is you know something that that could affect the whole world why is there not a policy of just total transparency with all gain of function research that way you have kind of an open source approach and you have people who can hold these people accountable so there is uh, aaron would probably be good to respond to that one we did have a few doctors on stage earlier especially dr uh, who's who'll be coming back dr danish uh, so he pinged me. He'll be joining back in a bit. Cause that that'll be a perfect question for him. Yeah. But Aaron, not sure if you could take that question. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm 
I'm in favor of transparency, especially when it comes to anything as dangerous as this. Um, my own view is we should have a complete moratorium on gain-of-function research. Yeah, it's difficult to define around the edges where something shifts from you know research that that might mutate a virus laterally versus research that might make the virus more virulent or more pathogenic. So yeah, the, the edges are fuzzy, but some sort of threshold definition for what constitutes gain-of-function research and a collective no to anything above that threshold, I would be in favor of. Uh, but if we choose to accept certain forms of gain-of-function research under certain conditions, then it absolutely needs to be transparent, whether it's conducted by public or private actors. Pfizer's defense is going to be something along the lines of trade secrets. Look, we were trying to develop a new vaccine, and that's proprietary, and so you know we can't uh, we can't disclose all the aspects of this research um, because it has to do with research and development trying to uh, you know establish a new a new product that we may sell one day. Okay, fine, but whatever they're doing with the virus itself certainly needs to be um, uh, done transparent, transparently. Passing it through some sort of internal, quote-unquote, ethicist who is employed by Pfizer um, and is thereby in a position where it's almost impossible, even if, it's, even if it's a decent, upright person, almost impossible not to become a sort of rubber stamp for whatever Pfizer wants to do, simply because... You know, if you don't, you're going to lose your job. You're not going to be employed very long if you're actually getting in the way of what the company wants to do. So some, some sort of external mechanism um, that would allow for transparency, that would allow for institutional review board type of uh, approval for this sort of research and development, I think is necessary. But with that said, um, you know, the, the, the external watchdog model is important. But with that said, also, some ability simply to say, no, not, not just let us look at what you're doing, but, you know, what you're doing may just be too dangerous to, um, you know, to allow to move forward. Hey, you guys mind if I pop in? Yeah, yes. Yeah. I was trying to unmute to give you hey, the mic. Grant. I put it on mute. Go ahead, man. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, so, yeah, my question is uh, to George. George, when I heard your story about you funded your 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 business your journalism and spent 750 of your own money two questions and i know james has gone another route getting the public to support him in his journalism one is there some personal envy there because it sounds like there could be a little bit number two if you would have scored that if you'd have scored the exact same story whether you did a date or didn't do a date would you have dropped that story and be proud of it was that a question to George Grant? Yeah. Ah, cool. yes, I've just I've just brought him up for this. So George, did he Grant's question? I can't question? hear you. Ah, cool, cool. I'll let Grant ask the question again. Can you hear us now, George? Y yes, I can. Ah, cool, cool. So Grant had a question for you, so I just yeah, brought you back sure. up. Go ahead. So George, George, yeah, I heard what you shared earlier about your story about funding your own journalism up to uh, selling your homes and seven hundred fifty thousand, which is very commendable to to get the truth out. And I just wonder if there's some personal envy with, with or just the differences with how James has done it, getting the public to support his journalism. And number two, if you just scored the exact same story, um, would you have would you have kept it to yourself or would you have shared it with the world? 
I think it's a great question, and um, I would have shared it with the world, but I would have uh, traced it back to who the state sponsor was. Because to get a low-level guy who just got his MD in October 2021, and, and, and I wouldn't parlay that as a top executive. I wouldn't knowing this guy did the org charts for the five-year oncology mrna he did the org charts so you're getting the the breadcrumbs he's feeding you right so i would have parlayed i would have traced it back to callahan at moderna i went to cambridge i talked to somebody who was at the lab i went to somebody and i talked to somebody at the mit lab so i would have done a lot more groundbreaking if the guy would have said i'm a contractor three times i would have found out what contractor it was i did it was boston consulting group i spent all yesterday in the basement you know following and so forth and to nate kane's uh comment here i everyone wanted to know about uranium one i went to union city where he lived and i was 200 yards down the street i did not uh uh did not film his address he had all kinds of dogs and uh you know that people. that is not true George, I walked, you, pointed, well, you pointed the you pointed it, the camera right at my car as I drove by, giving my my uh, my license to everybody. And you may not you know you may not be aware of this, okay? But I was I was laid, later targeted, okay, by people. The information that I turned over had to do with Russian intelligence sources, which I'm cer- certain were likely behind an attempted poisoning of me. And you basically exposed me to the whole world by showing up at my home address. Now, there could have been, if you had approached me in a way that would have been respectful, you know, even if you just communicated to me through uh, through Twitter or through email or something like that, I probably would have given you an interview. But no, instead you went out there and you made a whole lot of assumptions based off of, you know, what I can only presume was my resume and different com- companies that I work for. I've never been involved in any kind of things having to do with uranium. I've been a cybersecurity expert for 26 years. That is what I've been doing. And, and you did you know Fox explain- was promoting you as the Uranium One whistleblower? Did you know that? Yes, I was the Uranium One whistleblower. But oh, so how did out- I get the idea that you were the Uranium One whistleblower? I wonder. I guess look, I watched if Fox. you if you had listened to any of the stories that I had given, I was an FBI contractor. Okay, an FBI contractor working in cybersecurity information assurance division at the FBI, and I blew the whistle on the FBI's cover-up of Uranium One and the cover-up of the Clinton pay-to-play scheme and all of the money laundering and the uh, the securities and exchange fraud, the public corruption, and even the, the terrorism financing that I discovered the evidence of on the FBI's network. That is what I blew the whistle on. And when Why didn't I went you show through- up for your Fox interview? Why didn't you show up for your Fox interview? If you had watched what happened, I, I actually had gone down there and they were going to send a car to pick me up. And what ended up happening was the the head executives of Fox called my lawyer and at the last minute they canceled the interview. Okay. Then so, so when I, they wanted do, to have me, wanna... they wanted to have me back on the show the next Monday. But by then, my circumstances had changed. You got to remember, I had the FBI targeting me. I had them trying to destroy my life. Okay, so the last thing I wanted to do was to to go out on on the media. I was going to, but then it became apparent to me, and under my lawyer's advice, I decided not to. A year later, I finally decided to go public with everything because I realized I was safe for being out in the public. Okay, so so I got to go back to the topic here a little bit, uh, but I, I do want to ask Matthew, how yep. did you guys figure out what this guy's title and role was at Pfizer? Because I know George has now said that. 
he verified that the guy was only a contractor and he did a lot of research on it yesterday. So I would like to, uh, for you guys to defend that. Well, uh, first, I would like to say that the point of ethical journalism, we, we, which we've been talking about, that's been a big facet of a lot of these spaces and certainly this story. Uh, you know, Project Veritas does not publish or present in video uh, people's home addresses, doesn't uh, uh, license plates, emails redacted. Part of ethical journalism is is making sure to dot those I's and cross those T's and not bring undue risk even to subjects or sources or uh, passersby or people who are tangential to the story. And that is a very important key point of, you know, we're talking before the evolution of Project Veritas and how seriously we take doing journalism uh, as a discipline and doing it the right way. Uh, And sounds like, you know, in some of these instances, that hasn't always been the case on some of these previous cases. Uh, In terms of the verification, I'd have to go to my team uh, to get the exact detailing on how they did so. But they wouldn't put anything out that wasn't verified. That is something, especially in a case like this, knowing how high profile it will be, would be uh, from the strength of the story and what uh, I can bring someone on my team who is hard. They're willing to talk about it. Matt, I was on a. Yep. Uh, so I guess we'll uh, let, let's jump to Brian real quick, and then I want to bring in Kim. Yeah, yeah I, I just have a really quick question for Matt. Matt again. I, I, I'm sorry, that was my kid. Uh, yeah. So, so I I wonder sometimes, as kind of a skeptic of Project Veritas, uh, what are the lead up conversations? So, like, is there any conversation before you start filming where somebody could be conditioned? So, like in this instance, could his date have been saying, "Oh, I really think that." Uh, gain of function research is really crazy and, and cool and, and like talking it up. Like, do things like that happen? Uh, by by rule of our journalistic ethics and ethos, absolutely not. We, uh, you know, when we are with a subject who we're investigating, it is always going because you never know what you're going to miss uh, if it's not going. I mean, we're looking to report faithfully to the facts and the truth of what their subject with the prima facie evidence they give us, the viewing public and us, the journalists, by virtue of their mouths moving. We're faithful to that. I'll give you an example of something that was long enough in the past. I can discuss it. We had a journalist one time that we did catch uh basically putting words uh a, a cub scout new newbie who didn't understand that you know you're not supposed eliciting a response of the truth is very different than coaching leading and trying to put words in someone's mouth and we saw a journalist who tried to do that and that person uh was let go because we this is not what we do uh we are very faithful to this like we we know that <clears throat> Could we get exposed for doing exactly what it is that you describe? I know not as an attack, but just as a, a, a philosophical discussion. Uh, like we have, we're, we, we're done. We have no uh, legs to stand on. And by the way, we would be ashamed of that ourselves. Oh, we take this very uh, seriously. Matthew, I have a question for Brian before going to Kim. Brian, question to you um, as, as a skeptic. I understand where skepticism comes from. So I did read a lot about Project Veritas after the story broke. Would you say that... Um, in this case, despite being a skeptic, in this case, the discussion of whether the, 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 the video is authentic or Jordan works at Pfizer, after Pfizer's response, that one's less of a discussion compared to what it means, what Pfizer's response means in terms of the gain-of-function research and what Jordan said, what it means in terms of gain-of-function research and the source of COVID. Uh, would you agree that this is this has become the main discussion now, especially after Pfizer's response? Or do you still have uh, concerns or questions? Brian, that one's to you, man, because I know you're the skeptic here. 
yeah. So, so, so like, like something else, like, like, I, I would say that I still have questions. I, I, I think that I would love to just watch the whole video from where they meet to, to where it ends. Like, I, and, and I think like a lot of skeptics would probably say the same just to, because there's a lot of cutting and editing and, and I'm not saying that you guys are doing it maliciously and I, I don't have any evidence of that, but I, I would love to be able to see that just so I can say, okay, this is exactly what happened. We see everything. We don't see anything out of context. And Matthew, do you have plans to release oh, the full video? Is there, I think you might've ex- touched on this already in one of your spaces, but would let you answer yeah, that. Yeah, no, we, 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 we spoke about this and, and James and uh, Eric Weinstein debate about this uh, in depth very, pretty much every time they, they get together, whether it's on a space, a podcast in person or even in their DMs and text messages. Uh, you know, James's view, and I understand, you know, the, the desire and the reason for that. And that is, I think, merit, meritorious. James's argument, and I'm, you know, not going to uh, pass judgment one way or the other if I agree or disagree, because, you know, he has crafted, this is his vision, and crafted this journalism, is that that double standard, if you're not asking for Maggie Haberman's notebooks uh, from her, uh, where she describes, even forget the source's name, but the details of what the anonymous source that she's citing and quoting uh, is saying, uh, you know, it's an unfair standard. Uh, Mario, uh, Brazilian Mario, uh, the, the tag and, you know, to differentiate with you, Mario N, uh, said this in depth earlier at the, towards the beginning of the space is to, you know, the da- hours and hours, the weighing for one thing, the tradecraft of how we how we talk to people. Obviously, we have to build rapport. And the rapport building is key in any journalism. If you're a, if you're an investigative journalist or you're an editorial journalist or you're a political journalist just reporting things, the way you communicate with your sources and subjects is really the fundamental of how you start building the journalism output, the story itself. And so, you know, his view is that's a double standard that we should not be adhered to. We also have, you know, a lot of our operations that we don't want to share with the world because that gives us the edge to be able to keep doing it. We are 100 percent committed to peeling the onion and digging deep into context uh, so that when somebody alleges this was totally taken out of context. What he really said was, oh, you didn't. Uh, I, Pfizer has no gain of function research uh, going on. And uh, somebody accused us of editing and splicing. And we take out, you know, the negative uh, factor in that sentence to make to make it be something he didn't say, make it appear like he said it. We don't do that. And that's pathologically enough. From the, the fact evidence you see the uninterrupted conversations that are core and key to what we're uh, showing. Uh, the Matthew, world. You, you must have you must have done right, because I'm, I'm going. Going through the comments and, and anyone that disagrees or has a different viewpoint, do put it in the comments bottom right corner. But I was going through the comments and we're getting attacked or not us, but whoever questioned um, whether Jordan you know, works at Pfizer, whether he's a contractor, etc., everyone's jumping to your defense. So uh, you must have done something I think, right. I think releasing the full video uh, obviously helps, but uh, you know, the, the, the reasons not to also make sense. There's pros and cons yeah. when it comes uh, to James's decision making because he has pioneered this this style of journalism. I'll reduce this to the absurd as a philosophical thought project here. If Jordan was a janitor at Pfizer headquarters and overheard people talking about it and relate it, would that be merit based? Would that be worth reporting? Given, in my view, given the gravity of the underlying subject matter, I would say absolutely. And this guy was not a janitor. He had serious subject matter knowledge. That's clear, basically. And look, Matthew, look how, far, look, look how far we've gone. And Nick, I know, I'll give you the mic uh, as well. But look how far we've gone, Matthew, from 
anyone that talks about the uh, lab league theories, the conspiracy theorists, and I was in that camp, I'm like, yeah, this is just, I, I don't even bother looking into it. And now it's considered the norm, and you've got people that are you know, proponents of the vaccine saying, yeah, the lab league theory seems pretty plausible. Um, and then obviously this video kind of confirms that. And now we've got uh, the gain-of-function research, like, no, no, no way, no one's doing it, that's crazy. And now we're talking about, yeah, they're probably doing it, but not in the U.S., maybe through a contractor, etc. And we've seen your video and Pfizer's response kind of imply that as well in one way or another. So it's just it's fascinating Talk how… About, uh, Absolutely. A shifted Overton window on possibly the biggest public policy uh, debate and top thematic topic that we will all discuss. The fact that it transcends politics makes it that more much more important. And the fact that it's public health is why it transcends politics. So the Overton window has certainly shifted. I think this video and this expose uh, has helped do so. And I think that's of very, very high merit in public value. It's a public good. That's what real journalism should be doing. The New York Times should have been doing this. But as James says, brought to you by Pfizer. Pfizer <laughs> subsidizing everything. I'll give the mic to Nick. I think he wants to introduce Kim. Nick, mic is yours. Yeah, but I, I did want to say one thing. And I believe uh, James said this yesterday in the Project Veritas space. Um, it was yesterday or the day before. Yeah, they all run together at this point. But he did mention that he didn't want to release the entire raw footage because it would give up a lot of the tactics. It's not just that. I mean, just like, here's what I wanted to add, right? When I was hearing you guys ask the question, like again and again, I think they've been asked that same question three times in this very space and they've answered it all three times. I just wanted to add, right? Uh, releasing the, you know, it, it's impossible to release a raw, unedited footage because, like, you'd be re- releasing the information, like, the the um, identity of the people involved, the people, you know, like, what happens into before they go on a date, like, all that would have to be, come out, right? And in addition to that, you, you'd you want to censor everybody's faces, like the people who are not involved, like, say, a bartender or a, a waiter, right? People see, seated at uh, different tables, if they say hi to somebody, they have to censor all these things out. I mean, imagine the amount of work it would take to censor, say, six to eight hours of this. It's impossible. Like, no, you wouldn't be able to do this. Not, a, not only, they can, they can release just the audio, but also, like, I, I, I want to mention one thing, is that it's also pretty, pretty... Uh, 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 you know, questionable the way they got the information. I'm not saying you know it's for the public good and there's pros and cons. You know, obviously Jordan's going to be suffering, but it's for, for a lot of more people will be benefiting. But the way they got the information, the way they've honeypotted Jordan, is oh, I, think I, I think they get a lot of back. They release the whole thing, they get a lot of backlash. Like they'll be talking about love, you know, romantic things, personal things, etc. These yeah. are things you can't release. Talking yeah, about their family. Talking but, about, you know, I, I loved kissing you last night. Like, this is not the shit you want to release. Plus, it makes there's, it there's makes the no, whole thing. I want to be, I want to be very clear on the record. There's no kissing. Uh, there's no uh, physical contact. <laughs> okay, strong guardrails because once you actually introduce something like sex, like attraction is different. I mean, the, the, the way two people communicate, whatever subtext exists between two people that end up uh, facilitating rapport, that exists in every facet of humanity, every relationship any of us have, whether they're, you know, uh, uh, paternal, paternalistic, or, you know, objects of sexual desire, whatever, that we have very strong guardrails in place. No journalist ever, uh, you know, is put into a position where that could actually happen. 
Uh, we and certainly there's never any, you know, using sex to extract information that doesn't happen. It's never happened. It never so, will. It is a firm. Just just for the record, you're saying that you don't use the same tactics that um, British, the British police use to infiltrate uh, activist organizations. Is that correct? We're, yeah. And, and by the way, we're not the police. You know, we're not we're not, you know, entrapping uh, Hugh Grant on uh, Hollywood Boulevard. Like, that's not our job. Our job is to find important information the public has a right to know. Uh, we're not into the politics of personal destruction, to coin the term from the 90s. We are looking for information that is incredibly important to educate people about so that we can inform and have these debates and hopefully make a more better and just society. And I think in this case, especially the gravity, the magnitude and the scale of this issue and the regulatory uh, circumstances that surround it. Uh, this is very necessary. And I assure you now that the journalist and the subject, they had no sexual uh, uh, contact whatsoever. There was no bumping uglies. Okay, so I do, I do want to bring in Kim here if we can. Uh, Kim, what are your thoughts on, you know, everything that's happened before? We know, I know we've heard a lot of it on the Project Veritas space, but even in the meantime, you know, the Pfizer statement that came out last night, um, give us your thoughts. Well, uh, Pfizer is a public company, so you need to keep that in mind when reading that statement. Uh, they can now say, um, we have admitted that we are using contractors that engineer viruses to assess antiviral activity. What that really means is they have people working in labs uh, that work on these viruses and mutate them just like... Uh, the Pfizer source has said in the Project Veritas video. So, you know, when you understand what they are saying, you do understand that they're actually admitting um, that what Project Veritas has uncovered is true. They do it in their own way. You know, it's uh, creative writing. That's, you know, what the lawyers do. Uh, but, you know, for someone who understands how this works, uh, you can now see that this is an admission and what's going to happen, and the reason why Pfizer did that is because they know that this story is too big. Uh, there will be investigations into what has been said, uh, and they have now put out a statement that they can use to claim, yeah, but we have been transparent. Maybe not everyone understood what we exactly said here. You know, it may be still a year down the road before we have any hearings about that. But what Pfizer has done here is uh, ad admitting that they are doing this work through contractors. And, you know, I've heard, um, I think the source also talk that uh, Pfizer does like to outsource stuff. You know, they don't want to be uh, doing this in-house. They don't want to do this inside of U.S. jurisdiction. They prefer having third parties doing this work um, and, you know, paying people to do what they need so that they can sell more uh, vaccines and more uh, drugs. So, you know, to me, the story is really just beginning. And it's a beautiful uh, thing that, that we see here developing. You know, the, the one thing that is also really important is you don't see the mainstream media covering this. Other than Tucker Carlson on Fox, you really don't see much about this. And it just shows the relationship of 
a major advertiser who spends billions of dollars on all these media organizations, uh, basically having the power because of their status within these media companies to shut the story down. And also the takedown of the video by YouTube uh, is, is again, another big tech uh, censorship that, uh, you know, favors their business partners. Pfizer is also a major advertiser on Google AdWords, right? So it's just beautiful to see uh, what's happening here. And I'm really looking forward to how the story uh, will evolve. Tom, you have a response? Yeah, I want to follow up on, on Kim's point. I, I think it's important since we've been going on for so uh, lengthy a time, you know, we just clarify where we stand here. Uh, we had a senior Pfizer official admit they were planning and implementing gain-of-function research. Pfizer waited two days to respond for obvious reasons. Uh, they wanted to see uh, if the story would go anywhere. And they confirmed they're engaged in gain-of-function research. And uh, and I would just disagree a little bit with Kim. And I, I just don't think it's corporate fear that prevents the media from doing this. The Biden administration and prior to that, uh, the Trump administration through deep state actors has been threatening and pushing censorship on COVID related matters uh, and, co- and especially the vaccine uh, for two years now. And so when you see this kind of uh, this universal silence by the media, it, it's not it's not the corporations. It's only the government can enforce that type of silence. Uh, through threats, uh, implicit and explicit. And uh, so I think that's what you're seeing here. You're seeing the remnant, certainly in the YouTube uh, area, the, the not remnant, but the current, the current censorship, uh, evidence of the current censorship by the Biden administration. You know, I know we just sued the Surgeon General's office to try to get information about their covert censorship. Uh, but... Um, this isn't because they're afraid of advertising dollars. This is because they're afraid of the judge, jury, and executioner uh, that are the federal government uh, and federal agencies that regulate their space. Well, there's another element to it, Tom, and that is that uh, the media has sold these vaccines for Pfizer uh, for years now and has been pushing this uh, narrative that everyone should take it. And if you don't take it, you are literally killing people. Um, you know, all of that is on the line now. Their entire credibility is on the line. Uh, and so, yes, it's the advertising dollars, but it's also the embarrassment that they are facing if they now finally have to admit that they were part of a major scam. And, and, and to add to that, uh, you know, going back to the beginning, if COVID emerged as a result of uh, engineering, it is because they had the help of U.S. government funding. The inquiries into COVID gain-of-function research, them trying to figure out what was up as COVID emerged, wasn't because uh, they were just gathering facts. They were nervous because they knew immediately that if it was engineered, it was likely because of gain-of-function. I tell you, we had material where the folks who were running the Wuhan lab we're asking for advice on disinfecting the lab from U.S. officials. But that's how low rent uh, that operation was. Uh, so there would be none of these labs and certainly these techniques 
uh, without U.S. support over the years, a partnership that goes back at least to 2003. Uh, so, um, again, it's the government that did it. And uh, this is why I think you're seeing uh, almost a nervous quietude in response to this. I, I don't even see it as suppression. I just see it as anxiety about this revelation. Uh, because, as I said earlier, uh, there's no experiment in this area that's going on uh, without the involvement of the federal government. Not a not a dollar drops from the sky uh, without Mammon here in D.C. knowing what's happening, either at FDA or NIH. No doubt, and certainly CDC. I, I want to quickly jump in, guys. Name redacted. So, you want to quickly connect? Uh, name redacted. Nick uh, DM'd me about. Um, you know, he always comes in to talk about censorship and he wanted to talk about how the Project Veritas story was censored. Nick, you've been with us since the early Twitter files days. What do you have to share about the way Project Veritas was censored since the story came out? Well, one thing I did, one thing I started to look at, and but I kind of hit a dead end, was like the money trail of like who's funding these outside organizations that are feeding um, accounts to be censored back to Twitter, Facebook, and uh, Google, YouTube. And what I found today, I know Matthew, you you saw it. Um, the there's uh, let me pull up my thread here. Um, Lee Fang had done a Twitter files, and inside that there's this group called uh, Bio, which is a uh, the big lobby for uh, pharma. Pfizer and uh, Moderna uh, use them. So this uh, company Bio, this is a biotech innovation. Uh, organization they paid 880 grand to a consulting firm uh, public good projects pgp well guess who also funds public good projects google and then public good projects opened another subsidiary called stronger and stronger along with public good projects are in touch with twitter and these social media companies feeding them weekly like lists of accounts to censor um, and ban and stronger is also funded by Google. So it's sort of like a one big happy family, but you know, Google, the government, all these like private organizations, uh, Google's actually funding a lot of the censorship and it makes sense why, you know, they're, they're the first ones mainly to, especially YouTube, to ban this video from Project Veritas. YouTube, we did a uh, investigation. Uh, we had a whistleblower who was actually on this uh, on this space early earlier as a listener. I don't know if he was a speaker, Zach Voorhees, who uh, I'd been talking to him from when he was in YouTube, and we exposed the machine learning fairness algorithm and how they contra contravent uh, organic search to inject social justice into search results. Uh, and it's funny how when a company gets so big, uh, they take on not their original competitive uh, goals to compete in the market and win, but to kneecap their, their opponents. And what greater kneecapping in the world can there be than controlling the mechanisms of distributing information and using censorship as a tool? And certainly this is interesting what you found with these connections with, uh, with Google, who owns YouTube. And another thing, Matthew, um, I know you followed me early on, but another one of the main issues of things I've been working on, Mark, and Kim, I know you're familiar with this, and Ian, is 
Google and Facebook have hired hundreds of people from the intelligence community since 2018, and former CIA officers are managing misinformation at Facebook and Google currently. Yep. And moreover, in addition to that, you know, behind the curtain, in front of the curtain, they've hired an army of lobbyists in D.C. And when Trump was uh, was elected, they pivoted from hiring, you know, the K Street usual sort of Dem connected lobbyists. And they went and they picked over some high ranking uh, House and Senate members staffs to become lobbyists who became, you know, get it's time to get paid. And they became a mouthpiece for exactly those that they were looking to attack with regulation on the merit of the platforms that their members were running on and espousing, you know, from the Senate and House floor. So it is very much a weaponization of controlling information, of spinning. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, this is what happened. This is what happens if Judicial Watch on a, we do a video or mention COVID in a post uh, on Facebook. They label it. They say this contains COVID information. Click here, which suggests that we're doing something uh, on uh, that's inappropriate. And if you go to share the link, it says, are you sure you want to share this crap? They don't literally say that, but that's the implication, which suppresses the content further. And that's just what we see in the front end. We don't see the back end algorithms uh, that um, is designed, in our view, to suppress content like this. Uh, so this censorship is real and ongoing. And on this very issue we're talking about, we have this freedom on Twitter. Uh, we wouldn't be able to have these discussions on these other platforms. And. YouTube's taking down of this is kind of a shot across the bow uh, at the Republican Congress, I would think. You know, come and get us. And if the Republicans don't get it, get them and expose what's going on here and and end it as quickly as humanly possible, uh, it's going to metastasize further uh, into other areas. You know, it started with elections. Now it's COVID. Next up is climate change. Obviously, the transgender extremism agenda is also being enforced through censorship. And and I tell you, there isn't an area that they don't want to control speech on. Uh, but this one, you know, we could all die if things go south because of incompetence and lies and corruption. And so, I, I, you know, to those of you who are concerned about this, if you don't let your elected officials know about it, they're not going to take the necessary leadership. So, so Nate, I want to let you jump in here because you've been trying for a while, and then I want to go to Joe right after that. Hey, um, you know, this subject is extremely important, um, this issue of censorship, and especially when it comes to the government's interference uh, with our free speech. Um, I'm very concerned about this. Uh, One of the things that I'm doing is I'm running for Congress, and this is one of the issues that is a key issue for me is the protection of our constitutional rights. Um, I'd like to hear from the panel some ideas on what Congress can do in terms of legislation to stop this sort of thing. One of the concerns that I have is after blowing the uh, blowing the whistle on the FBI, um, you know, of course, I had a a Twitter uh, profile that blew up. And when the story broke, um, I think I had close to 200,000 followers on Twitter. And I was beginning to speak openly about, you know, what I discovered and what was going on, uh, especially after it became clear that that the Congress, uh, particularly the House Permanent Select Committee Intelligence, was, was not going to do anything. And Twitter banned my account permanently. Now, I don't know to this day why I was banned. I appealed. They never gave me a response other than just some generic thing. Um, but I was extremely careful 
not to ever, you know, uh, make claims and stuff about COVID or about uh, even the, the election integrity that wasn't backed up with evidence. And so I don't know why I got banned, but I've been very, very much concerned about this, especially after it was uh, released recently about how, uh, you know, the FBI and, and other government agencies had lists and things that they were providing or there were groups of former FBI and former intelligence community guys that were providing lists of accounts that they believed were, you know, supposed Russian bots and that sort of thing. So I'm curious to hear from uh, the rest of the panel what you guys think about that and, and whether or not um, this is something that could be addressed. If you can touch on it quickly, Tom, if you can touch on it quickly, because I do want to go to Joe to go back to the, to the Project Veritas okay. story. Well, go ahead, let's, Tom. Let's, let's, they can ensure Congress is stopping um, censoring Americans so they can punish members who have abused their offices to censor American citizens, both in the House and the Senate. Uh, they can, uh, under rules, uh, uh, fire and defund positions of uh, government officials who have engaged in this censorship. They can further clarify the law. It's already illicit to do this and illegal to do this, but they can be explicit in banning communications with federal by federal agencies or members of Congress, or, et cetera, uh, with these uh, big tech companies to suppress content. And, um, you know, they can refer for criminal investigation those who violated the civil rights of Americans, you know, in, in these iterations of censorship that have been exposed on Twitter. And, of course, impeachment's other another category. And, you know, if they're serious about it, they, that's the way they should be approaching it. And, you know, if and, and I think, you know, I'm pay, putting out a whole panoply of things that they can do and it will be um, uh, tell us something how quickly they pursue any of them. Um, I'll go to uh, – I think I wanted to get Joe to speak, but I think he dropped out. But I will uh, wrap it up. This went well beyond what we expected. So I'll give the mic to uh, Matthew. Matthew, you know, you've done your spaces a couple of days ago. You've done your spaces yesterday. Kim was in both those spaces. I think Grant was there as well. Ian was. Um, so final words for the audience and what they should expect soon over the next few weeks. Sure. I, You know, my jaw is – hurting from 26 hours in four days or five days of spaces. But it's such an incredibly uh, robust and powerful uh, facet to this platform that's been freed. Uh, and it's a marvel what you and Jim and Nick and Catherine have built on so many interesting subjects. And you guys are tip of the spear on engaged spaces. So chapeau boss to you guys. Uh, one point I just want to make what Tom said when he sort of read a litany of the things they're trying to uh, exert manipulative control over. You know what's really frightening about it? The collusion, not just industry not just government, not just media on their standalone basis, but working in concert, as we saw in this story. Tom, you mentioned climate change. Remember Charlie Chester, the CNN investigation we did when they were saying there were two big takeaways from the CNN producer who said, uh, Matt Gates, we have to go after him because he's effective. And after COVID, we're going to pivot to climate change. It's going to be 24-7. We're going to drum it into the American zeitgeist, into everybody's head, you know, the importance. That's talking about, you know, uh, uh, manufacturing consent, you know, trying to use the media instead of their their, their job as the fourth estate to report the news, to inform the public, to give us information so we can make better decisions and be more responsible stewards of our families and our and being uh, productive citizens, but to coerce agendas, political, economic, uh, to, to really, really manipulate narrative. And it's a frightening thing. We're seeing it with this story. I think the, the magnitude of the story, it's just beginning. There will be a lot of onion peeling. There will be a lot of hearings. Uh, hopefully there will be, you know, the highest ranking people in pharma uh, in a congressional hearing getting grilled on 
on this? What did you know and when did you know it? Because the American people and not just the American people, we're the leader in global drug development. The whole world is uh, at sort of our mercy on what we do leading public health, all the healthcare innovation that comes out of here. The regulation out of the AFD is the world leader and it's been totally captured by the industry with a profit motive. Profit motive is fine, but there's a reason why Teddy Roosevelt busted up trust because at some point they were antithetical to the common good. They had too much power. They were not exercising their powers in society responsibly. They were uh, exploiting them for their own privatized gain at the people's expense. And I think a lot of industries, we saw it with financials, uh, and now certainly it's great to have a debate about this on public health. One of the things uh, that is a, a product of COVID is that people are much more oriented to having a conversation debate about public health. And now is a great moment to talk about that regulatory capture. Uh, I will just say I stand by the veracity of Project Veritas's reporting from soup to nuts from ACORN before the organization was uh, was chartered when James did it himself uh, out of his own pocket to building an institution that continues to grow. Uh, whistleblowers, if you're listening, Veritas tips at Proton Mail. Uh, and Kim, thank you so much for, you know, doing a matching with us in our space and helping us raise money. Investigative journalism, one of the reasons the mainstream media has stopped doing it is because it's expensive and time consuming. It doesn't get quick clicks. It takes months frequently to do an investigation from the beginning when it germinates with a source, a tip, a whistleblower to then peel the onion, get something onto tape, produce it and distribute it after verifying it, which is key to our practice. So I just want to thank Mario, you guys for hosting this, everyone for watching and distributing this video whether you agree with it or not go out and distribute it spark debate what's the worst thing that can happen people debate that's the best thing that could happen for our society right now thanks matthew um ian you've been on on the space and i'll let you and kim wrap it up before giving the mic to to nick and also just want to sure. before you do i just want to give a big shout out to jim <clears throat> jim is the uh is the person that made this space happen jim puff you all know him and he's off to bed now so massive shout out to jim ian mike is yours uh, well, I just want to say, you know, um, Big Pharma is evil. Don't trust them. Their profit motive is, uh, well, <laughs> their motive is profit. And they will put profit over people any time of the day, any day of the year. Okay. So don't believe anything they say. Everything they say is, well, you know, when I say don't believe anything they say, I mean, verify what they say. Okay. Don't just take it at face value and don't assume good faith. They're not they're not here to be nice to people. They're not here to coddle you. They're not here to, uh, you know, save the human race. They're here to make money. It's as simple as that. They they do have a business model, though, where they do bring very necessary drugs. I've been doing oh, drugs absolutely. for 20 absolutely, years. Absolutely, yeah. They, they do and do that, but they're a necessary evil in a lot of, in a lot of cases. But at the same time, they will, they will sacrifice people if they, if they can. So another way of saying is like they're not there. They're not there. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Matthew. I was going to say, look, I've seen the best and the worst of drug development, whether it's smaller biotechs who then sell out to big pharma who distributes their drugs. And we talked about this on a space the other night, how a, like how a bill becomes a law, how a drug goes from preclinical to the marketplace. And it's a very, very complicated process, which is part of the facet of conversation we've had about rushing uh, COVID vaccines with new mechanisms of action to the market with no long term safety data. That's for another space. But they do save lives. I've watched cancer therapies for certain cancers. You know, what was a death sentence 10 years ago now is you know, sent into remission uh, with three to six months of therapy. There's a lot of good things going on in the sciences and in, in pharmaceutical companies as well. So there's nuance. Thanks, Matthew. Kim, final words before going to Nick, because you've been in all the spaces relating to the story. Yes. Um, I'll go to Tom and Nick. I, I pinned a tweet up on top about the origin of COVID-19. I did a big space uh, about that with uh, a former vice president of EcoHealth, uh, you know, and also the future 
uh, of virus editing and uh, how dangerous this uh, this can all become for us. Because uh, one thing is sure, uh, after COVID-19, there are now many labs around the world uh, working on gain of function, uh, working on engineering new viruses. You know, whenever something like this comes out, like, for example, uh, when Edward Snowden told us about uh, the spying tools of the NSA and then later WikiLeaks with Wall 7 about the spying tools of the CIA, what happens is the world doesn't say, hey, let's stop this madness, let's stop these tools. No, all other countries start competing, developing similar technology. And unfortunately, the same thing is going to happen here because we now know what the U.S. government did in Wuhan, funding that uh, gain-of-function research, which resulted in the creation of this virus. Other nations are going to say, well, we have to do the same thing. We have to have all these different viruses that we, uh, you know, uh, add function to by uh, modifying mice to have human uh, immune systems and then, you know, making them transmissible uh, to humans. So what's happening here really is a new wave of research into virus editing. And that is a major threat to humanity because you can imagine how easy it is uh, for these viruses to get into circulation for whatever reason. There uh, have been recent reports that uh, China is developing, uh, you know, viruses that can that can target races, you know, that can target either black people or certain, uh, you know, people that have genetic uniqueness to them uh, that could be, you know, an entire continent that can be attacked, whereas Chinese wouldn't be affected by that virus. So there's a lot of things happening in the world right now because of these developments that are very, very frightening. And on top of all that, we're dealing with Ukraine, uh, where we have escalation on top of escalation. Uh, and the world is just heading into a, a, a global crazy disaster. And I'm mostly concerned about, you know, what's going to happen in the next uh, two years with that with that war. Is it going to involve NATO? Is it going to escalate into a nuclear confrontation? There are so many sorts of Damocles swinging over humanity right now that I don't even know where to go to put out fires. There's so many of them. It's, it's literally insane. On this positive note, uh, Tom, anything to add uh, to, to Kim's final words? I'd like to give credit again to Project Veritas, who is uh, you know, doing this essential work. Uh, you know, Judicial Watch uh, exposed the attacks on Project Veritas. So, you know, when they talk about the pressure they're under, they're being, you know, self-effacing, right? I can tell you from the documents we've seen, uh, you know, they face jail time uh, if the left could get away with it uh, for doing this type of work. And uh, they're the victims of some serious government corruption. So this comes at a price, uh, this type of uh, free speech and journalism and information you're getting. And so I would encourage folks to uh, support Project Veritas if you like this type of activity, if you want more of this work to continue. Uh, you know, I guess I should be raising money for Judicial Watch, but I tell you, Project Veritas uh, 
it plays an essential role in oversight in our, uh, basically for our culture and our government. Nick? Yeah, so I'll make it short. Um, I, I will say what I really want to see is more citizen journalism operations like Project Veritas and actually, you know, Judicial Watch as well, Tom. Uh, you guys have done a hell of a, uh, a lot of great work as well. As many have said, Twitter is its practically an incubator for grassroots journalists and grass, and uh, and citizen journalism operations and Project Veritas in particular. They've been fought, sanctioned, censored, etc., and they've kept on going. Uh, and it really says a lot that billion-dollar news organizations have uh, not done anything that Project Veritas is doing. They haven't even attempted to, yet they have the resources to do it. And the question is why? Uh, and aside from the material facts that Project Veritas have been able to uncover, it also says a lot and teaches us a lot about the mainstream media and actually makes us question what their real motives are. I've just brought up uh, Denise as well, who was part of the, most of the space, and, and Jim as well. Denise, any final words, especially on the gain-of-function side of things? Yeah, I think... That was a big part of the discussion we, that you covered. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, starting with Project Veritas, I, I have to say, you know, uh, this is, not, you know, jumping to conclusions from this preliminary evidence uh, may be marked with challenges. I think as I was saying earlier, and I'm just honestly paraphrasing what Eric Weinstein said, which is they've mar- X has now marked the spot. It's time to start digging. It's start t- time, time to start having a deeper discussion around it. And as far as gain of function research, I think, you know, I think most people here are in agreement that we need to start having a real discussion around what we can actually do around a lot of these new technologies that are coming up. I mentioned CRISPR and others. That anybody can can uh, start doing gain of function or research in their garage. Anybody, like legitimately, it's not a. Uh, it doesn't require special skill or a ton of money, and that is incredibly scary in this current environment. And so, you know, we have a very scary few years ahead, but on the horizon, we'll also, you know, like any new technology, we will learn how to counteractive with other technology the the answer isn't in my opinion ever censorship or suppression uh disruption happens the the key is to fight it on the other side and jim you've been working in the background throughout the space you didn't speak much but i know you've been listening first thanks for making the space happen any final words man before we we close the space well i think that uh, this is just one of the most critical stories, certainly of the last, I mean, it, this is, this story is as big as it, in terms of its potential impact as the, as the COVID thing itself. Like this is a, this is a huge, huge potential. Uh, uh, this, this has huge future potential in what we're going to find out. And I, I really, you know, people talk about Project Veritas and they make their claims about what they do and how well they do it and all these sorts of things. I mean, I've, I've seen Project Veritas for years and what they do. I've known these guys and I'm, I'm telling you, it's important the kind of work they're doing and whether you like them or not, you, you have to take this seriously because it, they've been proven right over and over again, which is why 
you we want to bring them in this space and definitely have people going back and forth to argue about the veracity of it and so forth because that that's how that's how we get to a place where we can figure out what are the next steps what do we need to know and what actions do we want to take and so uh, i'm just very glad we were able to take this time to be with them bring up some opposing voices by the way dr dinesh said this earlier you know he's not paid by pfizer i don't think he is too we love having him here because it brings the kind of balance and rigor to the discussion that really helps this space be successful and quite frankly helps everyone to participate. So we're always glad to have him here. But anyway, thanks everybody for coming today. This has been a lot of work and uh, we're really glad that you join us and we're really thankful to Project Veritas for being part of this today. Cool. Well, not much more I can add. Uh, Christina, uh, thanks for coming up on stage. I know we tried to bring you up earlier. I'll take your number and invite you for a future panel. Otherwise, for the audience, make sure you follow the panelists and the newsletters pinned above if you want to recap, if you missed it. Project Veritas, I'm sure they'll be doing future spaces. And guys, Matthew, I see you on stage. I'm not sure who's behind. I think Eric or Mario's behind Project Veritas's account. But guys, you're welcome to join us anytime again. Uh, just to give recaps, it was a pleasure to host you and, and uh, to cover the story with you. And Matthew, a massive shout out to you. You explicitly went out of your way uh, to ask Brian to ask his question. And you've been on our panels before, especially during the Brazil protests. And you know how we try to keep them as balanced as possible. So my, a lot of respect for you having done that. And I think you've done a great job in responding to everyone. So well done, man. Thank you. I much appreciate that. And thank you, Brian. I mean, if we can't get left and right together to talk about ideas, especially the ideas that transcend politics, then we're totally fucked and we might as well just pack it in. And uh, I think a lot of the establishment would be fine with that, us continuing to fight each other to shreds. Uh, it's more important that we use this tool, especially to come out, find common, common ground and slay some monsters. I appreciate it, guys. All right. I think that's it. Thank you so much for joining. A massive shout out to Catherine, who was hosting earlier with Nick. And we'll see you all next time. Yesterday we did, what did we do? Yesterday we did like three spaces and one YouTube live, uh, sorry, Twitter live. So we did a Twitter live reaction to, I think the project, no, the video, the footage the Pelosi of video, um, yeah. Pelosi. Yeah, the Pelosi video. And then we had a Twitter space on the, the protests last night. We had a Twitter space on Twitter files. Ian woke me up for that, Ian and the crew. And then we had a Twitter space on one more. Oh, we had a crypto Twitter space as well yesterday. But yeah, Catherine, uh, final words. I'm going to end it. Sure. Uh, I guess my final words are this. Regardless of what we think or do not think of uh, the Project Veritas, I think that what should concern us and just humanity is like as we plunge forward, there's a lot of science that's, you know, and ethics that we need to consider, whether it's gain of function research or bioengineering and lots of things. Um, just because we can do it doesn't mean we should do it. And as humans, we should be thinking ahead and should be considering all these things, whether it's through regulation and but transparency, you know, open source. And that's something that's really important for us uh, as humans to consider and, and hold uh, organizations, governments and companies accountable. So those are my thoughts. And thanks for the conversation. And I'm glad we were able to have some different perspectives on the stage. Love it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jim, for organizing it. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Project Veritas.